3. Changes in the Money Relation The purchasing power of money is determined by two factors, the total demand schedule for money to hold and the stock of money in existence. If the stock of money is decreased, there will be an excess of demand for money at the existing PPM, and the PPM will rise until the new equilibrium point is reached. The absurdity of classifying monetary theories into mutually exclusive divisions, such as supply and demand theory, quantity theory, cash balance theory, commodity theory, income and expenditure theory, should now be evident. For all these elements are found in this analysis. Money is a commodity. Its supply or quantity is important in determining its exchange value. Demand for money for the cash balance is also important for this purpose, and the analysis can be applied to income and expenditure situations. 4. Utility of the Stock of Money in the case of consumers' goods, we do not go behind their subjective utilities on people's value scales to investigate why they were preferred. Economics must stop once the ranking has been made. In the case of money, however, we are confronted with a different problem. For the utility of money, setting aside the non-monetary use of the money commodity, depends solely on its prospective use as the general medium of exchange. Hence, the subjective utility of money is dependent on the objective exchange value of money, and we must pursue our analysis of the demand for money further than would otherwise be required. For other goods, demand in the market is a means of routing commodities into the hands of their consumers. For money, on the other hand, the price of money is precisely the variable on which the demand schedule depends, and to which almost the whole of the demand for money is keyed. To put it in another way, without a price or an objective exchange value, any other good would be snapped up as a welcome free gift. But money without a price would not be used at all, since its entire use consists in its command of other goods on the market. The sole use of money is to be exchanged for goods. And if it had no price, and therefore no exchange value, it could not be exchanged and would no longer be used. We are now on the threshold of a great economic law, a truth that can hardly be overemphasized considering the harm its neglect has caused throughout history. An increase in the supply of a producer's good increases, ceteris paribus, the supply of a consumer's good. An increase in the supply of a consumer's good, when there has been no decrease in the supply of another good, is demonstrably a clear social benefit, for someone's real income has increased, and no one's has decreased. Money, on the contrary, is solely useful for exchange purposes. Money per se cannot be consumed and cannot be used directly as a producer's good in the productive process. 
Money per se is therefore unproductive. It is dead stock and produces nothing. Land or capital is always in the form of some specific good, some specific productive instrument. Money always remains in someone's cash balance. Goods are useful and scarce, and any increment in goods is a social benefit. But money is useful not directly, but only in exchanges. And we have just seen that as the stock of money in society changes, the objective exchange value of money changes inversely, though not necessarily proportionally, until the money relation is again in equilibrium. When there is less money, the exchange value of the monetary unit rises. When there is more money, the exchange value of the monetary unit falls. We conclude that there is no such thing as too little or too much money. That whatever the social money stock, the benefits of money are always utilized to the maximum extent. An increase in the supply of money confers no social benefit whatever. It simply benefits some at the expense of others, as will be detailed further. Similarly, a decrease in the money stock involves no social loss, for money is used only for its purchasing power in exchange, and an increase in the money stock simply dilutes the purchasing power of each monetary unit. Conversely, a fall in the money stock increases the purchasing power of each unit. David Hume's famous example provides a highly oversimplified view of the effect of changes in the stock of money, but in the present context it is a valid illustration of the absurdity of the belief that an increased money supply can confer a social benefit or relieve any economic scarcity. Consider the magical situation where every man awakens one morning to find that his monetary assets have doubled. Has the wealth or the real income of society doubled? Certainly not. In fact, the real income, the actual goods and services supplied, remains unchanged. What has changed is simply the monetary unit, which has been diluted, and the purchasing power of the monetary unit will fall enough, that is, prices of goods will rise, to bring the new money relation into equilibrium. One of the most important economic laws, therefore, is every supply of money is always utilized to its maximum extent, and hence no social utility can be conferred by increasing the supply of money. Some writers have inferred from this law that any factors devoted to gold mining are being used unproductively because an increased supply of money does not confer a social benefit. They deduce from this that the government should restrict the amount of gold mining. These critics fail to realize, however, that gold, the money commodity, is used not only as money, but also for non-monetary purposes, either in consumption or in production. Hence, an increase in the supply of gold, although conferring no monetary benefit, does confer a social benefit by increasing the supply of gold for direct use.
5. The Demand for Money A. Money in the ERE and in the Market It is true, as we have said, that the only use for money is in exchange. From this, however, it must not be inferred, as some writers have done, that this exchange must be immediate. Indeed, the reason that a reservation demand for money exists and cash balances are kept is that the individual is keeping his money in reserve for future exchanges. That is the function of a cash balance, to wait for a propitious time to make an exchange. Suppose the ERE has been established. In such a world of certainty, there would be no risk of loss in investment, and no need to keep cash balances on hand in case an emergency for consumer spending should arise. Everyone would therefore allocate his money stock fully to the purchase of either present goods or future goods, in accordance with his time preferences. No one would keep his money idle in a cash balance. Knowing that he will want to spend a certain amount of money on consumption in six months' time, a man will lend his money out for that period to be returned at precisely the time it is to be spent. But if no one is willing to keep a cash balance longer than instantaneously, there will be no money held and no use for a money stock. Money, in short, would either be useless or very nearly so in the world of certainty. In the real world of uncertainty, as contrasted to the ERE, even idle money kept in a cash balance performs a use for its owner. Indeed, if it did not perform such a use, it would not be kept in his cash balance. Its uses are based precisely on the fact that the individual is not certain on what he will spend his money, or of the precise time that he will spend it in the future. Economists have attempted mechanically to reduce the demand for money to various sources. There is no such mechanical determination, however. Each individual decides for himself, by his own standards, his whole demand for cash balances, and we can only trace various influences which different catalactic events may have had on demand. B. Speculative Demand One of the most obvious influences on the demand for money is expectation of future changes in the exchange value of money. Thus, suppose that at a certain point in the future, the PPM of money is expected to drop rapidly. How the demand for money schedule now reacts depends on the number of people who hold this expectation and the strength with which they hold it. It also depends on the distance in the future at which the change is expected to take place. The further away in time any economic event, the more its impact will be discounted in the present by the interest rate. Whatever the degree of impact, however, an expected future fall in the PPM will tend to lower the PPM now. 
For an expected fall in the PPM means that present units of money are worth more than they will be in the future, in which case there will be a fall in the demand for money schedule as people tend to spend more money now than at the future date. A general expectation of an imminent fall in the PPM will lower the demand schedule for money now and thus tend to bring about the fall at the present moment. Conversely, an expectation of a rise in the PPM in the near future will tend to raise the demand for money schedule as people decide to hoard add money to their cash balance in expectation of a future rise in the exchange value of a unit of their money. The result will be a present rise in the PPM. An expected fall in the PPM in the future will therefore lower the PPM now, and an expected rise will lead to a rise now. The speculative demand for money functions in the same manner as the speculative demand for any good. An anticipation of a future point speeds the adjustment of the economy toward that future point. Just as the speculative demand for a good speeded adjustment to an equilibrium position, so the anticipation of a change in the PPM speeds the market adjustment toward that position. Just as in the case of any good, furthermore, errors in this speculative anticipation are self-correcting. Many writers believe that in the case of money, there is no such self-correction. They assert that while there may be a real or underlying demand for goods, money is not consumed and therefore has no such underlying demand. The PPM and the demand for money, they declare, can be explained only as a perpetual and rather meaningless cat-and-mouse race in which everyone is simply trying to anticipate everyone else's anticipations. There is, however, a real or underlying demand for money. Money may not be physically consumed, but it is used, and therefore it has utility in a cash balance. Such utility amounts to more than speculation on a rise in the PPM. This is demonstrated by the fact that people do hold cash even when they anticipate a fall in the PPM. Such holdings may be reduced, but they still exist, and, as we have seen, this must be so in an uncertain world. In fact, without willingness to hold cash, there could be no monetary exchange economy whatever. The speculative demand therefore anticipates the underlying non-speculative demands, whatever their source or inspiration. Suppose, then, that there is a general anticipation of a rise in the PPM, a fall in prices, not reflected in underlying supply and demand. It is true that, at first, this general anticipation raises, ceteris paribus, the demand for money and the PPM. But this situation does not last. 
For now that a pseudo-equilibrium has been reached, the speculative anticipators, who did not really have an increased demand for money, sell their money, buy goods, to reap their gains. But this means that the underlying demand comes to the fore, and this is less than the money stock at that PPM. The pressure of spending then lowers the PPM again to the true equilibrium point. C. Secular Influences on the Demand for Money Long-run influences on the demand for money in a progressing economy will tend to be manifold and in both directions. On the one hand, an advancing economy provides ever more occasions for new exchanges as more and more commodities are offered on the market and as the number of stages of production increases. These greater opportunities tend greatly to increase the demand for money schedule. If an economy deteriorates, fewer opportunities for exchange exist and the demand for money from this source will fall. The major long-run factor counteracting this tendency and tending toward a fall in the demand for money is the growth of the clearing system. Clearing is a device by which money is economized and performs the function of a medium of exchange without being physically present in the exchange. A simplified form of clearing may occur between two people. For example, A may buy a watch from B for three gold ounces. At the same time, B buys a pair of shoes from A for one gold ounce. Instead of two transfers of money being made and a total of four gold ounces changing hands, they decide to perform a clearing operation. A pays B two ounces of money and they exchange the watch and the shoes. Thus, when a clearing is made and only the net amount of money is actually transferred, all parties can engage in the same transactions at the same prices but using far less cash. Their demand for cash tends to fall. There is obviously little scope for clearing, however, as long as all transactions are cash transactions. For then, people have to exchange one another's goods at the same time. But the scope for clearing is vastly increased when credit transactions come into play. These credits may be quite short-term. Thus, suppose that A and B deal with each other quite frequently during a year or a month. Suppose they agree not to pay each other immediately in cash, but to give each other credit until the end of each month. Then B may buy shoes from A on one day, and A may buy a watch from B on another. At the end of the period, the debts are canceled and cleared, and the net debtor pays one lump sum to the net creditor. Once credit enters the picture, the clearing system can be extended to as many individuals as find it convenient. The more people engage in clearing operations, often in places called clearing houses, the more cancellations there will be, and the more money will be economized. 
At the end of the week, for example, there may be five people engaged in clearing, and A may owe B ten ounces, B owe C ten ounces, C owe D, etc., and finally E may owe A ten ounces. In such a case, fifty ounces worth of debt transactions and potential cash transactions are settled without a single ounce of cash being used. Clearing then is a process of reciprocal cancellations of money debts. It permits a huge quantity of monetary exchanges without actual possession and transfer of money. Thereby greatly reducing the demand for money. Clearing, however, cannot be all-encompassing, for there must be some physical money which could be used to settle the transaction, and there must be physical money to settle when there is no one hundred percent cancellation, which rarely occurs. D. Demand for money unlimited. A popular fallacy rejects the concept of demand for money because it is allegedly always unlimited. This idea misconceives the very nature of demand and confuses money with wealth or income. It is based on the notion that people want as much money as they can get. In the first place, this is true for all goods. People would like to have far more goods than they can procure now, but demand on the market does not refer to all possible entries on people's value scales. It refers to effective demand, to desires made effective by being demanded. That is, by the fact that something else is supplied for it, or else it is reservation demand. Which takes the form of holding back the good from being sold. Clearly, effective demand for money is not and cannot be unlimited. It is limited by the appraised value of the goods a person can sell in exchange, and by the amount of that money which the individual wants to spend on goods rather than keep in his cash balance. Furthermore, it is of course not money per se that he wants and demands, but money for its purchasing power, or real money—money money in some way expressed in terms of what it will purchase. This purchasing power of money, as we shall see, cannot be measured. More money does him no good if its purchasing power for goods is correspondingly diluted. E, the PPM and the rate of interest. We have been discussing money and shall continue to do so in the current section by comparing equilibrium positions and not yet by tracing step by step how the change from one position to another comes about. We shall soon see that in the case of the price of money, as contrasted with all other prices, the very path toward equilibrium necessarily introduces changes that will change the equilibrium point. This will have important theoretical consequences. We may still talk, however, as if money is neutral—that is, does not lead to such changes. Because this assumption is perfectly competent to deal with the problems analyzed so far, 
This is true in essence because we are able to use a general concept of the purchasing power of money without trying to define it concretely in terms of specific arrays of goods. Since the concept of the PPM is relevant and important, even though its specific content changes and cannot be measured, we are justified in assuming that money is neutral as long as we do not need a more precise concept of the PPM. We have seen how changes in the money relation change the PPM. In the determination of the interest rate, we must now modify our earlier discussion in Chapter 6 to take account of allocating one's money stock by adding to or subtracting from one's cash balance. A man may allocate his money to consumption, investment, or addition to his cash balance. His time preferences govern the proportion which an individual devotes to present and to future goods, that is, to consumption and to investment. Now suppose a man's demand for money schedule increases, and he therefore decides to allocate a proportion of his money income to increasing his cash balance. There is no reason to suppose that this increase affects the consumption-investment proportion at all. It could, but if so, it would mean a change in his time preference schedule as well as in his demand for money. If the demand for money increases, there is no reason why a change in the demand for money should affect the interest rate one iota. There is no necessity at all for an increase in the demand for money to raise the interest rate, or a decline to lower it, no more than the opposite. In fact, there is no causal connection between the two. One is determined by the valuations for money, and the other by valuations for time preference. Let us return to the section in Chapter 6 on time preference and the individual's money stock. Did we not see there that an increase in an individual's money stock lowers the effective time preference rate along the time preference schedule, and conversely, that a decrease raises the time preference rate? Why does this not apply here? simply because we were dealing with each individual's money stock and assuming that the real exchange value of each unit of money remained the same. His time preference schedule relates to real monetary units, not simply to money itself. If the social stock of money changes, or if the demand for money changes, the objective exchange value of a monetary unit, the PPM, will change also. If the PPM falls, then more money in the hands of an individual may not necessarily lower the time preference rate on his schedule, for the more money may only just compensate him for the fall in the PPM and his real money stock may therefore be the same as before. This again demonstrates that the money relation is neutral to time preference and the pure rate of interest.
An increased demand for money, then, tends to lower prices all around without changing time preference or the pure rate of interest. Thus, suppose total social income is 100, with 70 allocated to investment and 30 to consumption. The demand for money increases, so that people decide to hoard a total of 20. Expenditure will now be 80 instead of 100, 20 being added to cash balances. Income in the next period will be only 80, since expenditures in one period result in the identical income to be allocated to the next period. Since no one can receive a money income unless someone else makes a money expenditure on his services, if time preferences remain the same, then the proportion of investment to consumption in the society will remain roughly the same that is, 56 invested and 24 consumed. Prices and nominal money values and incomes fall all along the line, and we are left with the same capital structure, the same real income, the same interest rate, etc. The only things that have changed are nominal prices, which have fallen, and the proportion of total cash balances to money income, which has increased. A decreased demand for money will have the reverse effect. Dishoarding will raise expenditure, raise prices, and, ceteris paribus, maintain the real income and capital structure intact. The only other change is a lower proportion of cash balances to money income. The only necessary result, then, of a change in the demand for money schedule is precisely a change in the same direction of the proportion of total cash balances to total money income and in the real value of cash balances. Given the stock of money, an increased scramble for cash will simply lower money incomes until the desired increase in real cash balances has been attained. If the demand for money falls, the reverse movement occurs. The desire to reduce cash balances causes an increase in money income. Total cash remains the same, but its proportion to incomes, as well as its real value, declines. Strictly, the ceteris paribus condition will tend to be violated. An increased demand for money tends to lower money prices, and will therefore lower money costs of gold mining. This will stimulate gold mining production until the interest return on mining is again the same as in other industries. Thus, the increased demand for money will also call forth new money to meet the demand. A decreased demand for money will raise money costs of gold mining and at least lower the rate of new production, it will not actually decrease the total money stock unless the new production rate falls below the wear and tear rate. F. Hoarding and the Keynesian System 1. Social Income, Expenditures, and Unemployment To the great bulk of writers, hoarding, 
an increase in the demand for money, has appeared an unmitigated catastrophe. The very word hoarding is a most inappropriate one to use in economics, since it is laden with connotations of vicious antisocial action. But there is nothing at all antisocial about either hoarding or dishoarding. Hoarding is simply an increase in the demand for money, and the result of this change in valuations is that people get what they desire, that is, an increase in the real value of their cash balances and of the monetary unit. Conversely, if the people desire a lowering of their real cash balances, or in the value of the monetary unit, they may accomplish this through dishoarding. No other significant economic relation, real income, capital structure, etc., need be changed at all. The process of hoarding and dishoarding, then, simply means that people want something, either an increase or a decrease in their real cash balances or in the real value of the monetary unit, and that they are able to obtain this result. What is wrong with that? We see here simply another manifestation of consumers' or individuals' sovereignty on the free market. Furthermore, there is no theoretical way of defining hoarding beyond a simple addition to one's cash balance in a certain period of time. Yet most writers use the term in a normative fashion, implying that there is some vague standard below which a cash balance is legitimate and above which it is antisocial and vicious. But any quantitative limit set on the demand for money schedule would be completely arbitrary and unwarranted. One of the two major pillars of the Keynesian system, now happily beginning to wane after sweeping the economic world in the 1930s and 1940s, is the proclamation that savings become equal to investment only through the terrible route of a decline in social income. The term generally used is national income, However, in a free market economy, the nation will no more be an important economic boundary than the village or region. It is more convenient, then, to set aside regional problems for other analysis and to concentrate on aggregate social income. This is especially true since regions do not present a problem to economic theory until their governments begin intervening in the free market. The implicit foundation of Keynesianism is the assertion that at a certain level of total social income, total social expenditures out of this income will be lower than income, the remainder going into hordes. This will lower total social income in the next period of time, since, as we have seen, total income in one day equals and is determined by total expenditures in the previous day. The Keynesian consumption function plays its part in establishing an alleged law that there exists a certain level of total income, say, A, above which expenditures will be less than income, 
net hoarding, and below which expenditures will be greater than income, net dishoarding. But the basic Keynesian worry is hoarding, when total income must decline. We shall investigate the validity of this alleged law and the consumption function on which it rests, but suppose that we now grant the validity of such a law. The only comment can be an impertinent, so what? What if there is a fall in the national income? Since the fall need only be in money terms, and real income, real capital, etc., may remain the same, why any alarm? The only change is that the hoarders have accomplished their objective of increasing their real cash balances and increasing the real value of the monetary unit. It is true that the picture is rather more complex for the transition process until equilibrium is reached, and this will be treated further, although our final conclusion will be the same. But the Keynesian system attempts to establish the perniciousness of the equilibrium position, and this it cannot do. Therefore, the elaborate attempts of the Keynesians to demonstrate that free market expenditures will be limited, that consumption is limited by the function, and investment by stagnation of opportunities and liquidity preference, are futile, for even if they were correct, which they are not, the result would be pointless. There is nothing wrong with hoarding or dishoarding, or with low or high levels, whatever that may mean, of social money income. The Keynesian attempt to salvage meaning for their doctrine rests on one point and one point alone, the second major pillar of their system. This is the thesis that money, social income, and level of employment are correlated, and that the latter is a function of the former. This assumes that a certain full employment level of social income exists, below which there is correspondingly greater unemployment. The nub of the Keynesian critique of the free market economy, then, rests on the involuntary unemployment allegedly caused by too low a level of social expenditures and income. But how can this be, since we have previously explained that there can be no involuntary unemployment in a free market? The answer has become evident, and is admitted in the most intelligent of the Keynesian writings. The Keynesian underemployment equilibrium occurs only if money wage rates are rigid downward. That is, if the supply of labor below full employment is infinitely elastic. Thus, suppose there is a hoarding, an increased demand for money, and social income falls. The result is a fall in the monetary demand for labor factors, as well as in all other monetary demand. Since only money wage rates are being changed, while real wage rates, in terms of purchasing power, remain the same, there will be no shift in labor-leisure preferences, and the total stock of labor offered on the market will remain constant. At any rate, certainly no involuntary unemployment will arise. 
How, then, can the Keynesian case arise? In only two ways. One, if people voluntarily agree with the unions, which insist that no one be employed at lower than the old money wage rate. Since selling prices are falling, maintaining the old money wage rate is equivalent to demanding a higher real wage rate. We have seen that the union's raising of real wage rates causes unemployment. But this unemployment is voluntary, since the workers acquiesce in the imposition of a higher minimum real wage rate, below which they will not undercut the union and accept employment. Or, two, unions or government coercively impose the minimum wage rate. But this is an example of a hampered market, not the free market to which we are confining our analysis here. Keynes' own exposition tended to run in terms of real rather than money magnitudes, real social income, real expenditures, etc. Such an analysis obscures dynamic considerations, since transactions take place at least superficially in monetary terms on the market. However, the essential conclusion of our analysis remains unchanged if we pursue it directly in real terms. Instead of falling, demand in real terms will now remain the same. This is true for the labor market as well. The sum and substance of the Keynesian revolution was the thesis that there can be an unemployment equilibrium on the free market. As we have seen, the only sense in which this is true was known years before Keynes. That widespread union maintenance of excessively high wage rates will cause unemployment. Keynes believed that while other elements of the economic system, including prices, were set basically in real terms, workers bargained even ultimately only in terms of money wages that unions insisted on minimum money wage rates downward, but would passively accept falling real wages in the form of rising prices, money wage rates remaining the same. The Keynesian prescription for eliminating unemployment, therefore, rests specifically on the money illusion that unions will impose minimum money wage rates but are too stupid to impose minimum real wage rates per se. Unions, however, have learned about purchasing power problems and the distinction between money and real rates. Indeed, it hardly requires much reasoning ability to grasp this distinction. Ironically, Keynes' advocacy of inflation based on the money illusion rested on the historical experience that, during an inflation, selling prices rise faster than wage rates. Yet an economy in which unions impose minimum wage rates is precisely an economy in which unions will be alive to any losses in their real as well as their money wages. Inflation, therefore, cannot be used as a means of duping unions into relieving unemployment. Furthermore, inflation is, at best, an inefficient and distortive substitute for flexible wage rates, 
for inflation affects the entire economy and its prices, while particular wage rates will fall only to the extent necessary to clear the market for the particular labor factor. Thus, freely flexible wage rates will fall only in those fields necessary to eliminate unemployment in those particular areas. Keynesianism has been touted as at least a practical system. Whatever its theoretical defects, it is alleged to be fit for the modern world of unionism. Yet it is precisely in the modern world that Keynes' doctrine is least appropriate or practical. The Keynesians object that to allow rigid money wage rates to become flexible downward would further lower monetary demand for goods and therefore monetary income. But this completely confuses wage rates with aggregate payroll or total income going to wages. That the former falls does not mean that the latter falls. On the contrary, total income is, as we have seen, determined by total expenditures in the previous period of time. Lower wage rates will cause the hiring of those made unemployed by the old, excessively high wage rates. The fact that labor is now cheaper relatively to land factors will cause investors to expend a greater proportion on labor vis-à-vis -vis land than before, and the employment of unemployed labor increases production and therefore aggregate real income. Furthermore, even if payrolls also decline, prices and wage rates can adjust, but this will be taken up in the next section on liquidity preference. 2. Liquidity Preference Those Keynesians who recognize the grave difficulties of their system fall back on one last string in their bow, liquidity preference. Intelligent Keynesians will concede that involuntary unemployment is a special or rare case, and Lindahl goes even further to say that it could be only a short-run and not a long-run equilibrium phenomenon. Neither Franco Modigliani nor Eric Lindahl, however, is thoroughgoing enough in his critique of the Keynesian system, particularly of the liquidity preference doctrine. The Keynesian system, as is quite clear from the mathematical portrayals of it given it by its followers, suffers grievously from the mathematical economic sin of mutual determination. The use of mathematical functions, which are reversible at will, is appropriate in physics, where we do not know the causes of the observed movements. Since we do not know the causes, any mathematical law explaining or describing movements will be reversible, and as far as we are concerned, any of the variables in the function is just as much cause as another. In praxeology, the science of human action, however, we know the original cause, motivated action by individuals. This knowledge provides us with true axioms. From these axioms, true laws are deduced. They are deduced step by step in a logical cause-and-effect relationship. 
Since first causes are known, their consequent effects are also known. Economics, therefore, traces unilinear cause-and-effect relations, not vague mutually determining relations. This methodological reminder is singularly applicable to the Keynesian theory of interest, for the Keynesians consider the rate of interest, A, as determining investment, and B, as being determined by the demand for money to hold for speculative purposes, liquidity preference. In practice, however, they treat the latter not as determining the rate of interest, but as being determined by it. The methodology of mutual determination has completely obscured this sleight of hand. Keynesians might object that all demand and supply is mutually determined in its relation to price. But this facile assertion is not correct. Demand is determined by utility scales, and supply by speculation and the stock produced by given labor and land factors, which is ultimately governed by time preferences. The Keynesians therefore treat the rate of interest not as they believe they do, as determined by liquidity preference, but rather as some sort of mysterious and unexplained force imposing itself on the other elements of the economic system. Thus, Keynesian discussion of liquidity preference centers around inducement to hold cash as the rate of interest rises or falls. According to the theory of liquidity preference, a fall in the rate of interest increases the quantity of cash demanded for speculative purposes, liquidity preferences, and a rise in the rate of interest lowers liquidity preference. The first error in this concept is the arbitrary separation of the demand for money into two separate parts— a transaction's demand, supposedly determined by the size of social income, and a speculative demand, determined by the rate of interest. We have seen that all sorts of influences impinge themselves on the demand for money, but they are only influences working through the value scales of individuals. And there is only one final demand for money, because each individual has only one value scale. There is no way by which we can split the demand up into two parts and speak of them as independent entities. Furthermore, there are far more than two influences on demand. In the final analysis, the demand for money, like all utilities, cannot be reduced to simple determinants. It is the outcome of free, independent decisions on individual value scales. There is, therefore, no transaction demand uniquely determined by the size of income. The speculative demand is mysterious indeed. Modigliani explains this liquidity preference as follows. We should expect that any fall in the rate of interest would induce a growing number of potential investors to keep their assets in the form of money, rather than securities. That is to say, we should expect a fall in the rate of interest to increase the demand for money as an asset. 
This is subject to the criticism, as we have seen, that the rate of interest is here determining and is not itself explained by any cause. Furthermore, what does this statement mean? A fall in the rate of interest, according to the Keynesians, means that less interest is being earned from bonds, and therefore there is a greater inducement to hold cash. This is correct, as long as we allow ourselves to think in terms of the interest rate as determining instead of being determined, but highly inadequate. For if a lower interest rate induces greater cash holdings, it also induces greater consumption, since consumption also becomes more attractive. In fact, one of the grave defects of the liquidity preference approach is that the Keynesians never think in terms of three margins being decided at once. They think only in terms of two at a time. Hence Modigliani. Having made his consumption-saving plan, the individual has to make decisions concerning the assets he owns. That is, he then allocates them between money and securities. In other words, people first decide between consumption and saving, in the sense of not consuming, and then they decide between investing and hoarding these savings. But this is an absurdly artificial construction. People decide on all three of their alternatives, weighing one against each of the others. To say that people first decide between consuming and not consuming, and then choose between hoarding and investing, is just as misleading as to say that people first choose how much to hoard, and then decide between consumption and investment. People, therefore, allocate their money among consumption, investment, and hoarding. The proportion between consumption and investment reflects individual time preferences. Consumption reflects desires for present goods, and investment reflects desires for future goods. An increase in the demand for money schedule does not affect the rate of interest if the proportion between consumption and investment, that is, time preference, remains the same. The rate of interest, we must reiterate, is determined by time preferences, which also determine the proportions of consumption and investment. To think of the rate of interest as inducing more or less saving or hoarding is to misunderstand the problem completely. Admitting, then, that time preference determines the proportions of consumption and investment, and that the demand for money determines the proportion of income hoarded, does the demand for money play a role in determining the interest rate? The Keynesians assert that there is a relation between the rate of interest and a speculative demand for cash. Should the schedule of the latter rise, the former rises also. But this is not necessarily true. A greater proportion of funds hoarded can be drawn from three alternative sources. A. From funds that formerly went into consumption b. from funds that went into investment, 
and C, from a mixture of both that leaves the old consumption investment proportion unchanged. Condition A will bring about a fall in the rate of interest. Condition B, a rise in the rate of interest. And Condition C will leave the rate of interest unchanged. Thus, hoarding may reflect either a rise, a fall, or no change in the rate of interest, depending on whether time preferences have concomitantly risen, fallen, or remained the same. The Keynesians contend that the speculative demand for cash depends upon and determines the rate of interest in this way. If people expect that the rate of interest will rise in the near future, then their liquidity preference increases to await this rise. This, however, can hardly be a part of a long-run equilibrium theory, such as Keynes is trying to establish. Speculation, by its very nature, disappears in the ERE, and hence no fundamental causal theory can be based upon it. Furthermore, what is an interest rate? One grave and fundamental Keynesian error is to persist in regarding the interest rate as a contract rate on loans, instead of the price spreads between stages of production. The former, as we have seen, is only the reflection of the latter. A strong expectation of a rapid rise in interest rate means a strong expectation of an increase in the price spreads, or rate of net return. A fall in prices means that entrepreneurs generally expect that factor prices will fall further in the near future than their selling prices. But it requires no Keynesian labyrinth to explain this phenomenon. All we are confronted with is a situation in which entrepreneurs, expecting that factor prices will soon fall, cease investing and wait for this happy event, so that their return will be greater. This is not liquidity preference, but speculation on price changes. It involves a modification of our previous discussion of the relation between prices and the demand for money, caused by a fact that we shall explore soon in detail, namely that prices do not change equally and proportionately. The expectation of falling factor prices speeds up the movement toward equilibrium, and hence toward the pure interest relation as determined by time preference. W. H. Hutt concludes that equilibrium is secured when all services and products are so priced that they are, one, brought within the reach of people's pockets, that is, so that they are purchasable by existing money incomes, or, two, brought into such a relation to predicted prices that no postponement of expenditure on them is induced. For instance, the products and services used in the manufacture of investment goods must be so priced that anticipated future money incomes will be able to buy the services and depreciation of new equipment or replacement. If, for example, unions keep wage rates artificially high, hoarding will increase 
as unions keep wage rates ever higher than the equilibrium rate at which full employment can be maintained. This induced hoarding lowers the money demand for factors and increases unemployment still further, but only because of wage rate rigidity. As Hutt puts it, postponements in purchases arise because it is judged that a cut in costs or other prices is less than will eventually have to take place, or because the rate of fall of costs is insufficiently rapid. The final Keynesian bogey is that people may acquire an unlimited demand for money, so that hoards will indefinitely increase. This is termed an infinite liquidity preference, and this is the only case in which neo-Keynesians such as Modigliani believe that involuntary unemployment can be compatible with price and wage freedom. The Keynesian worry is that people will hoard instead of buying bonds for fear of a fall in the price of securities. Translating this into more important natural terms, this would mean, as we have stated, not investing because of expectation of imminent increases in the natural interest rate. Rather than act as a blockade, however, this expectation speeds the ensuing adjustment. Furthermore, the demand for money could not be infinite, since people must always continue consuming whatever their expectations. Of necessity, therefore, the demand for money could never be infinite. The existing level of consumption, in turn, will require a certain level of investment. As long as productive activities are continuing, there is no need or possibility of lasting unemployment, regardless of the degree of hoarding. As Hutt points out, if we can conceive of a situation of infinitely elastic liquidity preference, and no such situation has ever existed, then we can conceive of prices falling rapidly, keeping pace with expectations of price changes, but never reaching zero, with full utilization of resources persisting all the way. A demand for money to hold stems from the general uncertainty of the market. Keynesians, however, attribute liquidity preference not to general uncertainty, but to the specific uncertainty of future bond prices. Surely this is a highly superficial and limiting view. In the first place, this cause of liquidity preference could occur only on a highly imperfect securities market. As Ludwig Lachmann pointed out years ago in a neglected article, Keynes' causal pattern, bearishness causing liquidity preference, demand for cash, and high interest rates, could take place only in the absence of an organized forward or futures market for securities. If such a market existed, both bears and bulls on the bond market could express their expectations by forward transactions which do not require any cash. Where the market for securities is fully organized over time, the owner of 4% bonds who fears a rise in the rate of interest has no incentive to exchange them for cash 
for he can always hedge by selling them forward. Bearishness would cause a fall in forward bond prices, followed immediately by a fall in spot prices. Thus, speculative bearishness would, of course, cause at least a temporary rise in the rate of interest, but accompanied by no increase in the demand for cash. Hence, any attempted connection between liquidity preference or demand for cash and the rate of interest falls to the ground. The fact that such a securities market has not been organized indicates that traders are not nearly as worried about rising interest rates as Keynes believes. If they were, and this fear loomed as an important phenomenon, then surely a futures market would have developed in securities. Furthermore, as we have seen, interest rates on loans are merely a reflection of price spreads, so that a prediction of higher interest rates really means the expectation of lower prices, and especially lower costs, resulting in a greater demand for money. And all speculation on the free market is self-correcting and speeds adjustment rather than a cause of economic trouble. G. The Purchasing Power and Terms of Trade Components in the Rate of Interest Many economists, beginning with Irving Fisher, have asserted that the market rate of interest, in addition to containing specific entrepreneurial components superimposed on the pure rate of interest, also contains a price or a purchasing power component. When the purchasing power of money is generally expected to rise, the theory asserts that the market rate of interest falls correspondingly. When the PPM is expected to fall, the theory declares that the market rate of interest rises correspondingly. These economists erred by concentrating on the loan rate rather than on the natural rate, the rate of return. The reasoning behind this theory was as follows. If the purchasing power of money is expected to change, then the pure rate of interest, determined by time preference, will no longer be the same in real terms. Suppose that 100 gold ounces exchange for 105 gold ounces a year from now, that is, that the rate of interest is 5%. Now, suddenly, let there be a general expectation that the purchasing power of money will increase. In that case, a lower amount to be returned, say 102 ounces, may yield 5% real interest in terms of purchasing power. A general expectation of a rise in purchasing power, therefore, will lower the market rate of interest at present, while a general expectation of a fall in purchasing power will raise the rate. There is a fatal defect in this generally accepted line of reasoning. Suppose, for example, that prices are generally expected to fall by 50% in the next year. Would someone lend 100 gold ounces to exchange for 53 ounces one year from now? Why not? This would certainly preserve the real interest rate at 5%, 
But then, why should the would-be lenders not simply hold on to their money and double their real assets as a result of the price fall? And that is precisely what they would do. They certainly would not give money away, even though their real assets would be greater than before. Fisher simply shrugged off this point by saying that the purchasing power premium could never make the interest rate negative. But this flaw vitiates the entire theory. The root of the difficulty consists in ignoring the natural rate of interest. Let us consider the interest rate in those terms. Then suppose 100 ounces are paid for factors that will be transformed in one year into a product that sells for 105 gold ounces for an interest gain of 5 and an interest return of 5%. Now a general expectation arises of a general halving of prices one year from now. The selling price of the product will be 53 ounces in a year's time. What happens now? Will entrepreneurs buy factors for 100 and sell at 53 merely because their real interest rate is preserved? Certainly not. They will do so only if they do not at all anticipate the change in purchasing power. But to the extent that it is anticipated, they will hold money rather than buy factors. This will immediately lower factor prices to their expected future levels, say from 100 to 50. What happens to the loan rate is analytically quite trivial. It is simply a reflection of the natural rate and depends on how the expectations and judgment of the people on the loan market compare with those on the stock and other markets. For the free economy, there is no point in separately analyzing the loan market. Analysis of the Fisher problem, the relation of the interest rate to price changes, should concentrate on the natural rate of interest. Discussion of the relation between price movements and the natural rate of interest should be divided into two parts. First, assuming neutral money, that all prices change equally and at the same time. And second, analyzing conditions where factor and product change at different rates. And these changes should first be analyzed without considering that they had been anticipated by people on the market. Suppose first that all prices change equally and at the same time. Instead of thinking in terms of 100 ounces borrowed on the loan market, let us consider the natural rate. An investor buys factors in period one and then sells the product, say, in period three. Time, as we have seen, is the essence of the production structure. All the processes take time, and capitalists pay money to owners of factors in advance of production and sale. Since factors are bought before products are sold, what is the effect of a period of rising general prices, that is, falling PPM? The result is that the entrepreneur reaps an apparent extra profit. Suppose that he normally purchases original factors for 100 and then sells the product for 120 ounces two years later, 
for an interest return of 10% per annum. Now suppose that a decrease in the demand for money, or an increase of money stock, propels a general upward movement in prices, and that all prices double in two years' time. Then, just because of the passage of time, an entrepreneur who purchases factors for 100 now will sell for 240 ounces in two years' time. Instead of a net return of 20 ounces, or 10% per annum, he reaps 140 ounces, or 70% per annum. It would seem that a rise in prices creates an inherent tendency for large-scale profits that are not simply individual rewards for more accurate forecasting. However, more careful analysis reveals that this is not an extra profit at all. For the 240 ounces two years from now is roughly equivalent in terms of purchasing power to 120 ounces now. The real rate of net return, based on money services, is the same 10% as it has always been. It is clear that any lower net return would amount to a decline in real return. A return of a mere 120 ounces, for example, would amount to a drastic negative real return, for 100 ounces would then be invested for the equivalent gross return of only 60 ounces. It has often been shown that a period of rising prices misleads businessmen into thinking that their increased money profits are also real gains, whereas they only maintain real rates of return. Consider, for example, replacement costs, the prices which the businessmen will now have to pay for factors. The capitalist who earns 240 ounces on a 100-ounce investment neglects to his sorrow the fact that his factor bundle now costs 200 ounces instead of 100. Businessmen who, under such circumstances, treat their monetary profits as real profits and consume them soon find that they are really consuming their capital. The converse occurs in the case of falling prices. The capitalist buys factors in period one and sells the product in period three, when all-around prices are lower. If prices are to fall by a half in two years, an investment of 100, followed by a sale at 60, does not really involve the terrific loss that it appears to be for the 60 return is equivalent in real terms, both in generalized purchasing power and in replacement of factors, to 120 previous ounces. His real rate of return remains the same. The consequence is that businessmen will be likely to overstate their losses in a period of price contraction. Perhaps this is one of the major reasons for the deep-seated belief of most businessmen that they always gain during a general price expansion and lose during a period of general contraction. This belief is purely illusory. In these examples, the natural interest rate on the market has contained a purchasing power component, which corrects for real rates 
positively in money terms during a general expansion and negatively during a general contraction. The loan rate will be simply a reflection of what has been happening in the natural rate. So far, the discussion is similar to Fisher's, except that these are the effects of actual, not anticipated, changes, and the Fisher thesis cannot take account of the negative interest rate case. We have seen that rather than take a monetary loss, even though their real return will be the same, entrepreneurs will hold back their purchases of factors until factor prices fall immediately to their future low level. But this process of anticipatory price movement does not occur only in the extreme case of a prospective negative return. It happens whenever a price change is anticipated. Thus, suppose all entrepreneurs generally anticipate that prices will double in two years. The fact of an anticipated rise will lead to an increase in the price level now and an approach immediately toward a doubled price level. An anticipated fall will lead to an immediate fall in factor prices. If all changes were anticipated by everyone, there would be no room for a purchasing power component to develop. Prices would simply fall immediately to their future level. The purchasing power component, then, is not the reflection, as has been thought, of expectations of changes in purchasing power. It is the reflection of the change itself. Indeed, if the change were completely anticipated, the purchasing power would change immediately, and there would be no room for a purchasing power component in the rate of interest. As it is, partial anticipations speed up the adjustment of the PPM to the changed conditions. So far, we have distinguished three components of the natural rate of interest, all reflected in the loan rate of interest. One is the pure rate of interest, the result of individual time preferences tending to be uniform throughout the economy. Second are the specific entrepreneurial rates of interest. These differ from firm to firm and so are not uniform. They are anticipated in advance, and they are the rates that an investor will have to anticipate receiving before he enters the field. A particularly risky venture, if successful at all, will therefore tend to earn more in net return than what is generally anticipated to be a safe venture. The third component of the natural rate of interest is the purchasing power component correcting for general PPM changes because of the inevitable time lags in production. This will be positive in an expansion and negative in a contraction, but will be ephemeral. The more that changes in the PPM are anticipated, the less important will be the purchasing power component, and the more rapid will be the adjustment in the PPM itself. There is still a fourth component in the natural rate of interest. This exists to the extent that money changes are not neutral, and they never are. Sometimes product prices rise and fall faster than factor prices. 
Sometimes they rise and fall more slowly, and sometimes their behavior is mixed, with some factor prices and some product prices rising more rapidly. Whenever there is a general divergence in rates of movement between the prices of the product and of original factors, a terms-of-trade component emerges in the natural rate of interest. Historically, it has often been the case that product prices rise more rapidly and fall more rapidly than the prices of original factors. In the former case, there is, during the period of transition, a favorable change in the terms of trade to the general run of capitalists. For selling prices are increasing faster than the buying prices of original factors. This will increase the general rate of return and constitute a general positive terms of trade component in the natural rate of interest. This, of course, will also tend to be reflected in the loan rate of interest. In the case of a contraction, a more sluggish fall in the prices of factors creates a general negative terms of trade component in the interest rate. The components are precisely the reverse whenever factor prices change more rapidly than product prices. Whenever there is no general change in the terms of trade to capitalist entrepreneurs, no terms of trade component will appear in the interest rate. Changes in terms of trade discussed here are only those resulting purely from differences in the speed of reaction to changing conditions. They do not include basic changes in the terms of trade resulting from changes in time preferences, such as we have discussed previously. It is clear that all the interest rate components, aside from the pure rate, entrepreneurial, purchasing power, and terms of trade, are dynamic and the result of uncertainty. None of these components would exist in the ERE, and therefore the market interest rate in the ERE would equal the pure rate determined by time preferences alone. In the ERE, the only net incomes would be a uniform pure interest return and wages to labor, ground land rents being capitalized into an interest return. 6. The Supply of Money A. The Stock of the Money Commodity The total stock of money in a society is the total number of ounces of the money commodity available. Throughout this volume, we have deliberately used gold ounces instead of dollars or any other name for money, precisely because on the free market, the latter would only be a confusing term for units of weight of gold or silver. The total stock from one period to another will increase from new production and decrease from being used up, either in industrial production as a non-monetary factor or from the wear and tear of coins. Since one of the qualities of the money commodity is its durability, the usual tendency is a long-run increase in the money supply and a resulting gradual long-run decline in the PPM. 
This furthers social utility only insofar as more gold or silver is made available for non-monetary purposes. We saw in Chapter 3 that the physical form of the monetary commodity makes no difference. It can be in non-monetary use as jewelry, in the form of bars of bullion, or in the form of coins. On the free market, transforming gold from one shape to another would be a business, like any other business, charging a market price for its service and earning a pure interest return in the ERE. Since gold begins as bullion and ends as coin, it would seem that the latter would command a small premium over the equivalent weight of the former, the bullion often being a capital good for coin. Sometimes, however, coins are remelted back into bullion for larger transactions, so that a premium for coin over bullion is not a certainty. If, as generally happens, minting coins costs more than melting, coins will command the equivalent premium over bullion. This premium is called brassage. It is impossible for economics to predict the details of the structure of any market. The market for privately issued gold bars or coins might develop as homogeneous, like the market for wheat, or the coins might be stamped and branded by the coin makers to certify to the quality of their product. Probably the public would buy only branded coins to ensure accurate quality. One argument against permitting free private coinage is that compulsory standardization of the denominations of coins is more convenient than the diversity of coins that would ensue under a free system. But if the market finds it more convenient, private mints will be led by consumer demand to mint certain standard denominations. On the other hand, if greater variety is preferred, consumers will demand and obtain a more varied number of coins. B. Claims to Money The Money Warehouse Chapter 2 described the difference between claims to present goods and claims to future goods. The same analysis applies to money as to barter. A claim to future money is a bill of exchange, an evidence of a credit transaction. The holder of the bill, the creditor, redeems it at the date of redemption in exchange for money paid by the debtor. A claim to present money, however, is a completely different good. It is not the evidence of an uncompleted transaction, an exchange of a present for a future good, as is the bill. It is a simple evidence of ownership of a present good. It is not uncompleted or an exchange on the time market. Therefore, to present this evidence for redemption is not the completion of a transaction or equivalent to a creditor's calling his loan. It is a simple repossessing of a man's own good. In Chapter 2, we gave as examples of a claim to present goods warehouse receipts and shares of stock. Shares of stock, however, cannot be redeemed in parts of a company's fixed assets because of the rules of ownership that the companies themselves set up in their cooperative venture. 
Furthermore, there is no guarantee that such assets will have a fixed money value. We shall therefore confine ourselves to warehouse receipts, which are also more relevant to the supply of money. When a man deposits goods at a warehouse, he is given a receipt and pays the owner of the warehouse a certain sum for the service of storage. He still retains ownership of the property. The owner of the warehouse is simply guarding it for him. When the warehouse receipt is presented, the owner is obligated to restore the good deposited. A warehouse specializing in money is known as a bank. Claims to goods are often treated on the market as equivalent to the goods themselves. If no fraud or theft is suspected, then evidence of ownership of a good in a warehouse is considered as equivalent to the good itself. In many cases, individuals will find it advantageous to exchange the claims or evidences, the goods substitutes, rather than the goods themselves. Paper is more convenient to transfer from person to person, and the expense of moving the goods is eliminated. When Jones sells Smith his wheat, therefore, instead of moving the wheat from one place to another, they may well agree simply to transfer the warehouse receipt itself from Jones to Smith. The goods remain in the same warehouse until Smith needs them, or until the receipt is transferred to someone else. Of course, Smith may prefer, for one reason or another, to keep the goods in his own warehouse, in which case they are moved from one to the other. Let us take the case of a warehouse owned by the Trustee Warehouse Company. It holds various goods in its vaults for safekeeping. Suppose that this company has developed a reputation for being very reliable and theft-free. Consequently, people tend to leave their goods in the trustee warehouse for a considerable length of time, and in the case of goods that they do not use frequently, will even tend to transfer the goods certificates, the warehouse receipts or evidences of ownership of the goods, and not redeem the goods themselves. Thus, the goods certificates act as goods substitutes in exchange. Suppose that the trustee company sees this happening. It realizes that a good opportunity for fraud presents itself. It can take the depositor's goods, the goods that it holds for safekeeping, and lend them out to people on the market. It can earn interest on these loans, and as long as only a small percentage of depositors ask to redeem their certificates at any one time, no one is the wiser. Or, alternatively, it can issue pseudo-warehouse receipts for goods that are not there, and lend these on the market. This is the more subtle practice. The pseudo-receipts will be exchanged on the market on the same basis as the true receipts, since there is no indication on their face whether they are legitimate or not. It should be clear that this practice is outright fraud. Someone else's property is taken by the warehouse and used for its own money-making purposes. It is not borrowed, since no interest is paid for the use of the money, or if spurious warehouse receipts are printed, evidences of goods are issued and sold or loaned without any such goods being in existence.
Money is the good most susceptible to these practices. For money, as we have seen, is generally not used directly at all, but only for exchanges. It is, furthermore, a widely homogeneous good, and therefore one ounce of gold is interchangeable with any other. Since it is convenient to transfer paper in exchange rather than carry gold, money warehouses, or banks, that build up public confidence will find that few people redeem their certificates. The banks will be particularly subject to the temptation to commit fraud and issue pseudo-money certificates to circulate side-by-side with genuine money certificates as acceptable money substitutes. The fact that money is a homogeneous good means that people do not care whether the money they redeem is the original money they deposited. This makes bank frauds easier to accomplish. Fraud is a harsh term, but an accurate one to describe this practice, even if not recognized as such in the law or by those committing it. It is, in fact, difficult to see the economic or moral difference between the issuance of pseudo-receipts and the appropriation of someone else's property or outright embezzlement, or, more directly, counterfeiting. Most present legal systems do not outlaw this practice. In fact, it is considered basic banking procedure. Yet the libertarian law of the free market would have to prohibit it. The purely free market is, by definition, one where theft and fraud, implicit theft, are illegal and do not exist. To part with goods or money held in trust, or to issue spurious warehouse receipts, is of course a dangerous business, even when the law permits it. If the warehouse once failed to meet its contractual obligations, its fraud would be discovered and a general panic run on the warehouse or bank would ensue. It would then be quickly plunged into bankruptcy. Such a bankruptcy, however, would not be similar to the failure of an ordinary speculative business enterprise. It is rather similar to the absconder who gets caught before he has returned the funds he has borrowed. Even if the receipt does not say on its face that the warehouse guarantees to keep it in its vaults, such an agreement is implicit in the very issuance of the receipt. For it is obvious that if any pseudo-receipts are issued, it immediately becomes impossible for the bank to redeem all of them, and therefore fraud is immediately being committed. If a bank has 20 pounds of gold in its vaults, owned by depositors, and gold certificates redeemable on demand for 30 pounds, then notes to the value of 10 pounds are fraudulent. Which particular receipts are fraudulent can be determined only after a run on the bank has occurred and the later claimants are left unsatisfied. In a purely free market where fraud cannot, by definition, occur, all bank receipts will be genuine, that is, will represent only actual gold or silver in the vaults. In that case, all the bank's money substitutes, warehouse receipts, will also be money certificates, that is, each receipt genuinely certifies the actual existence of the money in its vaults. 
The amount of gold kept in bank vaults for redemption purposes is called its reserves, and the policy of issuing only genuine receipts is therefore a policy of 100% reserves of cash to demand liabilities, liabilities that must be paid on demand. Time deposits are legally future claims, since banks have a legal right to delay payment 30 days. Moreover, they do not pass as final media of exchange. The latter fact is not determining, however, since a secure claim to a money substitute is itself part of the money supply. Idle cash balances are kept as time deposits, just as gold bullion is a more idle form of money than coins. The deciding factor, perhaps, is that the 30-day limit is virtually a dead letter, for if a savings bank should impose it, a bankrupting run on the bank would ensue. Furthermore, actual payments are sometimes made by cashier's checks on time deposits. Thus, Time deposits now function as demand deposits and should be treated as part of the money supply. If banks wished to act as genuine savings banks, borrowing and lending credit, they could issue IOUs for specified lengths of time due at definite future dates. Then no confusion or possible counterfeiting could arise. However, the term reserve is a misleading one, because it assumes that the bank owns the gold and independently decides how much of it to keep on hand. Actually, it is not the bank that owns the gold, but its depositors. Such items as bills of lading, pawn tickets, and dock warrants have been warehouse receipts rooted in the specific objects deposited, in contrast to the loose, general deposits where a homogeneous good can be returned. An enormous literature has developed dealing with the physical form of the money receipts, and yet the physical form is of no economic importance. It may be in the form of a paper note, a token coin, essentially a note stamped on coin instead of paper, or a book credit, demand deposit, in the bank. The demand deposit is not tangibly held by the owner, but can be transferred to anyone he desires by written order to the bank. This order is called a check. The depositor has a choice of which form of receipt to take according to his convenience. Which form he chooses makes no economic difference. C. Money Substitutes and the Supply of Money Since money substitutes exchange as money on the market, we must consider them as part of the supply of money. It then becomes necessary to distinguish between money in the broader sense, the common medium of exchange, and money proper, Money proper is the ultimate medium of exchange, or standard money, here the money commodity, while the supply of money in a broader sense includes all the standard money plus the money substitutes that are held in individuals' cash balances. 
In the cases cited earlier, gold was the money proper, or standard money, while the receipts, the demand claims to gold, were the money substitutes. The relation between these elements may be illustrated as follows. Assume a community of three persons, A, B, C, and three money warehouses, X, Y, Z. Suppose that each person has 100 ounces of gold in his possession and none on deposit at a warehouse. For the community, then, the total supply of money proper equals 300 ounces, A's plus B's plus C's. The total supply of money substitutes equals zero ounces. So, the total supply of money in the broader sense equals 300 ounces. The total supply of money is here identical with the total supply of money proper. Now assume that A and B each deposits his 100 ounces of gold at warehouses X and Y respectively, while C keeps his gold on hand. The total supply of money is always equal to the total of individual cash balances. Its composition now is A. 100 ounces of X money substitute B. 100 ounces of Y money substitute C. 100 ounces of gold money proper Total supply of money in the broader sense equals total cash balances equals 200 ounces of money substitutes plus 100 ounces of money proper. The effect of the deposit of money proper in the warehouses or banks is to change the composition of the total supply of money in cash balances. The total amount, however, remains unchanged at 300 ounces. Money substitutes of various banks have replaced most of the standard money in individual cash holdings. Similarly, if A and B were to redeem their deposits, the total amount would remain unchanged, while the composition would revert to the original pattern. What of the 200 ounces of gold deposited in the vaults of the banks? These are no longer part of the money supply. They are held in reserve against the outstanding money substitutes. While in reserve, they form no part of any individual's cash balance. The cash balances consist not of the gold, but of evidences of ownership of the gold. Only the money proper outside of bank reserves forms part of individual's cash balances, and hence part of the community's supply of money. Thus, as long as all money substitutes are full money certificates, an increase or decrease in the money substitutes outstanding can have no effect on the total supply of money. Only the composition of that supply is affected, and such changes in composition are of no economic importance. However, when banks are legally permitted to abandon a 100% reserve and to issue pseudo-receipts, the economic effects are quite different. We may call the money substitutes that are not genuine money certificates uncovered money substitutes, since they do not genuinely represent money. 
The issue of uncovered money substitutes adds to individuals' cash balances and hence to the total supply of money. Uncovered money substitutes are not offset by new money deposits and so constitute net additions to the total supply. Any increase or decrease in the supply of uncovered money substitutes increases or decreases to the same extent the total supply of money in the broader sense. Thus, the total supply of money is composed of the following elements supply of money proper outside reserves, plus supply of money certificates, plus supply of uncovered money substitutes. The supply of money certificates has no effect on the size of the supply of money. An increase in this factor only decreases the size of the first factor. The supply of money proper and the factors determining its size have already been discussed. It depends on annual production compared to annual wear and tear, and thus on the unhampered market, the supply of money proper changes only slowly. As for uncovered money substitutes, since they are essentially a phenomenon of the hampered rather than the free market, Factors governing their supply will be further discussed in Chapter 12. In the meanwhile, however, let us analyze a little further the difference between a 100% reserve and a fractional reserve bank. The Star Bank, let us suppose, is a 100% reserve bank. It is established with 100 gold ounces of capital invested by its stockholders in building and equipment. In the familiar balance sheet, with assets on the left-hand side and liabilities and capital on the right-hand side, the condition of the bank now appears as follows. Star Bank, Assets, Equipment, 100 ounces. Liabilities, Capital, 100 ounces. The Star Bank is ready to begin operations. Several people now come and deposit gold in the bank, which in return issues warehouse receipts giving the depositors, the true owners of the gold, the right to redeem their property on demand at any time. Let us assume that after a few months, 5,000 gold ounces have been deposited and stored in the bank's vaults, its balance sheet now appears as follows. Star Bank Assets, Gold, 5,000 ounces, Equipment, 100 ounces, Total, 5,100 ounces, Liabilities, Warehouse Receipts, 5,000 ounces, Capital, 100 ounces, Total, 5,100 ounces. The warehouse receipts function and exchange as money substitutes, replacing, not adding to, the gold stored in the bank. All the warehouse receipts are money certificates, 100% reserve has been maintained, and no invasion of the free market has occurred. The warehouse receipts may take the form of printed tickets, notes, or book credit, demand deposits, transferable by written order or check. The two are economically identical.
But now suppose that law enforcement is lax, and the bank sees that it can make money easily by engaging in fraud, that is, by lending some of the depositors gold, or, rather, issuing pseudo-warehouse receipts for non-existent gold and lending them to people who wish to borrow it. We might ask why the owners of the bank do not really reap the spoils and lend the money to themselves. The answer is that they once did so profusely, as the history of early American banking shows. Legal regulations forced the banks to abandon this practice. Let us say that the Star Bank, chafing at the mere interest return earned on its fees for warehouse service, prints 1,000 ounces of pseudo-warehouse receipts and lends them on the credit market to businesses and consumers who desire to borrow money. The balance sheet of the Star Bank is now as follows. Star Bank Assets, Gold, 5,000 ounces. IOUs from debtors, 1,000 ounces. Equipment, 100 ounces. Total, 6,100 ounces. Liabilities, warehouse receipts, 6,000 ounces. Capital, 100 ounces. Total, 6,100 ounces. The warehouse receipts still function as money substitutes on the market, and we see that new money has been created by the bank out of thin air, as if by magic. This process of money creation has also been called the monetization of debt, an apt term since it describes the only instance where a liability can be transformed into money, the supreme asset. It is obvious that the more money the bank creates, the more profits it will earn, for any income earned on newly created money is a pure, unalloyed gain. The bank has been able to alter the conditions of the free market system, in which money can be obtained only by purchase, mining, or gift. In each of these routes, productive service, either one's own or one's ancestors or benefactors, was necessary in order to obtain money. The bank's inflationary intervention has created another route to money, the creation of new money out of thin air by issuing receipts for non-existent gold. This discussion is not meant to imply that bankers, particularly at the present time, are always knowingly engaged in fraudulent practices. So embedded, indeed, have these practices become, and always with the sanction of law, as well as of sophisticated but fallacious economic doctrines, that it is undoubtedly a rare banker who regards his standard occupational procedure as fraudulent. D. A note on some criticisms of 100% reserve. One popular criticism of 100% bank reserves charges that the bank could not then earn any income or cover costs of storage, printing, etc. On the contrary, a bank is perfectly capable of operating like any goods warehouse, that is, by charging its customers for its services to them and reaping the usual interest return on its operations. Another popular objection is that a 100% reserve policy would eliminate all credit. How would businessmen be able to borrow funds for short-term investment? 
The answer is that businessmen can still borrow saved funds from any individual or institution. Banks may still lend their own saved funds, capital stock, and accumulated surplus, or they may borrow funds from individuals and relend them to business firms, earning the interest differential. Swiss banks have successfully and for a long time been issuing debentures to the public at varying maturities, and banks in Belgium and Holland have recently followed suit. On the purely free market, such practices would undoubtedly be greatly extended. Borrowing money, for example, floating a bond, is a credit transaction. An individual exchanges his present money for a bond, a claim on future money. The borrowing bank pays him interest for this loan and, in turn, exchanges the money thus gathered for promises by business borrowers to pay money in the future. This is a further credit transaction, in this case the bank acting as the lender and businesses as the borrowers. The bank's income is the interest differential between the two types of credit transactions, the payment is for the services of the bank as an intermediary, channeling the savings of the public into investment. There is, furthermore, no particular reason why the short-term, more than any other credit market, should be subsidized by money creation. Finally, an important criticism of a governmentally enforced policy of 100% reserves is that this measure, though beneficial in itself, would establish a precedent for other governmental intervention in the monetary system, including a change in this very requirement by government edict. These critics advocate free banking, that is, no governmental interference with banking apart from enforcing payment of obligations, the banks to be permitted to engage in any fictitious issues they desire. Yet the free market does not mean freedom to commit fraud or any other form of theft. Quite the contrary. The criticism may be obviated by imposing a 100% reserve requirement not as an arbitrary administrative fiat of the government, but as part of the general legal defense of property against fraud. As Stanley Jevons stated, it used to be held as a general rule of law that any present grant or assignment of goods not in existence is without operation, and this general rule need only be revived and enforced to outlaw fictitious money substitutes. Then banking could be left perfectly free, and yet be without departure from 100% reserves. Jevons stated, If pecuniary promises were always of a special character, there could be no possible harm in allowing perfect freedom in the issue of promissory notes. The issuer would merely constitute himself a warehouse keeper and would be bound to hold each special lot of coin ready to pay each corresponding note. 7. Gains and Losses During a Change in the Money Relation A change in the money relation necessarily involves gains and losses because money is not neutral and price changes do not take place simultaneously. 
Let us assume, and this will rarely hold in practice, that the final equilibrium position resulting from a change in the money relation is the same in all respects, including relative prices, individual values, etc., as the previous equilibrium, except for the change in the purchasing power of money. Actually, as we shall see, there will almost undoubtedly be many changes in these factors in the new equilibrium situation, but even if there are not, the movement of prices from one equilibrium position to the next will not take place smoothly and simultaneously. It will not take place, according to the famous example of David Hume and John Stuart Mill, where everyone awakens to find his money supply doubled overnight. Changes in the demand for money or the stock of money occur in step-by-step fashion, first having their effect in one area of the economy and then in the next. Because the market is a complex interacting network, and because some people react more quickly than others, movements of prices will differ in the speed of reaction to the changed situation. As we have intimated, the following law can be enunciated. When a change in the money relation causes prices to rise, the man whose selling price rises before his buying prices gains, and the man whose buying prices rise first loses. The one who gains the most from the transition period is the one whose selling price rises first and buying prices last. Conversely, when prices fall, the man whose buying prices fall before his selling price gains, and the man whose selling price falls before his buying prices loses. It should be evident in the first place that there is nothing about rising prices that causes gains or about falling prices that causes losses. In either situation, some people gain and some people lose from the change, the gainers being the ones with the greatest and lengthiest positive differential between their selling and their buying prices, and the losers the ones with the greatest and longest negative differential in these movements. Which people gain and which lose from any given change is an empirical question, dependent on the location of changes in elements of the money relation, institutional conditions, anticipations, speeds of reaction, etc. Let us consider the gains and losses from an increase in money stock. Suppose that we start from a position of monetary equilibrium. Every person's money relation is in equilibrium, with his stock of and demand for money being equal. Now suppose that Mr. Jones finds some new gold, never known before. A change in Jones' data has taken place. He now has an excess stock of gold in his cash balance compared with his demand for it. Jones acts to spend his excess cash balance. This new money is spent, let us say, on the products of Smith. Smith now finds that his cash balance exceeds his demand for money, and he spends his excess on the products of someone else. Jones' increased supply also increases Smith's selling price and income. 
Smith's selling price has increased before his buying price. He spends the money on the products of Robinson, thus raising the latter's selling prices while most buying prices have not risen. As the money is transferred from hand to hand, buying prices rise more and more. Robinson's selling price increases, for example, but already one of the products he buys, Smith's, has gone up. As the process continues, more and more buying prices rise. The individuals who are far down on the list to receive the new money, therefore, find that their buying prices have increased while their selling prices have not yet done so. Of course, the changes in the money supply and in prices may well be insignificant, but this process occurs however large or small the change in the money stock. Obviously, the larger the increase in money stock, the greater, ceteris paribus, will be its impact on prices. We have seen that an increase in the stock of money leads to a fall in the PPM, and a decrease in the stock of money leads to a rise in the PPM. However, there is no simple and uneventful rise and fall in the PPM, for a change in the stock of money is not automatically simultaneous. New money enters the system at some specific point and then becomes diffused in this way throughout the economy. The individuals who receive the new money first are the greatest gainers from the increased money. Those who receive it last are the greatest losers, since all their buying prices have increased before their selling prices. Monetarily, it is clear that the gains of the approximate first half of the recipients of new money are exactly counterbalanced by the losses of the second half. Conversely, if money should somehow disappear from the system, say through wear and tear or through being misplaced, the initial loser cuts his spending and suffers most, while the last who feel the impact of a decreased money supply gain the most. For a decrease in the money supply results in losses for the first owners who suffer a cut in selling price before their buying prices are lowered, and gains for the last, who see their buying prices fall before their income is cut. This analysis bears out our assertion that there is no social utility in an increased supply, nor any social disutility in a decreased supply of money. This is true for the transition period as well. An increase in gold is socially useful, that is, beneficial to some without demonstrably injuring others, only to the extent that it makes possible an increase in the non-monetary, direct use of gold. If, as we have been assuming, relative prices and valuations remain the same for all throughout, the new equilibrium will be identical with the old, except for an all-round price change. In that case, the gains and losses will be temporary, disappearing upon the advent of the new equilibrium. Actually, however, this will almost never occur. For even if people's values remain frozen, 
the shift in relative money income during the transition itself changes the structure of demand. The gainers of wealth during the transition period will have a structure of preferences and demand different from that of the losers. As a result, demand itself will shift in structure, and the new equilibrium will have a different set of relative prices. Similarly, the change will probably not be neutral to time preferences. The permanent gainers will undoubtedly have a different structure of time preferences from that of the permanent losers, and as a result, there may be a permanent shift in general time preferences. What the shift will be, or in which direction, it is of course impossible for economics to say. Money changes have this driving force. It may be noted. Even in the fanciful case of the automatic overnight doubling of the supply of everyone's cash balance, for the fact that everyone's money stock doubles does not at all mean that all prices will automatically double. Each individual has a differently shaped demand for money schedule, and it is impossible to predict how each will be shaped. Some will spend proportionately more of their new money, and others will keep proportionately more in their cash balance. Many people will tend to spend their new cash balances on different goods from those they had bought with their old money. As a result, the structure of demand will change, and a decreased PPM will not double all prices. Some will increase by more, and some by less than double. Eight, the determination of prices, the good side and the money side. We are now in a position to draw together all the strands determining the prices of goods. In chapters four through nine, we analyzed all the determinants of the prices of particular goods. In this chapter, we have analyzed the determination of the purchasing power of money. Now we can see how both sets of determinants blend together. A particular price, as we have seen, is determined by the total demand for the good, exchange and reservation, and the stock of the good, increasing as the former increases and decreasing as the latter increases. We may therefore call the demand a factor of increase of the price, and the stock a factor of decrease. The exchange demand for each good, the amount of money that will be spent in exchange for the good, equals the stock of money in the society minus the following: the exchange demands for all other goods and the reservation demand for money. In short, the amount spent on X good equals the total money supply minus the amount spent on other goods and the amount kept in cash balances. Suppose we overlook the difficulties involved and now consider the price of all goods, that is, the reciprocal of the purchasing power of money. The price of goods in general will now be determined by the monetary demand for all goods, factor of increase, and the stock of all goods, factor of decrease. 
Now when all goods are considered, the exchange demand for goods equals the stock of money minus the reservation demand for money. In contrast to any specific good, there is no need to subtract people's expenditures on other goods. The total demand for goods, then, equals the stock of money minus the reservation demand for money plus the reservation demand for all goods. The ultimate determinants of the price of all goods are the stock of money and the reservation demand for goods, factors of increase, and the stock of all goods and the reservation demand for money, factors of decrease. Now let us consider the obverse side, the PPM. The PPM, as we have seen, is determined by the demand for money, factor of increase, and the stock of money, factor of decrease. The exchange demand for money equals the stock of all goods minus the reservation demand for all goods. Therefore, the ultimate determinants of the PPM are the stock of all goods and the reservation demand for money, factors of increase, and the stock of money and the reservation demand for goods, factors of decrease. We see that this is the exact obverse of the determinants of the price of all goods, which, in turn, is the reciprocal of the PPM. Thus, the analysis of the money side and the goods side of prices is completely harmonious. No longer is there need for an arbitrary division between a barter-type analysis of relative goods prices and a holistic analysis of the PPM. Whether we treat one good or all goods, the price or prices will increase ceteris paribus if the stock of money increases decrease when the stock of the good or goods increases, decrease when the reservation demand for money increases, and increase when the reservation demand for the good or goods increases. For each individual good, the price will also increase when the specific demand for that good increases. But unless this is a reflection of a drop in the social reservation demand for money, this changed demand will also signify a decreased demand for some other good and a consequent fall in the price of the latter. Hence, changes in specific demands will not change the value of the PPM. In a progressing economy, the secular trend for the four determining factors is likely to be the money stock increasing gradually as gold production adds to the previous total, the stock of goods increasing as capital investment accumulates, the reservation demand for goods disappearing because short-run speculations disappear over the long run, and this is the main reason for such a demand. The reservation demand for money, unknown, with clearing, for example, working to reduce this demand over a period of time, and the greater number of transactions tending to increase it. The result is that we cannot precisely say how the PPM will move in a progressing economy, though the best summary guess would be that it declines as a result of the influence of the increased stock of goods. 
Certainly, the influence of the goods side is in the direction of falling prices. The money side we cannot predict. Thus, the ultimate determinants of the PPM, as well as of specific prices, are the subjective utilities of individuals, the determinants of demand, and the given objective stocks of goods, thereby vindicating the Austrian-Wickstedian theory of price for all aspects of the economic system. A final note of warning. It is necessary to remember that money can never be neutral. One set of conditions tending to raise the PPM can never precisely offset another set of factors tending to lower it. Thus, suppose that an increase in the stock of goods tends to raise the PPM, while at the same time an increase in the money supply tends to lower it. One change can never offset the other, for one change will lower one set of prices more than others, while the other will raise a different set within the whole array of prices. The degrees of change in the two cases will depend on the particular goods and individuals affected, and on their concrete valuations. Thus, even if we can make an historical, not an economic scientific judgment that the PPM has remained roughly the same, the price relations have shifted within the array, and therefore the judgment can never be exact. 9. Interlocal Exchange A. Uniformity of the Geographic Purchasing Power of Money the price of any commodity tends to be the same throughout the entire area using it. We have seen that this rule is not violated by the fact that cotton in Georgia, for example, is priced lower than cotton in New York. When cotton in New York is a consumer's good, cotton in Georgia is a capital good in relation to the former. Cotton in Georgia is not the same commodity as cotton in New York, because goods must first be processed in one location and then transported to the places where they are consumed. Money is no exception to the rule that the price of every commodity will tend to be uniform throughout the entire area in which it is used. In fact, the scope for the money commodity is broader. Other commodities are produced in certain centers and must then be transported to other centers where they are consumed. They are therefore not the same good in different geographical locations. In the producing centers, they are capital goods. Money, it is true, must first be mined and then shipped to places of use. But, once mined, the money commodity is used only for exchange. For these purposes, it is, from then on, shipped back and forth throughout the world market. Therefore, there is no really important capital good location for money separate from a consumer's good location. Whereas all other goods are first produced and then moved to the place where they are used and consumed, Money is used interchangeably throughout the entire market area, moving back and forth.
Therefore, the tendency toward geographical uniformity in the purchasing power of money holds true for the physical commodity gold or silver, and there is no need for that commodity to be treated as a different good in one place or another. The purchasing power of money will therefore be identical over the entire area, Should the PPM be lower in New York than in Detroit, the supply of money for the exchange of goods will diminish in New York and increase in Detroit. Prices of goods being higher in New York than in Detroit, people will spend less in New York and more in Detroit than heretofore, this shift being reflected in the movement of money. This action will tend to raise the purchasing power of money in New York and lower it in Detroit until its purchasing power in the two places is equal. The purchasing power of money will, in this way, tend to remain equal in all places where the money is used, whether or not national boundaries happen to intervene. Some people contend that, on the contrary, there do exist permanent differences in the purchasing power of money from place to place. For example, they point to the fact that prices for food in restaurants are higher in New York City than in Peoria. For most people, however, New York has certain definite advantages over Peoria. It has a vastly wider range of goods and services available to the consumer, including theaters, concerts, colleges, high-quality jewelry and clothing, and stock brokerage houses. There is a great difference between the commodity restaurant service in New York and the commodity restaurant service in Peoria. The former allows the purchaser to remain in New York and to enjoy its various advantages. Thus, the two are distinct goods, and the fact that the price of restaurant service is greater in New York signifies that the preponderance of individuals on the market value the former more highly, and consider it a commodity of higher quality. Costs of transport, however, do introduce a qualification into this analysis. Suppose that the PPM in Detroit is slightly higher than in Rochester. We would expect gold to flow from Rochester to Detroit, spending relatively more on goods in the latter place, until the PPMs are equalized. If, however, the PPM in Detroit is higher by an amount smaller than the transport cost of shipping the gold from Rochester, then relative PPMs have a leeway to differ within the zone of shipping costs of gold. It would then be too expensive to ship gold to Detroit to take advantage of the higher PPM. The interspatial PPMs may vary in either direction within this cost-of-transport margin. As we shall see, however, interlocal clearing can greatly narrow these limits. Many critics allege that the PPM cannot be uniform throughout the world because some goods are not transferable from one locale to another. Times Square or Niagara Falls, for example, cannot be transferred from one region to another. They are specific to their locale. 
Therefore, it is alleged, the equalization process can take place only for those goods which enter into interregional trade. It does not apply to the general PPM. Plausible as it seems, this objection is completely fallacious. In the first place, disparate goods like Times Square and other main streets are different goods, so that there is no reason to expect them to have the same price. Secondly, so long as one commodity can be traded, the PPM can be equalized. The composition of the PPM may well be changed, but this does not refute the fact of equalization. The process of equalization can be deduced from the fact of human action, even though, as we shall see, the PPM cannot be measured since its composition does not remain the same. Finally, since any good can be traded, what is there to prevent, for example, Oshkosh Capital from buying a building on Times Square? The Oshkosh capitalists need not literally transport a good back to Oshkosh in order to buy it and make money from their investment. Every good, then, enters into interregional trade. No distinction between domestic and interregional or international goods can be made. Thus, suppose the PPM is higher in Oshkosh than in New York. New Yorkers tend to buy more in Oshkosh, and Oshkoshians will buy less in New York. This does not only mean that New York will buy more Oshkosh wheat, or that Oshkosh will buy less New York clothing. It also means that New Yorkers will invest in real estate or theaters in Oshkosh, while Oshkoshians will sell some of their New York holdings. B. Clearing in Interlocal Exchange Clearing is particularly appropriate for interlocal transactions, since costs of transporting money from one locale to another are likely to be heavy. Bills of exchange on each town, that is, IOUs owed by each town, can be reciprocally cancelled. Suppose that there are two traders, A and B, in Detroit, and two in Rochester, C and D. A sells C a refrigerator for 200 gold grams, and D sells B a TV set for 200 grams. The two debts can be cleared, and no money need be shipped from one place to the other. On the other hand, D's sale of a TV set may total 120 grams. Suppose for a moment that these are the only traders in the two communities. Then, 80 grams will have to be shipped from Rochester to Detroit. In the latter case, the citizens of Detroit have, on net balance, decided to add to their cash holdings, while the Rochesterites have decided to diminish their cash holdings. Economists have often described interlocal trade in terms of gold export points and gold import points. The use of such expressions assumes, however, that even though two localities both use gold money, it makes sense to talk of an exchange rate of the money of one locality for that of another. 
This exchange rate is set between the margins fixed by the cost of transporting money, the gold import and gold export points. This does not hold true on the free market, however. On such a market, all coins and bullion are expressed in terms of weight of gold, and it makes no sense whatever to speak of an exchange rate of the money of one place for the same money in another. How can there be an exchange rate of an ounce of gold for an ounce of gold? There will be no legal tender or other laws to separate the value of the coins of one area from those of another. Therefore, there may be slight variations in the PPM in each locale within the limits of the cost of transporting gold, but there could never be deviations from par in interlocal exchange rates, for there are no exchange rates on the free market except for two or more coexisting money commodities. 10. Balances of Payments in Chapter 3, we engaged in an extensive analysis of the individual's balance of payments. We saw there that an individual's income can be called his exports, and the physical sources of his income his goods exported, while his expenditures can be termed his imports, and the goods purchased his goods imported. To say that exports pay for imports is simply to say that income pays for expenditures. We also saw that it is nonsensical to call a man's balance of trade favorable if he chooses to use some of his income to add to his cash balance, or unfavorable if he decides to draw down his cash balance so that expenditures are greater than income. Every action and exchange is favorable from the point of view of the person performing the action or exchange. Otherwise, he would not have engaged in it. A further conclusion is that there is no need for anyone to worry about anyone else's balance of trade. A person's income and expenditure constitute his balance of trade, while his credit transactions added to this balance comprise his balance of payment. Credit transactions may complicate the balance, but they do not alter its essentials. When a creditor makes a loan, he adds to his money-paid column to the extent of the loan, for purchase of a promise to pay in the future. He has purchased the debtor's promise to pay in exchange for transferring part of his present cash balance to the debtor. The debtor adds to his money receipts column from the sale of a promise to pay in the future. These promises to pay may fall due at any future date decided upon by the creditor and the debtor. Generally, they range from a day to many years. On that date, the debtor repays the loan and transfers part of his cash balance to the creditor. This will appear in the debtor's money-paid column for repayment of debt and in the creditor's money-received column from repayment of debt. Interest payments made by the debtor to the creditor will be similarly reflected in the respective balances of payments.
More nonsense has been written about balances of payments than about virtually any other aspect of economics. This has been caused by the failure of economists to ground and build their analysis on individual balances of payments. Instead, they have employed such cloudy, holistic concepts as the national balance of payment, without basing them on individual actions and balances. Balances of payments may be consolidated for many individuals, and any number of groupings may be made. In these cases, the balances of payments only record the monetary transactions between individuals of the group and other individuals, but fail to record the exchanges of individuals within the group. For example, suppose that we take the consolidated balance of payments for the Antlers Lodge of Jonesville for a certain period of time. There are three lodge members. A, B, and C. In the consolidated balance sheet of the Antlers Lodge, the money payments between the members must, of necessity, cancel out. Thus, consolidated balance of payments for Antlers Lodge shows money income from outsiders, exports, 75 ounces, reduction of cash balance for transfer to outsiders, 3 ounces for a total of 78 ounces, compared with money expenditure on goods to outsiders, imports, 78 ounces. The consolidated balance tells less about the activities of the members of the group than do the individual balances, since the exchanges within the group are not revealed. This discrepancy grows as the number of people grouped in the consolidated balance increases. The consolidated balance of the citizens of a large nation such as the United States conveys less information about their economic activities than is revealed by the consolidated balance of the citizens of Cuba. Finally, if we lump together all the citizens of the world engaged in exchange, their consolidated balance of payments is precisely zero. All the exchanges are internal within the group, and the consolidated balance conveys no information whatever about them. Taken together, the people of the world have zero income from outside and zero expenditures on outside goods. Fallacies in thinking about foreign trade will disappear if we understand that balances of payment are merely built upon consolidated individual transactions, and that national balances are merely an arbitrary stopping point between individual balances on the one hand and the simple zeros of a world balance of payments on the other. There is, for example, the perennial worry that a balance of trade will be permanently unfavorable so that gold will drain out of the region in question until none is left. Drains of gold, however, are not mysterious acts of God. They are willed by people who, on net balance, wish for one reason or another to reduce their cash balances of gold.
The state of the balance is simply the visible manifestation of a voluntary reduction in the cash balance in a certain region or among a certain group. Worries about national balances of payment are the fallacious residue of the accident that statistics of exchange are far more available across national boundaries than elsewhere. It should be clear that the principles applying to the balance of payment of the United States are the same for one region of the country, for one state, for one city, for one block, one house, or one person. Obviously, no person or group can suffer because of an unfavorable balance. He or the group can suffer only because of a low level of income or assets. Seemingly plausible cries that money be kept in the United States, that Americans not be flooded with the products of cheap foreign labor, etc., take on a new perspective when we apply it, say, to a family of three Jones brothers. Imagine each brother exhorting the others to buy Jones, to keep the money circulating within the Jones family, to abstain from buying products made by others who earn less than the Jones family. Yet the principle of the argument is precisely the same in both cases. Another popular argument is that a debtor group or nation cannot possibly repay its debt because its balance of trade is in fundamental disequilibrium, being inherently unfavorable. This is taken seriously in international affairs. Yet how would we regard the individual debtor who used this excuse for defaulting on his loan? The creditor would be justified in bluntly telling the debtor that all he is saying is that he would much rather spend his money, income, and assets on enjoyable goods and services than on repayment of his debt. Except for the usual holistic analysis, we would see that the same holds true for an international debt. 11. Monetary Attributes of Goods a. Quasi-money We saw in Chapter 3 how one or more very easily marketable commodities were chosen by the market as media of exchange, thereby greatly increasing their marketability and becoming more and more generally used until they could be called money. We have implicitly assumed that there are one or two media that are fully marketable, always saleable, and other commodities that are simply sold for money. We have omitted mention of the degrees of marketability of these goods. Some goods are more readily marketable than others, and some are so easily marketable that they rise practically to the status of quasi-monies. Quasi-monies do not form part of the nation's money supply. The conclusive test is that they are not used to settle debts, nor are they claims to such means of payment at par. However, they are held as assets by individuals and are considered so readily marketable that an extra demand arises for them on the market. Their existence lowers the demand for money, since holders can economize on money by keeping them as assets. The price of these goods is higher than otherwise because of their quasi-monetary status. 
In Oriental countries, jewels have traditionally been held as quasi-monies. In advanced countries, quasi-monies are usually short-term debts or securities that have a broad market and are readily saleable at the highest price the market will yield. Quasi-monies include high-grade debentures, some stocks, and some wholesale commodities. Debentures used as quasi-monies have a higher price than otherwise and therefore a lower interest yield than will accrue on other investments. B. Bills of Exchange In previous sections, we saw that bills of exchange are not money substitutes but credit instruments. Money substitutes are claims to present money, equivalent to warehouse receipts. But some critics maintain that in Europe at the turn of the 19th century, bills did circulate as money substitutes. They circulated as final payment in advance of their due dates, their face value discounted for the period of time left for maturity. Yet these were not money substitutes. The holder of a bill was a creditor. Each of the acceptors of the bill had to endorse its payment, and the credit standing of each endorser had to be examined to judge the soundness of the bill. In short, as Mises has stated, the endorsement of the bill is in fact not a final payment. It liberates the debtor to a limited degree only. If the bill is not paid, then his liability is revived in a greater degree than before. Hence, the bills could not be classed as money substitutes. 12. Exchange Rates of Coexisting Monies Up to this point, we have analyzed the market in terms of a single money and its purchasing power. This analysis is valid for each and every type of medium of exchange existing on the market. But if there is more than one medium coexisting on the market, what determines the exchange ratios between the various media? Although on an unhampered market there is a gradual tendency for one single money to be established, this tendency works very slowly. If two or more commodities offer good facilities and are both especially marketable, they may coexist as monies. Each will be used by people as media of exchange. For centuries, gold and silver were two commodities that coexisted as monies. Both had similar advantages in scarcity, desirability for non-monetary purposes, portability, durability, etc. Gold, however, being relatively far more valuable per unit of weight, was found to be more useful for larger transactions, and silver better for smaller transactions. It is impossible to predict whether the market would have continued indefinitely to use gold and silver, or whether one would have gradually ousted the other as a general medium of exchange. For in the late 19th century, most Western countries conducted a coup d'etat against silver to establish a monometallic standard by coercion. Gold and silver could and did coexist side by side in the same countries or throughout the world market, 
or one could function as money in one country and one in another. Our analysis of the exchange rate is the same in both cases. What determines the exchange rate between two or more monies? Two different kinds of money will exchange in a ratio corresponding to the ratio of the purchasing power of each in terms of all the other economic goods. Thus, suppose that there are two coexisting monies, gold and silver, and the purchasing power of gold is double that of silver, that is, that the money price of every commodity is double in terms of silver what it is in terms of gold. One ounce of gold exchanges for 50 pounds of butter, and one ounce of silver exchanges for 25 pounds of butter. One ounce of gold will then tend to exchange for two ounces of silver. The exchange ratio of gold and silver will tend to be one to two. If the rate at any time deviates from one to two, market forces will tend to re-establish the parity between the purchasing powers and the exchange rate between them. This equilibrium exchange rate between two monies is termed the purchasing power parity. Thus, suppose that the exchange rate between gold and silver is one to three, three ounces of silver exchanging for one ounce of gold. At the same time, the purchasing power of an ounce of gold is twice that of silver. It will now pay people to sell commodities for gold, exchange the gold for silver, and then exchange the silver back into commodities, thereby making a clear arbitrage gain. For example, people will sell 50 pounds of butter for one ounce of gold, exchange the gold for three ounces of silver, and then exchange the silver for 75 pounds of butter, gaining 25 pounds of butter. Similar gains from this arbitrage action will take place for all other commodities. Arbitrage will restore the exchange rate between silver and gold to its purchasing power parity. The fact that holders of gold increase their demand for silver in order to profit by the arbitrage action will make silver more expensive in terms of gold, and conversely, gold cheaper in terms of silver. The exchange rate is driven in the direction of one to two. Furthermore, holders of commodities are increasingly demanding gold to take advantage of the arbitrage, and this raises the purchasing power of gold. In addition, holders of silver are buying more commodities to make the arbitrage profit, and this action lowers the purchasing power of silver. Hence, the ratio of the purchasing powers moves from 1 to 2 in the direction of 1 to 3. The process stops when the exchange rate is again at purchasing power parity, when arbitrage gains cease. Arbitrage gains tend to eliminate themselves and to bring about equilibrium. It should be noted that in the long run, the movement in the purchasing powers will probably not be important in the equilibrating process. With the arbitrage gains over, demands will probably revert back to what they were formerly, and the original ratio of purchasing powers will be restored. 
In the case under discussion, the equilibrium rate will likely remain at 1 to 2. Thus, the exchange rate between any two monies will tend to be at the purchasing power parity. Any deviation from the parity will tend to eliminate itself and re-establish the parity rate. This holds true for any monies, including those used mainly in different geographical areas. Whether the exchanges of monies occur between citizens of the same or different geographical areas makes no economic difference, except for the costs of transport. Of course, if the two monies are used in two completely isolated geographical areas with no exchanges between the inhabitants, then there is no exchange rate between them. Whenever exchanges do take place, however, the rate of exchange will always tend to be set at the purchasing power parity. It is impossible for economics to state whether, if the money market had remained free, gold and silver would have continued to circulate side by side as monies. There has been in monetary history a curious reluctance to allow monies to circulate at freely fluctuating exchange ratios. Whether one of the monies or both would be used as units of account would be up to the market to decide at its convenience. 13. The Fallacy of the Equation of Exchange the basis on which we have been explaining the purchasing power of money and the changes in and consequences of monetary phenomena has been an analysis of individual action. The behavior of aggregates, such as the aggregate demand for money and aggregate supply, has been constructed out of their individual components. In this way, monetary theory has been integrated into general economics. Monetary theory in American economics, however, apart from the Keynesian system, which we discuss elsewhere, has been presented in entirely different terms, in the quasi-mathematical holistic equation of exchange, derived especially from Irving Fisher. The prevalence of this fallacious approach makes a detailed critique worthwhile. The classic exposition of the equation of exchange was in Irving Fisher's Purchasing Power of Money. Fisher describes the chief purpose of his work as that of investigating the causes determining the purchasing power of money. Money is a generally acceptable medium of exchange, and purchasing power is rightly defined as the quantities of other goods which a given quantity of goods will buy. He explains that the lower the prices of goods, the larger will be the quantities that can be bought by a given amount of money, and therefore the greater the purchasing power of money. Vice versa, if the prices of goods rise. This is correct, but then comes this flagrant non-sequitur. In short, the purchasing power of money is the reciprocal of the level of prices, so that the study of the purchasing power of money is identical with the study of price levels. From then on, Fisher proceeds to investigate the causes of the price level, thus, by a simple in short, 
Fisher has leaped from the real world of an array of individual prices for an innumerable list of concrete goods into the misleading fiction of a price level, without discussing the grave difficulties which any such concept must face. The price level is allegedly determined by three aggregative factors, the quantity of money in circulation, its velocity of circulation, the average number of times during a period that a unit of money is exchanged for goods, and the total volume of goods bought for money. These are related by the famous equation of exchange, MV equals PT. This equation of exchange is built up by Fisher in the following way. First, consider an individual exchange transaction. Smith buys 10 pounds of sugar for 7 cents a pound. We are using dollars and cents here instead of weights of gold for the sake of simplicity and because Fisher himself uses these expressions. An exchange has been made. Smith giving up 70 cents to Jones and Jones transferring 10 pounds of sugar to Smith. From this fact, Fisher somehow deduces that 10 pounds of sugar have been regarded as equal to 70 cents, and this fact may be expressed thus, 70 cents equals 10 pounds multiplied by 7 cents a pound. This offhand assumption of equality is not self-evident, as Fisher apparently assumes, but a tangle of fallacy and irrelevance. Who has regarded the ten pounds of sugar as equal to the seventy cents? Certainly not Smith, the buyer of the sugar. He bought the sugar precisely because he considered the two quantities as unequal in value. To him, the value of the sugar was greater than the value of the 70 cents, and that is why he made the exchange. On the other hand, Jones, the seller of the sugar, made the exchange precisely because the values of the two goods were unequal in the opposite direction. That is, he valued the 70 cents more than he did the sugar. There is thus never any equality of values on the part of the two participants. The assumption that an exchange presumes some sort of equality has been a delusion of economic theory since Aristotle, and it is surprising that Fisher, an exponent of the subjective theory of value in many respects, fell into the ancient trap. There is certainly no equality of values between two goods exchanged, or, as in this case, between the money and the good. Is there an equality in anything else, and can Fisher's doctrine be salvaged by finding such an equality? Obviously not. There is no equality in weight, length, or any other magnitude. But to Fisher, the equation represents an equality in value between the money side and the goods side. Thus, Fisher states, the total money paid is equal in value to the total value of the goods bought. The equation thus has a money side and a goods side. The money side is the total money paid. The goods side is made up of the products of quantities of goods exchanged 
multiplied by respective prices. We have seen, however, that even for the individual exchange, and setting aside the holistic problem of total exchanges, there is no such equality that tells us anything about the facts of economic life. There is no value-of-money side equaling a value-of-goods side. The equal sign is illegitimate in Fisher's equation. How then account for the general acceptance of the equal sign and the equation? The answer is that mathematically the equation is, of course, an obvious truism. Seventy cents equals ten pounds of sugar times seven cents per pound of sugar. In other words, seventy cents equals seventy cents. But this truism conveys no knowledge of economic fact whatsoever. Indeed, it is possible to discover an endless number of such equations on which esoteric articles and books could be published. Thus, 70 cents equals 100 grains of sand times the number of students in a class divided by 100 grains of sand plus 70 cents minus the number of students in a class. Then we could say that the causal factors determining the quantity of money are the number of grains of sand, the number of students in the class, and the quantity of money. What we have in Fisher's equation, in short, is two money sides, each identical with the other. In fact, it is an identity and not an equation. To say that such an equation is not very enlightening is self-evident. All that this equation tells us about economic life is that the total money received in a transaction is equal to the total money given up in a transaction, surely an uninteresting truism. Let us reconsider the elements of the equation on the basis of the determinants of price, since that is our center of interest. Fisher's equation of exchange for an individual transaction can be rearranged as follows. Seven cents divided by one pound of sugar equals 70 cents divided by 10 pounds of sugar. Fisher considers that this equation yields the significant information that the price is determined by the total money spent divided by the total supply of goods sold. Actually, of course, the equation, as an equation, tells us nothing about the determinants of price. Thus, we could set up an equally truistic equation. Seven cents divided by one pound of sugar equals seventy cents divided by one hundred bushels of wheat times one hundred bushels of wheat divided by ten pounds of sugar. This equation is just as mathematically true as the other, and on Fisher's own mathematical grounds, we could argue cogently that Fisher has left the important wheat price out of the equation. We could easily add innumerable equations with an infinite number of complex factors that determine price. The only knowledge we can have of the determinants of price is the knowledge deduced logically from the axioms of praxeology. Mathematics can, at best, only translate our previous knowledge into relatively unintelligible form.
or usually it will mislead the reader, as in the present case. The price in the sugar transaction may be made to equal any number of truistic equations, but it is determined by the supply and demand of the participants, and these in turn are governed by the utility of the two goods on the value scales of the participants in exchange. This is the fruitful approach in economic theory, not the sterile mathematical one, If we consider the equation of exchange as revealing the determinants of price, we find that Fisher must be implying that the determinants are the 70 cents and the 10 pounds of sugar. But it should be clear that things cannot determine prices. Things, whether pieces of money or pieces of sugar or pieces of anything else, can never act they cannot set prices or supply and demand schedules. All this can be done only by human action. Only individual actors can decide whether or not to buy. Only their value scales determine prices. It is this profound mistake that lies at the root of the fallacies of the Fisher equation of exchange. Human action is abstracted out of the picture, and things are assumed to be in control of economic life. Thus, either the equation of exchange is a trivial truism, in which case it is no better than a million other such truistic equations, and has no place in science, which rests on simplicity and economy of methods, or else it is supposed to convey some important truths about economics and the determination of prices. In that case, it makes the profound error of substituting for correct logical analysis of causes based on human action, misleading assumptions based on action by things. At best, the Fisher equation is superfluous and trivial, At worst, it is wrong and misleading, although Fisher himself believed that it conveyed important causal truths. Thus, Fisher's equation of exchange is pernicious even for the individual transaction, how much more so when he extends it to the economy as a whole. For Fisher, this too was a simple step. The equation of exchange is simply the sum of the equations involved in all individual exchanges, as in a period of time. Let us now, for the sake of argument, assume that there is nothing wrong with Fisher's individual equations, and consider his summing up to arrive at the total equation for the economy as a whole, Let us also abstract from the statistical difficulties involved in discovering the magnitudes for any given historical situation. Let us look at several individual transactions of the sort that Fisher tries to build into a total equation of exchange. A exchanges 70 cents for 10 pounds of sugar. B exchanges $10 for one hat. C exchanges 60 cents for one pound of butter. D exchanges $500 for one television set. What is the equation of exchange for this community of four? Obviously, there is no problem in summing up the total amount of money spent, $511.30. But what about the other side of the equation?
Of course, if we wish to be meaninglessly truistic, we could simply write $511.30 on the other side of the equation without any laborious building up at all. But if we merely do this, there is no point to the whole procedure. Furthermore, as Fisher wants to get at the determination of prices, or the price level, he cannot rest content at this trivial stage. Yet he continues on the truistic level. $511.30 equals 7 cents divided by 1 pound of sugar times 10 pounds of sugar plus $10 divided by 1 hat times 1 hat plus 60 cents divided by 1 pound of butter times 1 pound of butter plus $500 divided by 1 TV set times 1 TV set. This is what Fisher does. And this is still the same trivial truism that total money spent equals total money spent. This triviality is not redeemed by referring to P times Q, P prime times Q prime, etc., with each P referring to a price and each Q referring to the quantity of a good, so that E equals total money spent equals PQ plus P prime Q prime plus P double prime Q double prime plus etc., Writing the equation in this symbolic form does not add to its significance or usefulness. Fisher, attempting to find the causes of the price level, has to proceed further. We have already seen that even for the individual transaction, the equation P equals E divided by Q, price equals total money spent divided by the quantity of goods sold, is only a trivial truism, and is erroneous when one tries to use it to analyze the determinants of price. This is the equation for the price of sugar in Fisherine symbolic form. How much worse is Fisher's attempt to arrive at such an equation for the whole community and to use this to discover the determinants of a mythical price level? For simplicity's sake, let us take only the two transactions of A and B for the sugar and the hat. Total money spent, E, clearly equals $10.70, which, of course, equals total money received. PQ plus P prime Q prime. But Fisher is looking for an equation to explain the price level. Therefore, he brings in the concept of an average price level, P, and a total quantity of goods sold, T, such that E is supposed to equal PT. But the transition from the trivial truism, E equals PQ plus P prime Q prime, to the equation E equals PT, cannot be made as blithely as Fisher believes. Indeed, if we are interested in the explanation of economic life, it cannot be made at all. For example, for the two transactions, or for the four, what is T? How can ten pounds of sugar be added to one hat, or to one pound of butter, to arrive at Obviously, no such addition can be performed, and therefore Fisher's holistic 
T, the total physical quantity of all goods exchanged, is a meaningless concept and cannot be used in scientific analysis. If T is a meaningless concept, then P must be also, since the two presumably vary inversely if E remains constant. And what, indeed, of P? Here we have a whole array of prices, seven cents a pound, ten dollars a hat, etc. What is the price level? Clearly there is no price level here. There are only individual prices of specific goods. But here, error is likely to persist. Cannot prices in some way be averaged to give us a working definition of a price level? This is Fisher's solution. Prices of the various goods are in some way averaged to arrive at P. Then P equals E divided by T, and all that remains is the difficult statistical task of arriving at T. However, the concept of an average for prices is a common fallacy. It is easy to demonstrate that prices can never be averaged for different commodities. We shall use a simple average for our example, but the same conclusion applies to any sort of weighted average, such as is recommended by Fisher or by anyone else. What is an average? Reflection will show that for several things to be averaged together, they must first be totaled. In order to be thus added together, the things must have some unit in common, and it must be this unit that is added. Only homogeneous units can be added together. Thus, if one object is 10 yards long, a second is 15 yards long, and a third 20 yards long, we may obtain an average length by adding together the number of yards and dividing by 3, yielding an average length of 15 yards. Now, money prices are in terms of ratios of units, cents per pound of sugar, cents per hat, cents per pound of butter, etc. Suppose we take the first two prices, 7 cents divided by 1 pound of sugar and 1,000 cents divided by 1 hat. Can these two prices be averaged in any way? Can we add 1,007 together, get 1,007 cents, and divide by something to get a price level? Obviously not. Simple algebra demonstrates that the only way to add the ratios in terms of cents, certainly there is no other common unit available, is as follows. 7 hats and 1,000 pounds of sugar, cents, divided by hats times pounds of sugar. Obviously, neither the numerator nor the denominator makes sense. The units are incommensurable. Fisher's more complicated concept of a weighted average, with the prices weighted by the quantities of each good sold, solves the problem of units in the numerator, but not in the denominator. P equals PQ plus P prime Q prime plus P double prime Q double prime, divided by Q plus Q prime plus Q double prime. The PQs are all money, but the Qs are still different units. 
Thus, any concept of average price level involves adding or multiplying quantities of completely different units of goods, such as butter, hats, sugar, etc., and is therefore meaningless and illegitimate. Even pounds of sugar and pounds of butter cannot be added together because they are two different goods, and their valuation is completely different. And if one is tempted to use poundage as the common unit of quantity, what is the pound weight of a concert, or a medical or legal service? It is evident that PT, in the total equation of exchange, is a completely fallacious concept. While the equation of E equals PQ for an individual transaction is at least a trivial truism, although not very enlightening, the equation E equals PT for the whole society is a false one. Neither P nor T can be defined meaningfully, and this would be necessary for the equation to have any validity. We are left only with E equals PQ plus P prime Q prime, etc., which gives us only the useless truism E equals E. Since the P concept is completely fallacious, it is obvious that Fisher's use of the equation to reveal the determinants of prices is also fallacious. He states that if E doubles and T remains the same, P, the price level, must double. On the holistic level, this is not even a truism. It is false, because neither P nor T can be meaningfully defined. All we can say is that when E doubles, E doubles. For the individual transaction, the equation is at least meaningful. If a man now spends $1.40 on 10 pounds of sugar, it is obvious that the price has doubled from 7 cents to 14 cents a pound. Still, this is only a mathematical truism, telling us nothing of the real causal forces at work. But Fisher never attempted to use this individual equation to explain the determinants of individual prices. He recognized that the logical analysis of supply and demand is far superior here. He used only the holistic equation, which he felt explained the determinants of the price level and was uniquely adapted to such an explanation. Yet the holistic equation is false and the price level remains pure myth, an indefinable concept. Let us consider the other side of the equation. E equals MV, the average quantity of money in circulation in the period, multiplied by the average velocity of circulation. V is an absurd concept. Even Fisher, in the case of the other magnitudes, recognized the necessity of building up the total from individual exchanges. He was not successful in building up T out of the individual Qs, P out of the individual Ps, etc., but at least he attempted to do so. But in the case of V, what is the velocity of an individual transaction? Velocity is not an independently defined variable. Fisher, in fact, can derive V only as being equal in every instance and every period to E divided by M. 
If I spend in a certain hour $10 for a hat, and I had an average cash balance, or M, for that hour of $200, then by definition my V equals 1 divided by 20, or 1 twentieth. I had an average quantity of money in my cash balance of $200, each dollar turned over on the average of one-twentieth of a time, and consequently I spent $10 in this period. But it is absurd to dignify any quantity with a place in an equation unless it can be defined independently of the other terms in the equation. Fisher compounds the absurdity by setting up M and V as independent determinants of E, which permits him to go to his desired conclusion that if M doubles and V and T remain constant, P, the price level, will also double. But since V is defined as equal to E divided by M, what we actually have is M times E divided by M equals PT, or simply E equals PT, our original equation. Thus, Fisher's attempt to arrive at a quantity equation with the price level approximately proportionate to the quantity of money is proved vain by yet another route. A group of Cambridge economists has attempted to rehabilitate the Fisher equation by eliminating V and substituting the idea that the total supply of money equals the total demand for money. However, their equation is not a particular advance since they keep the fallacious holistic concepts of P and T, and their K is merely the reciprocal of V and suffers from the latter's deficiencies. In fact, since V is not an independently defined variable, M must be eliminated from the equation as well as V, and the Fisherine and the Cambridge equation cannot be used to demonstrate the quantity theory of money. And since M and V must disappear, there are an infinite number of other equations of exchange that we could, with equal invalidity, uphold as determinants of the price level. Thus, the aggregate stock of sugar in the economy may be termed S, and the ratio of E to the total stock of sugar may be called average sugar turnover, or U, this new equation of exchange would be SU equals PT, and the stock of sugar would suddenly become a major determinant of the price level. Or we could substitute A equals number of salesmen in the country, and X equals total expenditures per salesman, or salesman turnover, to arrive at a new set of determinants and a new equation, and so on. This example should reveal the fallacy of equations in economic theory. The Fisherine equation has been popular for many years because it has been thought to convey useful economic knowledge. It appears to be demonstrating the plausible, on other grounds, quantity theory of money. Actually, it has only been misleading. There are other valid criticisms that could be made of Fisher, 
his use of index numbers, which even at best could only measure a change in a variable but never define its actual position, his use of an index of t defined in terms of p and of p defined in terms of t, his denial that money is a commodity, the use of mathematical equations in a field where there can be no constants and therefore no quantitative predictions. In particular, even if the equation of exchange were valid in all other respects, it could at best only describe statically the conditions of an average period. It could never describe the path from one static condition to another. Even Fisher admitted this by conceding that a change in M would always affect V so that the influence of M on P could not be isolated. He contended that after this transition period, V would revert to a constant and the effect on P would be proportional, yet there is no reasoning to support this assertion. At any rate, Enough has been shown to warrant expunging the equation of exchange from the economic literature. 14. The Fallacy of Measuring and Stabilizing the PPM A. Measurement in olden times, before the development of economic science, people naively assumed that the value of money remained always unchanged. Value was assumed to be an objective quantity inhering in things and their relations, and money was the measure, the fixed yardstick of the values of goods and their changes. The value of the monetary unit, its purchasing power with respect to other goods, was assumed to be fixed. Conventional accounting practice is based on a fixed value of the monetary unit. The analogy of a fixed standard of measurement, which had become familiar to the natural sciences, weight, length, etc., was unthinkingly applied to human action. Economists then discovered and made clear that money does not remain stable in value, that the PPM does not remain fixed. The PPM can and does vary in response to changes in the supply of or the demand for money. These, in turn, can be resolved into the stock of goods and the total demand for money. Individual money prices, as we have seen in Section 8, are determined by the stock of and demand for money, as well as by the stock of and demand for each good. It is clear, then, that the money relation and the demand for and the stock of each individual good are intertwined in each particular price transaction. Thus, when Smith decides whether or not to purchase a hat for two gold ounces, he weighs the utility of the hat against the utility of the two ounces. Entering into every price, then, is the stock of the good the stock of money, and the demand for money and the good, both ultimately based on individuals' utilities. The money relation is contained in particular price demands and supplies, and cannot in practice be separated from them. 
If, then, there is a change in the supply of or demand for money, the change will not be neutral, but will affect different specific demands for goods and different prices in varying proportions. There is no way of separately measuring changes in the PPM and changes in the specific prices of goods. The fact that the use of money as a medium of exchange enables us to calculate relative exchange ratios between the different goods exchanged against money has misled some economists into believing that separate measurement of changes in the PPM is possible. Thus, we could say that one hat is worth, or can exchange for, 100 pounds of sugar, or that one TV set can exchange for 50 hats. It is a temptation, then, to forget that these exchange ratios are purely hypothetical and can be realized in practice only through monetary exchanges and to consider them as constituting some barter world of their own. In this mythical world, the exchange ratios between the various goods are somehow determined separately from the monetary transactions, and it then becomes more plausible to say that some sort of method can be found of isolating the value of money from these relative values and establishing the former as a constant yardstick. Actually, this barter world is a pure figment. These relative ratios are only historical expressions of past transactions that can be effected only by and with money. Let us now assume that the following is the array of prices in the PPM on day one. Ten cents per pound of sugar, ten dollars per hat, five hundred dollars per TV set, five dollars per hour legal service of Mr. Jones, lawyer. Now, suppose the following array of prices of the same goods on day two. Fifteen cents per pound of sugar. $20 per hat, $300 per TV set, $8 per hour of Mr. Jones' legal service. Now, what can economics say has happened to the PPM over these two periods? All that we can legitimately say is that now $1 can buy one-twentieth of a hat instead of one-tenth of a hat one three-hundredth of a TV set instead of one five-hundredth of a set, etc. Thus, we can describe, if we know the figures, what happened to each individual price in the market array. But how much of the price rise of the hat was due to a rise in the demand for hats, and how much to a fall in the demand for money? There is no way of answering such a question, we do not even know for certain whether the PPM has risen or declined. All we do know is that the purchasing power of money has fallen in terms of sugar, hats, and legal services, and risen in terms of TV sets. Even if all the prices in the array had risen, we would not know by how much the PPM had fallen and we would not know how much of the change was due to an increase in the demand for money and how much to changes in stocks. 
If the supply of money changed during this interval, we would not know how much of the change was due to the increased supply and how much to the other determinants. Changes are taking place all the time in each of these determinants. In the real world of human action, there is no one determinant that can be used as a fixed benchmark. The whole situation is changing in response to changes in stocks of resources and products and to the changes in the valuations of all the individuals on the market. In fact, one lesson above all should be kept in mind when considering the claims of the various groups of mathematical economists. In human action, there are no quantitative constants. Professor Mises has pointed out that the assertion of the mathematical economists that their task is made difficult by the existence of many variables in human action grossly understates the problem, for the point is that all the determinants are variables, and that in contrast to the natural sciences, there are no constants. As a necessary corollary, all praxeological economic laws are qualitative, not quantitative. The index number method of measuring changes in the PPM attempts to conjure up some sort of totality of goods whose exchange ratios remain constant among themselves so that a kind of general averaging will enable a separate measurement of changes in the PPM itself. We have seen, however, that such separation or measurement is impossible. The only attempt to use index numbers that has any plausibility is the construction of fixed quantity weights for a base period. Each price is weighted by the quantity of the goods sold in the base period, these weighted quantities representing a typical market basket proportion of goods bought in that period. The difficulties in such a market basket concept are insuperable, however. Aside from the considerations mentioned earlier, there is in the first place no average buyer or housewife. There are only individual buyers, and each buyer has bought a different proportion and type of goods. If one person purchases a TV set and another goes to the movies, each activity is the result of differing value scales, and each has different effects on the various commodities. There is no average person who goes partly to the movies and buys part of a TV set. There is, therefore, no average housewife buying some given proportion of a totality of goods. Goods are not bought in their totality against money, but only by individuals in individual transactions, and therefore there can be no scientific method of combining them. Secondly, even if there were meaning to the market basket concept, the utilities of the goods in the basket, as well as the basket proportions themselves, are always changing, and this completely eliminates any possibility of a meaningful constant with which to measure price changes. 
the non-existent typical housewife would have to have constant valuations as well, an impossibility in the real world of change. All sorts of index numbers have been spawned in a vain attempt to surmount these difficulties. Quantity weights have been chosen that vary for each year covered. Arithmetical, geometrical, and harmonic averages have been taken at variable and fixed weights. Ideal formulas have been explored, all with no realization of the futility of these endeavors. No such index number, no attempt to separate and measure prices and quantities, can be valid. B. Stabilization The knowledge that the purchasing power of money could vary led some economists to try to improve on the free market by creating, in some way, a monetary unit which would remain stable and constant in its purchasing power. All these stabilization plans, of course, involve in one way or another an attack on the gold or other commodity standard, since the value of gold fluctuates as a result of the continual changes in the supply of and the demand for gold. The stabilizers want the government to keep an arbitrary index of prices constant by pumping money into the economy when the index falls and taking money out when it rises. The outstanding proponent of stable money, Irving Fisher, revealed the reason for his urge toward stabilization in the following autobiographical passage. I became increasingly aware of the imperative need of a stable yardstick of value. I had come into economics from mathematical physics, in which fixed units of measure contribute the essential starting point. Apparently, Fisher did not realize that there could be fundamental differences in the nature of the sciences of physics and of purposeful human action. It is difficult indeed to understand what the advantages of a stable value of money are supposed to be. One of the most frequently cited advantages, for example, is that debtors will no longer be harmed by unforeseen rises in the value of money, while creditors will no longer be harmed by unforeseen declines in its value. Yet, if creditors and debtors want such a hedge against future changes, they have an easy way out on the free market. When they make their contracts, they can agree that repayment be made in a sum of money corrected by some agreed-upon index number of changes in the value of money. Such a voluntary tabular standard for business contracts has long been advocated by stabilizationists, who have been rather puzzled to find that a course which appears to them so beneficial is almost never adopted in business practice. Despite the multitude of index numbers and other schemes that have been proposed to businessmen by these economists, creditors and debtors have somehow failed to take advantage of them. Yet, while stabilization plans have made no headway among the groups that they would supposedly benefit the most, the stabilizationists have remained undaunted in their zeal to force their plans on the whole society by means of state coercion.
There seem to be two basic reasons for this failure of business to adopt a tabular standard. A. As we have seen, there is no scientific objective means of measuring changes in the value of money. Scientifically, one index number is just as arbitrary and bad as any other. Individual creditors and debtors have not been able to agree on any one index number, therefore, that they can abide by as a measure of change in purchasing power. Each, according to his own interests, would insist on including different commodities at different weights in his index number. Thus, a debtor who is a wheat farmer would want to weigh the price of wheat heavily in his index of the purchasing power of money. A creditor who goes often to nightclubs would want to hedge against the price of nightclub entertainment, etc. B. A second reason is that businessmen apparently prefer to take their chances in a speculative world rather than agree on some sort of arbitrary hedging device. Stock exchange speculators and commodity speculators are continually attempting to forecast future prices, and indeed, all entrepreneurs are engaged in anticipating the uncertain conditions of the market. Apparently, businessmen are willing to be entrepreneurs in anticipating future changes in purchasing power as well as any other changes. The failure of business to adopt voluntarily any sort of tabular standard seems to demonstrate the complete lack of merit in compulsory stabilization schemes. Setting this argument aside, however, let us examine the contention of the stabilizers that somehow they can create certainty in the purchasing power of money, while at the same time leaving freedom and uncertainty in the prices of particular goods. This is sometimes expressed in the statement, individual prices should be left free to change, the price level should be fixed and constant. This contention rests on the myth that some sort of general purchasing power of money, or some sort of price level, exists on a plane apart from specific prices in specific transactions. As we have seen, this is purely fallacious. There is no price level, and there is no way that the exchange value of money is manifested except in specific purchases of goods, that is, specific prices. There is no way of separating the two concepts. Any array of prices establishes at one and the same time an exchange relation or objective exchange value between one good and another, and between money and a good, and there is no way of separating these elements quantitatively. It is thus clear that the exchange value of money cannot be quantitatively separated from the exchange value of goods. Since the general exchange value, or PPM, of money cannot be quantitatively defined and isolated in any historical situation, and its changes cannot be defined or measured, it is obvious that it cannot be kept stable. If we do not know what something is, we cannot very well act to keep it constant. 
The fact that the purchasing power of the monetary unit is not quantitatively definable does not negate the fact of its existence, which is established by prior praxeological knowledge. It thereby differs, for example, from the competitive price-monopoly price dichotomy, which cannot be independently established by praxeological deduction for free market conditions. We have seen that the ideal of a stabilized value of money is impossible to attain or even define. If it were attainable, however, what would be the result? Suppose, for example, that the purchasing power of money rises and that we disregard the problem of measuring the rise. Why, if this is the result of action on an unhampered market, should we consider it a bad result? If the total supply of money in the community has remained constant, falling prices will be caused by a general increase in the demand for money, or by an increase in the supply of goods as a result of increased productivity. An increased demand for money stems from the free choice of individuals, say, in the expectation of a more troubled future, or of future price declines. Stabilization would deprive people of the chance to increase their real cash holdings and the real value of the dollar by free, mutually agreed-upon actions. As in any other aspect of the free market, those entrepreneurs who successfully anticipate the increased demand will benefit, and those who err will lose in their speculations. But even the losses of the latter are purely the consequence of their own voluntarily assumed risks. Furthermore, falling prices resulting from increased productivity are beneficial to all, and are precisely the means by which the fruits of industrial progress spread on the free market. Any interference with falling prices blocks the spread of the fruits of an advancing economy, and then real wages could increase only in particular industries, and not, as on the free market, over the economy as a whole. Similarly, stabilization would deprive people of the chance to decrease their real cash holdings and the real value of the dollar should their demand for money fall. People would be prevented from acting on their expectations of future price increases. Furthermore, if the supply of goods should decline, a stabilization policy would prevent the price rises necessary to clear the various markets. The intertwining of general purchasing power and specific prices raises another consideration. For money could not be pumped into the system to combat a supposed increase in the value of money without distorting the previous exchange values between the various goods. We have seen that money cannot be neutral with respect to goods, and that therefore the whole price structure will change with any change in the supply of money. Hence, the stabilizationist program of fixing the value of money, or price level, without distorting relative prices, is necessarily doomed to failure. It is an impossible program.
Thus, even were it possible to define and measure changes in the purchasing power of money, stabilization of this value would have effects that many advocates consider undesirable. But the magnitudes cannot even be defined, and stabilization would depend on some sort of arbitrary index number. Whichever commodities and weights are included in the index, pricing and production will be distorted. At the heart of the stabilizationist ideal is a misunderstanding of the nature of money. Money is considered either a mere numeraire or a grandiose measure of values. Forgotten is the truth that money is desired and demanded as a useful commodity, even when this use is only as a medium of exchange. When a man holds money in his cash balance, he is deriving utility from it. Those who neglect this fact scoff at the gold standard as a primitive anachronism and fail to realize that hoarding performs a useful social function. 15. Business Fluctuations In the real world, there will be continual changes in the pattern of economic activity, changes resulting from shifts in the tastes and demands of consumers, in resources available, technological knowledge, etc., that prices and outputs fluctuate, therefore, is to be expected, and absence of fluctuation would be unusual. Particular prices and outputs will change under the impact of shifts in demand and production conditions. The general level of production will change according to individual time preferences. Prices will all tend to move in the same direction, instead of shifting in different directions for different goods whenever there is a change in the money relation. Only a change in the supply of or demand for money will transmit its impulses throughout the entire monetary economy and impel prices in a similar direction, albeit at varying rates of speed. General price fluctuations can be understood only by analyzing the money relation. Yet simple fluctuations and changes do not suffice to explain that terrible phenomenon so marked in the last century and a half, the business cycle. The business cycle has had certain definite features which reveal themselves time and again, First, there is a boom period, when prices and productive activity expand. There is a greater boom in the heavy capital goods and higher-order industries, such as industrial raw materials, machine goods, and construction, and in the markets for titles to these goods, such as the stock market and real estate. Then, suddenly, without warning, there is a crash, a financial panic with runs on banks ensues. Prices fall very sharply, and there is a sudden piling up of unsold inventory, and particularly a revelation of great excess capacity in the higher-order capital goods industries. A painful period of liquidation and bankruptcy follows, accompanied by heavy unemployment, until recovery to normal conditions gradually takes place. 
This is the empirical pattern of the modern business cycle. Historical events can be explained by laws of praxeology, which isolate causal connections. Some of these events can be explained by laws that we have learned. A general price rise could result from an increase in the supply of money or from a fall in demand. Unemployment from insistence on maintaining wage rates that have suddenly increased in real value. A reduction in unemployment from a fall in real wage rates, etc. But one thing cannot be explained by any economics of the free market. And this is the crucial phenomenon of the crisis. Why is there a sudden revelation of business error? Suddenly, all or nearly all businessmen find that their investments and estimates have been in error, that they cannot sell their products for the prices which they had anticipated. This is the central problem of the business cycle, and this is the problem which any adequate theory of the cycle must explain. No businessman in the real world is equipped with perfect foresight. All make errors. But the free market process precisely rewards those businessmen who are equipped to make a minimum number of errors. Why should there suddenly be a cluster of errors? Furthermore, why should these errors particularly pervade the capital goods industries? Sometimes sharp changes, such as a sudden burst of hoarding or a sudden raising of time preferences and hence a decrease in saving, may arrive unanticipated, with a resulting crisis of error. But since the 18th century, there has been an almost regular pattern of consistent clusters of error, which always follow a boom and expansion of money and prices. In the Middle Ages and down to the 17th and 18th centuries, business crises rarely followed upon booms in this manner. They took place suddenly, in the midst of normal activity, and as the result of some obvious and identifiable external event. Thus, W.R. Scott lists crises in 16th and early 17th century England as irregular and caused by some obvious event. Famine, plague, seizures of goods in war, bad harvest, crises in the cloth trade as a result of royal manipulations, seizure of bullion by the king, etc. But in the late 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, there developed the aforementioned pattern of the business cycle, and it became obvious that the crisis and ensuing depression could no longer be attributed to some single external event or single act of government. Since no one event could account for the crisis and depression, observers began to theorize that there must be some deep-seated defect within the free market economy that causes these crises and cycles. The blame must rest with the capitalist system itself. Many ingenious theories have been put forward to explain the business cycle as an outgrowth of the free market economy, but none of them has been able to explain the crucial point, the cluster of errors after a boom. In fact, such an explanation can never be found. 
since no such cluster could appear on the free market. The nearest attempt at an explanation stressed general swings of over-optimism and over-pessimism in the business community, but put in such fashion, the theory looks very much like a deus ex machina. Why should hard-headed businessmen, schooled in trying to maximize their profits, suddenly fall victim to such psychological swings? In fact, the crisis brings bankruptcies regardless of the emotional state of particular entrepreneurs. We shall see in Chapter 12 that feelings of optimism do play a role, but they are induced by certain objective economic conditions. We must search for the objective reasons that cause businessmen to become over-optimistic, and they cannot be found on the free market. The positive explanation of the business cycle, therefore, will have to be postponed to the next chapter. 16. Schumpeter's Theory of Business Cycles Joseph Schumpeter's business cycle theory is one of the very few that attempts to integrate an explanation of the business cycle with an analysis of the entire economic system. The theory was presented, in essence, in his Theory of Economic Development, published in 1912. This analysis formed the basis for the first approximation of his more elaborate doctrine presented in the two-volume Business Cycles, published in 1939. The latter volume, however, was a distinct retrogression from the former, for it attempted to explain the business cycle by postulating three superimposed cycles, each of which was explainable according to his first approximation. Each of these cycles is supposed to be roughly periodic in length. They are alleged by Schumpeter to be the three-year kitchen cycle, the nine-year juglar, and the very long 50-year kondratiev. These cycles are conceived as independent entities, combining in various ways to yield the aggregate cyclical pattern. Any such multi-cyclic approach must be set down as a mystical adoption of the fallacy of conceptual realism. There is no reality or meaning to the allegedly independent sets of cycles. The market is one interdependent unit and the more developed it is, the greater the interrelations among market elements. It is therefore impossible for several or numerous independent cycles to coexist as self-contained units. It is precisely the characteristic of a business cycle that it permeates all market activities. Many theorists have assumed the existence of periodic cycles, where the length of each successive cycle is uniform, even down to the precise number of months. The quest for periodicity is a chimerical hankering after the laws of physics. In human action, there are no quantitative constants. Praxeological laws can be only qualitative in nature. Therefore, there will be no periodicity in the length of business cycles. 
It is best, then, to discard Schumpeter's multicyclical schema entirely and to consider his more interesting one-cycle approximation as presented in his earlier book, which he attempts to derive from his general economic analysis. Schumpeter begins his study with the economy in a state of circular flow equilibrium, that is, what amounts to a picture of an evenly rotating economy. This is proper, since it is only by hypothetically investigating the disturbances of an imaginary state of equilibrium that we can mentally isolate the causal factors of the business cycle. First, Schumpeter describes the ERE, where all anticipations are fulfilled. Every individual and economic element is in equilibrium. Profits and losses are zero all based on given values and resources. Then, asks Schumpeter, what can impel changes in this setup? First, there are possible changes in consumer tastes and demands. This is cavalierly dismissed by Schumpeter as unimportant. There are possible changes in population, and therefore in the labor supply. But these are gradual, and entrepreneurs can readily adapt to them. Third, there can be new saving and investment. Wisely, Schumpeter sees that changes in saving investment rates imply no business cycle. New saving will cause continuous growth. Sudden changes in the rate of saving, when unanticipated by the market, can cause dislocations, of course, as may any sudden unanticipated change. But there is nothing cyclic or mysterious about these effects. Instead of concluding from this survey, as he should have done, that there can be no business cycle on the free market, Schumpeter turned to a fourth element, which for him was the generator of all growth as well as of business cycles, innovation in productive techniques. We have seen that innovations cannot be considered the prime mover of the economy, since innovations can work their effects only through saving and investment, and since there are always a great many investments that could improve techniques within the corpus of existing knowledge, but which are not made for lack of adequate savings. This consideration alone is enough to invalidate Schumpeter's business cycle theory. A further consideration is that Schumpeter's own theory relies specifically for the financing of innovations on newly expanded bank credit, on new money issued by the banks. Without delving into Schumpeter's theory of bank credit and its consequences, it is clear that Schumpeter assumes a hampered market, for we have seen that there could not be any monetary credit expansion on a free market. Schumpeter, therefore, cannot establish a business cycle theory for a purely unhampered market. Finally, Schumpeter's explanation of innovations as the trigger for the business cycle necessarily assumes that there is a recurrent cluster of innovations that takes place in each boom period. Why should there be such a cluster of innovations? 
Why are innovations not more or less continuous, as we would expect? Schumpeter cannot answer this question satisfactorily. The fact that a bold few begin innovating, and that they are followed by imitators, does not yield a cluster, for this process could be continuous, with new innovators arriving on the scene. Schumpeter offers two explanations for the slackening of innovatory activity toward the end of the boom, a slackening essential to his theory. On the one hand, the release of new products yielded by the new investments creates difficulties for old producers and leads to a period of uncertainty and need for rest. In contrast, in equilibrium periods, the risk of failure and uncertainty is less than in other periods. But here, Schumpeter mistakes the auxiliary construction of the ERE for the real world. There is never in existence any actual period of certainty. All periods are uncertain, and there is no reason why increased production should cause more uncertainty to develop or any vague needs for rest. Entrepreneurs are always seeking profit-making opportunities, and there is no reason for any periods of waiting or of gathering the harvest to develop suddenly in the economic system. Schumpeter's second explanation is that innovations cluster in only one or a few industries, and that these innovation opportunities are therefore limited. After a while, they become exhausted, and the cluster of innovations ceases. This is obviously related to the Hansen stagnation thesis, in the sense that there are alleged to be a certain limited number of investment opportunities, here innovation opportunities, at any time, and that once these are exhausted, there is temporarily no further room for investments or innovations. The whole concept of opportunity in this connection, however, is meaningless. There is no limit on opportunity as long as wants remain unfulfilled. The only other limit on investment or innovation is saved capital available to embark on the projects. But this has nothing to do with vaguely available opportunities which become exhausted, the existence of saved capital is a continuing factor. As for innovations, there is no reason why innovations cannot be continuous or take place in many industries, or why the innovatory pace has to slacken. As Kuznets has shown, a cluster of innovation must assume a cluster of entrepreneurial ability as well, and this is clearly unwarranted. Clements and Duty, Schumpeterian disciples, countered that entrepreneurial ability is exhausted in the act of founding a new firm. But to view entrepreneurship as simply the founding of new firms is completely invalid. Entrepreneurship is not just the founding of new firms. It is not merely innovation. It is adjustment, adjustment to the uncertain changing conditions of the future. 
This adjustment takes place per force all the time and is not exhausted in any single act of investment. We must conclude that Schumpeter's praiseworthy attempt to derive a business cycle theory from general economic analysis is a failure. Schumpeter almost hit on the right explanation when he stated that the only other explanation that could be found for the business cycle would be a cluster of errors by entrepreneurs and he saw no reason, no objective cause, why there should be such a cluster of errors. That is perfectly true for the free, unhampered market. 17. Further Fallacies of the Keynesian System we have seen that even if the Keynesian functions were correct and social expenditures fell below income above a certain point and vice versa, this would have no unfortunate consequences for the economy. The level of national money income and consequently of hoarding is an imaginary bogey. In this section, we shall pursue our analysis of the Keynesian system and demonstrate further grave fallacies within the system itself. In other words, we shall see that the consumption function and investment are not ultimate determinants of social income, whereas previously we demonstrated that it makes no particular difference if they are or not. A. Interest and Investment Investment, though the dynamic and volatile factor in the Keynesian system, is also the Keynesian stepchild. Keynesians have differed on the causal determinants of investment. Originally, Keynes determined it by the interest rate, as compared with the marginal efficiency of capital, or prospect for net return. The interest rate is supposed to be determined by the money relation. We have seen that this idea is fallacious. Actually, the equilibrium net rate of return is the interest rate, the natural rate to which the bond rate conforms. Rather than changes in the interest rate causing changes in investment, changes in time preference are reflected in changes in consumption investment decisions. Changes in the interest rate and in investment are two sides of a coin, both determined by individual valuations and time preferences. The error of calling the interest rate the cause of investment changes and itself determined by the money relation is also adopted by such critics of the Keynesian position as Pigou who asserts that falling prices will release enough cash to lower the interest rate, stimulate investment, and thus finally restore full employment. Modern Keynesians have tended to abandon the intricacies of the relation between interest and investment and simply declare themselves agnostic on the factors determining investment. They rest their case on an alleged determination of consumption. B. The Consumption Function If Keynesians are unsure about investment, they have until very recently been very emphatic about consumption. Investment is a volatile, uncertain expenditure. 
Aggregate consumption, on the other hand, is a passive, stable function of immediately previous social income. Total net expenditures determining and equaling total net income in a period, gross expenditures between stages of production are unfortunately removed from discussion, consist of investment and consumption. Furthermore, consumption always behaves so that below a certain income level, consumption will be higher than income, and above that level, consumption will be lower. The stability of the passive consumption function, as contrasted with the volatility of active investment, is a keystone of the Keynesian system. This assumption is replete with so many grave errors that it is necessary to take them up one at a time. A. How do the Keynesians justify the assumption of a stable consumption function? One route was through budget studies, cross-sectional studies of the relation between family income and expenditure by income groups in a given year. Budget studies such as that of the National Resources Committee in the mid-1930s yielded similar consumption functions, with dishoardings increasing below a certain point and hoardings above it, that is, income below expenditures below a certain point and expenditures below income above it. This is supposed to intimate that those doing the dissaving, that is, the dishoarding, are poor people below the subsistence level who incur deficits by borrowing. But how long is this supposed to go on? How can there be a continuous deficit? Who would continue to lend these people the money? It is more reasonable to suppose that the dishoarders are decumulating their previously accumulated capital, that is, that they are wealthy people whose businesses suffered losses during that year. B. Aside from the fact that budget studies are misinterpreted, there are graver fallacies involved. For the budget study, at best, gives a cross-section of the relation between classes of family expenditure and income for one year. The Keynesian consumption function attempts to establish a relation between total social income and total social consumption for any given year, holding true over a hypothetical range of social incomes. Budget studies, therefore, can in no way confirm the Keynesian assumptions. C. Another very popular device to confirm the consumption function reached the peak of its popularity during World War II. This was historical statistical correlation of national income and consumption for a definite period of time, usually the 1930s. This correlation equation was then assumed to be the stable consumption function. Errors in this procedure were numerous. In the first place, even assuming such a stable relation, it would only be an historical conclusion, not a theoretical law. In physics, an experimentally determined law may be assumed to be constant for other identical situations. 
In human action, historical situations are never the same, and therefore there are no quantitative constants. Conditions and valuations could change at any time, and the stable relationship altered. There is here no proof of a stable consumption function. The dismal record of forecasts, such as those of post-war unemployment, made on this assumption should not have been surprising. Moreover, a stable relation was not even established. Income was correlated with consumption and with investment, but consumption is a much larger magnitude than net investment. Furthermore, income is here being correlated with 80 to 90 percent of itself. Naturally, the stability is tremendous. If income were correlated with saving of similar magnitude as investment, there would be no greater stability in the income-saving function than in the income-investment function. Thirdly, the consumption function is necessarily an ex-ante relation. It is supposed to tell how much consumers will decide to spend given a certain total income. Historical statistics, on the other hand, record only ex-post data, which give a completely different story. For any given period of time, for example, hoarding and dishoarding cannot be recorded ex-post. In fact, ex-post on double-entry accounting records, total social income is always equal to total social expenditures. Yet, in the dynamic ex-ante sense, it is precisely the divergence between total social income and total social expenditures, hoarding or dishoarding, that plays the crucial role in the Keynesian theory. But these divergences can never be revealed, as Keynesians believe, by study of ex-post data, Ex-post, in fact, saving always equals investment, and social expenditure always equals social income. Eric Lindahl shows the difficulties of mixing ex-post income with ex-ante consumption and spending, as the Keynesians do. Lindahl also shows that expenditure and income coincide if the divergence between expected and realized income affects income and not stocks. Yet it cannot affect stocks, for, contrary to Keynesian assertion, there is no such thing as hoarding or any other unexpected event leading to unintended increase in inventories. An increase in inventories is never unintended, since the seller has the alternative of selling the good at the market price. The fact that his inventory increases means that he has voluntarily invested in larger inventory, hoping for a future price rise. D. Actually, the whole idea of stable consumption functions has now been discredited, although many Keynesians do not fully realize this fact. 
In fact, Keynesians themselves have admitted that, in the long run, the consumption function is not stable, since total consumption rises as income rises, and that, in the short run, it is not stable, since it is affected by all sorts of changing factors. But, if it is not stable in the short run, and not stable in the long run, what kind of stability does it have? Of what use is it? We have seen that the only really important runs are the immediate and the long run, which shows the direction in which the immediate is tending. There is no use for some sort of separate intermediate situation. E. It is instructive to turn now to the reasons that Keynes himself, in contrast to his followers, gave for assuming his stable consumption function. It is a confused exposition indeed. The propensity to consume out of given income, according to Keynes, is determined by two sets of factors, objective and subjective. It seems clear, however, that these are purely subjective decisions, so that there can be no separate objective determinants. In classifying subjective factors, Keynes makes the mistake of subsuming hoarding and investing motivations under categories of separate causes, precaution, foresight, improvement, etc., Actually, as we have seen, the demand for money is ultimately determined by each individual for all sorts of reasons, but all tied up with uncertainty. Motives for investment are to maintain and increase future standards of living. By a sleight of hand completely unsupported by facts or argument, Keynes simply assumes all these subjective factors to be given in the short run, although he admits that they will change in the long run. If they change in the long run, how can his system yield an equilibrium position? He simply reduces the subjective motives to current economic organization, customs, standards of living, etc., and assumes them to be given. The objective factors, which in reality are subjective, such as time preference changes, expectations, etc., can admittedly cause short-run changes in the consumption function, such as windfall changes in capital values. Expectations of future changes in income can affect an individual's consumption, but Keynes simply asserts without discussion that this factor is likely to average out for the community as a whole. Time preferences are discussed in a very confused way, with interest rate and time preference assumed to be apart from and influencing the propensity to consume. Here again, short-run fluctuations are assumed to have little effect, and Keynes simply leaps to the conclusion that the propensity to consume is, in the short run, a fairly stable function. What is fairly supposed to mean? How can a theoretical law be based on fair stability? More stable than other functions? What are the grounds for this assumption? particularly as a law of human action. F. 
The failure of the consumption function theory is not only the failure of a specific theory, it is a profound epistemological failure as well. For the concept of a consumption function has no place in economics at all. Economics is praxeological, that is, its propositions are absolutely true given the existence of the axioms, the basic axiom being the existence of human action itself. Economics, therefore, is not and cannot be empirical in the positivist sense, that is, it cannot establish some sort of empirical hypothesis which could or could not be true, and at best is only true approximately. Quantitative empirico-historical laws are worthless in economics, since they may only be coincidences of complex facts, and not isolable, repeatable laws which will hold true in the future. The idea of the consumption function is not only wrong on many counts, it is irrelevant to economics. Furthermore, the very term function is inappropriate in a study of human action. Function implies a quantitative determined relationship, whereas no such quantitative determinism exists. People act and can change their actions at any time. No causal, constant, external determinants of action can exist. The term function is appropriate only to the unmotivated, repeatable motion of inorganic matter. In conclusion, there is no reason whatever to assume that at some point expenditures will be below income, while at lower points it will be above income. Economics does not and cannot know what ex-ante-expenditure will ever be in relation to income. At any point, it could be equal, or there could be net hoarding or dishoarding. The ultimate decisions are made by the individuals and are not determinable by science. There is, therefore, no stable expenditure function, whatever. C. The Multiplier The once highly esteemed multiplier has now happily faded in popularity, as economists have begun to realize that it is simply the obverse of the stable consumption function. However, the complete absurdity of the multiplier has not yet been fully appreciated. The theory of the investment multiplier runs somewhat as follows. Social income equals consumption plus investment. Consumption is a stable function of income, as revealed by statistical correlation, etc. Let us say, for the sake of simplicity, that the consumption will always be 0.8 income. Actually, the form of the Keynesian function is generally linear. For example, consumption equals 0.8 income plus 20. The form given in the text simplifies the exposition without, however, changing its essence. In that case, income equals 0.8 income plus investment. 0.2 income equals investment, or income equals 5 times investment.
The 5 is the investment multiplier. It is then obvious that all we need to increase social money income by a desired amount is to increase investment by one-fifth of that amount, and the multiplier magic will do the rest. The early pump primers believed in approaching this goal through stimulating private investment. Later Keynesians realized that if investment is an active, volatile factor, government spending is no less active and more certain, so that government spending must be relied upon to provide the needed multiplier effect. Creating new money would be most effective, since the government would then be sure not to reduce private funds. Hence the basis for calling all government spending investment. It is investment because it is not tied passively to income. The following is offered as a far more potent multiplier, on Keynesian grounds even more potent and effective than the investment multiplier, and on Keynesian grounds there can be no objection to it. It is a reductio ad absurdum, but it is not simply a parody, for it is in keeping with the Keynesian method. Social income equals income of, insert name of any person, say the reader, plus income of everyone else. Let us use symbols. Social income equals Y, income of the reader equals R, Income of everyone else equals V. We find that V is a completely stable function of Y. Plot the two on coordinates and we find historical one-to-one -one correspondence between them. It is a tremendously stable function, far more stable than the consumption function. On the other hand, plot R against Y. Here we find, instead of perfect correlation, only the remotest of connections between the fluctuating income of the reader of these lines and the social income. Therefore, this reader's income is the active, volatile, uncertain element in the social income, while everyone else's income is passive, stable, determined by the social income. Let us say the equation arrived at is V equals 0.999999Y. Then Y equals 0.999999Y plus R. 0.00001Y equals R. Y equals 100,000R. This is the reader's own personal multiplier, a far more powerful one than the investment multiplier. To increase social income and thereby cure depression and unemployment, it is only necessary for the government to print a certain number of dollars and give them to the reader of these lines. The reader's spending will prime the pump of a 100,000-fold increase in the national income. 18. The Fallacy of the Acceleration Principle The acceleration principle has been adopted by some Keynesians as their explanation of investment, then to be combined with the multiplier to yield various mathematical models of the business cycle.
The acceleration principle antedates Keynesianism, however, and may be considered on its own merits. It is almost always used to explain the behavior of investment in the business cycle. The essence of the acceleration principle may be summed up in the following illustration. Let us take a certain firm or industry, preferably a first-rank producer of consumers' goods. Assume that the firm is producing an output of 100 units of a good during a certain period of time, and that 10 machines of a certain type are needed in this production. If the period is a year, consumers demand and purchase 100 units of output per year. The firm has a stock of 10 machines. Suppose that the average life of a machine is 10 years. In equilibrium, the firm buys one machine as replacement every year, assuming it had bought a new machine every year to build up to 10. It is usually overlooked that this replacement pattern, necessary to the acceleration principle, could apply only to those firms or industries that had been growing in size rapidly and continuously. Now suppose that there is a 20% increase in the consumer demand for the firm's output. Consumers now wish to purchase 120 units of output. Assuming a fixed ratio of capital investment to output, it is now necessary for the firm to have 12 machines, maintaining the ratio of one machine to 10 units of annual output. In order to have the 12 machines, it must buy two additional machines this year. Add this demand to its usual demand of one machine, and we see that there has been a 200% increase in demand for the machine. A 20% increase in demand for the product has caused a 200% increase in demand for the capital good. Hence, say the proponents of the acceleration principle, an increase in consumption demand in general causes an enormously magnified increase in demand for capital goods. Or, rather, it causes a magnified increase in demand for fixed capital goods of high durability. Obviously, capital goods lasting only one year would receive no magnification effect. The essence of the acceleration principle is the relationship between the increased demand and the low level of replacement demand for a durable good. The more durable the good, the greater the magnification, and the greater, therefore, the acceleration effect. Now suppose that in the next year consumer demand for output remains at 120 units. There has been no change in consumer demand from the second year, when it changed from 100 to 120, to the third year. And yet, the accelerationists point out, dire things are happening in the demand for fixed capital. For now, there is no longer any need for firms to purchase any new machines beyond what is necessary for replacement. Needed for replacement is still only one machine per year. 
As a result, while there is zero change in demand for consumers' goods, there is a 200% decline in demand for fixed capital, and the former is the cause of the latter. In the long run, of course, the situation stabilizes into an equilibrium with 120 units of output and one unit of replacement. But in the short run, there has been consequent upon a simple increase of 20% in consumer demand. First, a 200% increase in the demand for fixed capital, and next, a 200% decrease. To the upholders of the acceleration principle, this illustration provides the key to some of the main features of the business cycle. The greater fluctuations of fixed capital goods industries as compared with consumers' goods, and the mass of errors revealed by the crisis in the investment goods industries. The acceleration principle leaps boldly from the example of a single firm to a discussion of aggregate consumption and aggregate investment. Everyone knows, the advocates say, that consumption increases in a boom. This increase in consumption accelerates and magnifies increases in investment. Then, the rate of increase of consumption slows down, and a decline is brought about in investment in fixed capital. Furthermore, if consumption demand declines, then there is excess capacity in fixed capital, another feature of the depression. The acceleration principle is rife with error. An important fallacy at the heart of the principle has been uncovered by W. H. Hutt. We have seen that consumer demand increases by 20%, but why must two extra machines be purchased in a year? What does the year have to do with it? If we analyze the matter closely, we find that the year is a purely arbitrary and irrelevant unit, even within the terms of the example itself. We might just as readily take a week as the period of time. Then we would have to say that consumer demand, which, after all, goes on continuously, increases 20% over the first week thereby necessitating a 200% increase in demand for machines in the first week, or even an infinite increase, if the replacement does not precisely occur in the first week, followed by a 200% or infinite decline in the next week, and stability thereafter. A week is never used by the accelerationists, because the example would then be glaringly inapplicable to real life, which does not see such enormous fluctuations in the course of a couple of weeks. But a week is no more arbitrary than a year. In fact, the only non-arbitrary period to choose would be the life of the machine, for example, ten years. Over a 10-year period, demand for machines had previously been 10 in the previous decade, and in the current and succeeding decades, it will be 10 plus the extra 2, that is, 12. 
In short, over the 10-year period, the demand for machines will increase precisely in the same proportion as the demand for consumers' goods, and there is no magnification effect whatever. Since businesses buy and produce over planned periods covering the life of their equipment, there is no reason to assume that the market will not plan production suitably and smoothly without the erratic fluctuations manufactured by the model of the acceleration principle. There is, in fact, no validity in saying that increased consumption requires increased production of machines immediately. On the contrary, it is only increased saving and investment in machines at points of time chosen by entrepreneurs strictly on the basis of expected profit that permits increased production of consumers' goods in the future. Secondly, the acceleration principle makes a completely unjustified leap from the single firm or industry to the whole economy. A 20% increase in consumption demand at one point must signify a 20% drop in consumption somewhere else. For how can consumption demand in general increase? Consumption demand in general can increase only through a shift from saving. But if saving decreases, then there are less funds available for investment. If there are less funds available for investment, how can investment increase even more than consumption? In fact, there are less funds available for investment when consumption increases. Consumption and investment compete for the use of funds. Another important consideration is that the proof of the acceleration principle is couched in physical rather than monetary terms. Actually, consumption demand, particularly aggregate consumption demand, as well as demand for capital goods, cannot be expressed in physical terms. It must be expressed in monetary terms, since the demand for goods is the reverse of the supply of money on the market for exchange. If consumer demand increases either for one good or for all, it increases in monetary terms, thereby raising prices of consumers' goods. Yet we notice that there has been no discussion whatever of prices or price relationships in the acceleration principle. This neglect of price relationships is sufficient by itself to invalidate the entire principle. Neglect of prices and price relations is at the core of a great many economic fallacies. The acceleration principle simply glides from a demonstration in physical terms to a conclusion in monetary terms. Furthermore, the acceleration principle assumes a constant relationship between fixed capital and output, ignoring substitutability, the possibility of a range of output, the more or less intensive working of factors. It also assumes that the new machines are produced practically instantaneously, thus ignoring the requisite period of production. 
In fact, the entire acceleration principle is a fallaciously mechanistic one, assuming automatic reactions by entrepreneurs to present data, thereby ignoring the most important fact about entrepreneurship that it is speculative, that its essence is estimating the data of the uncertain future. It therefore involves judgment of future conditions by businessmen, and not simply blind reactions to past data. Successful entrepreneurs are those who best forecast the future. Why can't the entrepreneurs foresee the supposed slackening of demand and arrange their investments accordingly? In fact, that is what they will do. If the economist, armed with knowledge of the acceleration principle, thinks that he will be able to operate more profitably than the generally successful entrepreneur, why does he not become an entrepreneur and reap the rewards of success himself? All theories of the business cycle attempting to demonstrate general entrepreneurial error on the free market founder on this problem. They do not answer the crucial question, why does a whole set of men, most able in judging the future, suddenly lapse into forecasting error? A clue to the correct business cycle theory is contained in the fact that buried somewhere in a footnote or minor clause of all business cycle theories is the assumption that the money supply expands during the boom, in particular through credit expansion by the banks. The fact that this is a necessary condition in all the theories should lead us to explore this factor further. Perhaps it is a sufficient condition as well. But, as we have seen, there can be no bank credit expansion on the free market, since this is equivalent to the issue of fraudulent warehouse receipts. The positive discussion of business cycle theory will have to be postponed to the next chapter, since there can be no business cycle in the purely free market. Business cycle theorists have always claimed to be more realistic than general economic theorists. With the exceptions of Mises and Hayek correctly and Schumpeter fallaciously, none has tried to deduce his business cycle theory from general economic analysis. It should be clear that this is required for a satisfactory explanation of the business cycle. Some, in fact, have explicitly discarded economic analysis altogether in their study of business cycles, while most writers use aggregate models with no relation to a general economic analysis of individual action. All of these commit the fallacy of conceptual realism, that is, of using aggregative concepts and shuffling them at will, without relating them to actual individual action, while believing that something is being said about the real world. The business cycle theorist pores over sine curves, mathematical models, and curves of all types. He shuffles equations and interactions and thinks that he is saying something about the economic system or about human action. In fact, he is not. The overwhelming bulk of current business cycle theory is not economics at all, 
but meaningless manipulation of mathematical equations and geometric diagrams. Chapter 12 The Economics of Violent Intervention in the Market 1. Introduction Up to this point we have been assuming that no violent invasion of person or property occurs in society. We have been tracing the economic analysis of the free society, the free market, where individuals deal with one another only peacefully and never with violence. This is the construct or model of the purely free market, and this model, imperfectly considered perhaps, has been the main object of study of economic analysis throughout the history of the discipline. In order to complete the economic picture of our world, however, economic analysis must be extended to the nature and consequences of violent actions and interrelations in society, including intervention in the market and violent abolition of the market, socialism. Economic analysis of intervention and socialism has developed much more recently than analysis of the free market. Some economists, notably Edwin Cannon, have denied that economic analysis could be applied to acts of violent intervention. But, on the contrary, economics is the praxeological analysis of human actions, and violent interrelations are forms of action which can be analyzed. In this book, space limitations prevent us from delving into the economics of intervention to the same extent as we have treated the economics of the free market, but our researches into the former field are summarized more briefly in this final chapter. One reason why economics has tended to concentrate on the free market is that here is presented the problem of order arising out of a seemingly anarchic and planless set of actions. We have seen that instead of the anarchy of production that a person untrained in economics might see in the free market, there emerges an orderly pattern structured to meet the desires of all individuals, and yet eminently suited to adapt to changing conditions. In this way, we have seen how the free, voluntary actions of individuals combine in an orderly determination of such seemingly mysterious processes as the formation of prices, income, money, economic calculation, profits and losses, and production. The fact that each man, in pursuing his own self-interest, furthers the interest of everyone else, is a conclusion of economic analysis, not an assumption on which the analysis is grounded. Many critics have accused economists of being biased in favor of the free market economy, but this, or any other conclusion of economics, is not a bias or prejudice, but a post-judice, to use a happy term of Professor E. Merrill Roots, a judgment made after inquiry, and not beforehand. 
Is it then surprising that the early economists, all religious men, marveled at their epical discovery of the harmony pervading the free market, and tended to ascribe this beneficence to a hidden hand or divine harmony? It is easier for us to scoff at their enthusiasm than to realize that it does not detract from the validity of their analysis. Conventional writers charge, for example, that the French optimistic school of the 19th century were engaging in a naive harmony lera, a mystical idea of a divinely ordained harmony. But this charge ignores the fact that the French optimists were building on the very sound welfare economic insight that voluntary exchanges on the free market conduce harmoniously to the benefit of all. Personal preferences, moreover, are completely separate from the validity of analytic procedures. The personal preferences of the analyst are of no interest for economic science. What is relevant is the validity of the method itself. 2. A Typology of Intervention Intervention is the intrusion of aggressive physical force into society. It means the substitution of coercion for voluntary actions. It must be remembered that praxeologically it makes no difference what individual or group wields this force. The economic nature and consequences of the action remain the same. Empirically, the vast bulk of interventions are performed by states. Since the state is the only organization in society legally equipped to use violence, and since it is the only agency that legally derives its revenue from a compulsory levy, it will therefore be convenient to confine our treatment to government intervention, bearing in mind, however, that private individuals may illegally use force, or that government may openly or covertly permit favored private groups to employ violence against the persons or property of others. What types of intervention can an individual or group commit? Little or nothing has so far been done to construct a systematic typology of intervention, and economists have simply discussed such seemingly disparate actions as price control, licensing, inflation, etc. We can, however, classify interventions into three broad categories— in the first place, the intervener, or invader, or aggressor, the individual or group that initiates violent intervention, may command an individual subject to do or not do certain things when these actions directly involve the individual's person or property alone. In short, the intervener may restrict the subject's use of his property where exchange with someone else is not involved. This may be called an autistic intervention, where the specific order or command involves only the subject himself. Secondly, the intervener may compel an exchange between the individual subject and himself or coerce a gift from the subject. We may call this a binary intervention, since a hegemonic relation is here established between two people, the intervener 
and the subject. Thirdly, the invader may either compel or prohibit an exchange between a pair of subjects. Exchanges always take place between two people. In this case, we have a triangular intervention, where a hegemonic relation is created between the invader and a pair of actual or potential exchangers. All these interventions are examples of the hegemonic relation, the relation of command and obedience, in contrast to the contractual free market relation of voluntary mutual benefit. Autistic intervention occurs, therefore, when the intervener coerces a subject without receiving any good or service in return. Simple homicide is an example. Another would be the compulsory enforcement or prohibition of a salute, speech, or religious observance. Even if the intervener is the state, issuing an edict to all members of society, the edict in itself is still autistic, since the lines of force radiate, so to speak, from the state to each individual alone. Binary intervention, where the intervener forces the subject to make an exchange or gift to the former, is exemplified in taxation, conscription, and compulsory jury service. Slavery is another example of binary, coerced exchange between master and slave. Examples of triangular intervention, where the intervener compels or prohibits exchanges between sets of two other individuals, are price control and licensing. Under price control, the state prohibits any pair of individuals from making an exchange below or above a certain fixed rate. Licensing prohibits certain people from making specified exchanges with others. Curiously enough, writers on political economy have recognized only cases in the third category as being intervention. It is understandable that economists have overlooked autistic intervention, for, in truth, economics can say little about events that lie outside the monetary exchange nexus. There is far less excuse for the neglect of binary intervention. 3. Direct Effects of Intervention on Utility In tracing the effects of intervention, we must explore both the direct and the indirect consequences. In the first place, intervention will have direct, immediate consequences on the utilities of those participating. On the one hand, when the society is free and there is no intervention, everyone will always act in the way that he believes will maximize his utility, that is, will raise him to the highest possible position on his value scale. In short, everyone's utility ex-ante will be maximized, provided we take care not to interpret utility in a cardinal manner. Any exchange on the free market, indeed, any action in the free society, occurs because it is expected to benefit each party concerned. 
if we may use the term society to depict the pattern, the array, of all individual exchanges, then we may say that the free market maximizes social utility, since everyone gains in utility from his free actions. Coercive intervention, on the other hand, signifies per se that the individual or individuals coerced would not have voluntarily done what they are now being forced to do by the intervener. The person who is forced into saying or not saying something, or into making or not making an exchange with the intervener or with a third party, is having his actions changed by a threat of violence. The man being coerced, therefore, always loses in utility as a result of the intervention, for his action has been forcibly changed by its impact. In autistic and binary interventions, the individual subjects each lose in utility. In triangular interventions, at least one and sometimes both of the pair of would-be exchangers lose in utility. Who gains in utility ex-ante? Clearly, the intervener. Otherwise, he would not have made the intervention. In the case of binary intervention, he himself gains directly in exchangeable goods or services at the expense of his subject. Perhaps we may note here the German sociologist Franz Oppenheimer's distinction between the free market and binary intervention as the economic as against the political means to the satisfaction of one's wants. There are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man, requiring sustenance, is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his desires. These are work and robbery, one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. I propose to call one's own labor and the equivalent exchange of one's own labor for the labor of others the economic means for the satisfaction of needs, while the unrequited appropriation of the labor of others will be called the political means. The state is an organization of the political means. In the case of autistic and triangular interventions, the intervener gains in a sense of psychic well-being from enforcing regulations upon others, or perhaps in providing a seeming justification for other binary interventions. In contrast to the free market, therefore, all cases of intervention supply one set of men with gains at the expense of another set. In binary interventions, the direct gains and losses are tangible in the form of exchangeable goods or services. In other cases, the direct gains are non-exchangeable satisfactions to the interveners, and the direct loss is being coerced into less satisfying, if not positively painful, forms of activity. Before the development of economic science, people tended to think of exchange and the market as always benefiting one party at the expense of the other. This was the root of the mercantilist view of the market, of what Ludwig von Mises calls the Montaigne fallacy. 
Economics has shown this to be a fallacy, for on the market, both parties to an exchange will benefit. One of the roots of this fallacy is the idea that in an exchange, the two things exchanged are or should be equal in value, and that inequality of value demonstrates exploitation. We have seen, on the contrary, that any exchange involves inequality of the values of each commodity between buyer and seller, and that it is this very double inequality of values that brings about the exchange. On the market, therefore, there can be no such thing as exploitation. But the thesis of an inherent conflict of interest is true whenever the state or anyone else wielding force intervenes on the market, for then the intervener gains at the expense of the subjects who lose in utility. On the market, all is harmony, but as soon as intervention appears on the scene, conflict is created for each person or group may participate in a scramble to be a net gainer rather than a net loser, to be part of the intervening team, as it were, rather than one of the victims. And the very institution of taxation ensures that some will be in the net gaining and others in the net losing class. It has become fashionable to assert that John C. Calhoun anticipated the Marxian doctrine of class exploitation, but actually Calhoun's classes were castes, creatures of state intervention itself. In particular, Calhoun saw that the binary intervention of taxation must always be spent so that some people in the community become net payers of tax funds and the others net recipients. Calhoun defined the latter as the ruling class and the former as the ruled. Thus, Few comparatively as they are, the agents and employees of the government constitute that portion of the community who are the exclusive recipients of the proceeds of the taxes. But as the recipients constitute only a portion of the community, it follows that the action of the fiscal process must be unequal between the payers of the taxes and the recipients of their proceeds. Nor can it be otherwise, unless what is collected from each individual in the shape of taxes shall be returned to him in that of disbursements, which would make the process nugatory and absurd. It must necessarily follow that some one portion of the community must pay in taxes more than it receives in disbursements, while another receives in disbursements more than it pays in taxes. It is then manifest that taxes must be, in effect, bounties to that portion of the community which receives more in disbursements than it pays in taxes, while to the other, which pays in taxes more than it receives in disbursements, they are taxes in reality, burdens instead of bounties. This consequence is unavoidable. It results from the nature of the process be the taxes ever so equally laid.
The necessary result, then, of the unequal fiscal action of the government is to divide the community into two great classes, one consisting of those who, in reality, pay the taxes and, of course, bear exclusively the burden of supporting the government, and the other of those who are the recipients of their proceeds through disbursements and who are, in fact, supported by the government. Or, the effect of this is to place them in antagonistic relations in reference to the fiscal action of the government. For the greater the taxes and disbursements, the greater the gain of the one and the loss of the other, and vice versa. Since all state actions rest on the fundamental binary intervention of taxation, it follows that no state action can increase social utility, that is, can increase the utility of all affected individuals. A common objection to the conclusion that the free market, in unique contrast to intervention, increases the utility of every individual in society, points to the fate of the entrepreneur whose product suddenly becomes obsolete. Take, for example, the buggy manufacturer, who faces a shift in public demand from buggies to automobiles. Does he not lose utility from the operation of the free market? We must realize, however, that we are concerned only with the utilities that are demonstrated by the manufacturer's action. In both period one, when consumers demanded buggies, and in period two, when they shifted to autos, he acts so as to maximize his utility on the free market. The fact that, in retrospect, he prefers the results of period one may be interesting data for the historian, but is irrelevant for the economic theorist. For the manufacturer is not living in period one anymore. He lives always under present conditions and in relation to the present value scales of his fellow men. Voluntary exchanges in any given period will increase the utility of everyone and will therefore maximize social utility. The buggy manufacturer could not restore the conditions or results of period one unless he used force against others to coerce their exchanges. But in that case, social utility could no longer be maximized because of his invasive act. Just as some writers have tried to deny the voluntary nature and the mutual benefits of free exchange, so others have tried to attribute a voluntary quality to actions of the state. Generally, this attempt has been based either on the view that there exists an entity, society, which cheerfully endorses and supports the actions of the state, or that the majority endorses these acts, and that this somehow means universal support, or, finally, that somehow, down deep, even the opposing minority endorses the acts of the state. From these fallacious assumptions, they conclude that the state can increase social utility at least as well as the market can. Schumpeter's insights on the fallacy of attributing a voluntary nature to the state deserve to be heeded. 
Ever since the prince's feudal income ceased to be of major importance, the state has been living on a revenue which was being produced in the private sphere for private purposes, and had to be deflected from these purposes by political force. The theory which construes taxes on the analogy of club dues or of the purchase of the services of, say, a doctor, only proves how far removed this part of the social sciences is from scientific habits of mind. Having described the unanimity and harmony of the free market, as well as the conflict and losses of utility generated by intervention, let us ask what happens if government is used to check interventions in the market by private criminals, that is, private imposers of coerced exchanges. It has been asked, is not this police function an act of intervention, and does not the free market itself then necessarily rest on a framework of such intervention? And does not the existence of the free market therefore require a loss of utility on the part of the criminals who are being punished by the government? In the first place, we must remember that the purely free market is an array of voluntary exchanges between sets of two persons. If there are no threats of criminal intervention in that market, say because everyone feels duty-bound to respect the private property of others, no framework of counter-intervention will be needed. The police function is therefore solely a secondary derivative problem, not a precondition of the free market. Secondly, if governments, or private agencies for that matter, are employed to check and combat intervention in society by criminals, it is certainly obvious that this combat imposes losses of utility upon the criminals. But these acts of defense are hardly intervention in our sense of the term. For the losses of utility are being imposed only upon people who, in turn, have been trying to impose losses of utility on peaceful citizens. In short, the force used by police agencies in defending individual freedom, that is, in defending the persons and property of the citizens, is purely an inhibitory force. It is counter-intervention against true initiatory intervention. While such counter-action cannot maximize social utility, the utility of everyone in society involved in interpersonal actions, it does maximize the utility of non-criminals, that is, those who have been peacefully maximizing their own utility without inflicting losses upon others. Should these defense agencies do their job perfectly and eliminate all interventions, then their existence will be perfectly compatible with the maximization of social utility. 4. Utility ex post. Free market and government. We have thus seen that individuals maximize their utility ex ante on the free market, and that they cannot do so when there is intervention, for then the intervener gains in utility only at the expense of a demonstrated loss in utility by his subject. 
But what of utilities ex post? People may expect to benefit when they make decisions, but do they actually benefit from their results? How do the free market and intervention compare in traveling that vital path from ante to post? For the free market, the answer is that the market is constructed so as to reduce error to a minimum. There is, in the first place, a fast-working, highly accurate, easily understandable test that tells the entrepreneur and also the income receiver whether they are succeeding or failing at the task of satisfying the desires of the consumer. For the entrepreneur who carries the main burden of adjustment to uncertain, fluctuating consumer desires, the test is particularly swift and sure. Profits or losses? Large profits are a signal that he has been on the right track. Losses that he has been on a wrong one. Profits and losses spur rapid adjustments to consumer demands. At the same time, they perform the function of getting money out of the hands of the inefficient entrepreneurs and into the hands of the good ones. The fact that good entrepreneurs prosper and add to their capital, and poor ones are driven out, ensures an ever smoother market adjustment to changes in conditions. Similarly, to a lesser extent, land and labor factors move in accordance with the desire of their owners for higher incomes, and highly value-productive factors are rewarded accordingly. Consumers also take entrepreneurial risks on the market. Many critics of the market, while willing to concede the expertise of the capitalist entrepreneurs, bewail the prevailing ignorance of consumers, which prevents them from gaining the utility ex post that they had expected ex ante. Typically, Wesley C. Mitchell entitled one of his famous essays, The Backward Art of Spending Money. Professor Mises has keenly pointed out the paradox of interventionists who insist that consumers are too ignorant or incompetent to buy products intelligently, while at the same time proclaiming the virtues of democracy, where the same people vote for or against politicians whom they do not know and on policies which they scarcely understand. To put it another way, the partisans of intervention assume that individuals are not competent to run their own affairs or to hire experts to advise them, but also assume that these same individuals are competent to vote for these experts at the ballot box. They are further assuming that the mass of supposedly incompetent consumers are competent to choose not only those who will rule over themselves, but also over the competent individuals in society. Yet such absurd and contradictory assumptions lie at the root of every program for democratic intervention in the affairs of the people. Neither are these contradictions removed by abandoning democracy in favor of dictatorship. For even if the mass of the public do not vote under a dictatorship, they must still consent to the rule of the dictator and his chosen experts, and therefore their unique competence in the political field as against other spheres of their daily life must still be assumed. 
In fact, the truth is precisely the reverse of this popular ideology. Consumers are surely not omniscient, but they have direct tests by which to acquire and check their knowledge. They buy a certain brand of breakfast food, and they do not like it, and so they do not buy it again. They buy a certain type of automobile and like its performance. They buy another one. And in both cases, they tell their friends of this newly won knowledge. Other consumers patronize consumers' research organizations, which can warn or advise them in advance. But in all cases, the consumers have the direct test of results to guide them, and the firm which satisfied the consumers expands and prospers, and thus gains goodwill, while the firm failing to satisfy them goes out of business. On the other hand, voting for politicians and public policies is a completely different matter. Here, there are no direct tests of success or failure whatever, neither profits and losses nor enjoyable or unsatisfying consumption. In order to grasp consequences, especially the indirect catalactic consequences of governmental decisions, it is necessary to comprehend complex chains of praxeological reasoning. Very few voters have the ability or the interest to follow such reasoning, particularly, as Schumpeter points out, in political situations. For the minute influence that any one person has on the results, as well as the seeming remoteness of the actions, keeps people from gaining interest in political problems or arguments. Lacking the direct test of success or failure, the voter tends to turn not to those politicians whose policies have the best chance of success, but to those who can best sell their propaganda ability. Without grasping logical chains of deduction, the average voter will never be able to discover the errors that his ruler makes. To borrow an example from a later section of this chapter, suppose that the government inflates the money supply, thereby causing an inevitable rise in prices. The government can blame the price rise on wicked speculators or alien black marketeers, and unless the public knows economics, it will not be able to see the fallacies in the ruler's arguments. It is curious once more that the very writers who complain most of the wiles and lures of advertising never apply their critique to the one area where it is truly correct, the advertising of politicians. As Schumpeter states, the picture of the prettiest girl that ever lived will in the long run prove powerless to maintain the sales of a bad cigarette. There is no equally effective safeguard in the case of political decisions. Many decisions of fateful importance are of a nature that makes it impossible for the public to experiment with them at its leisure and at moderate cost. Even if that is possible, judgment is, as a rule, not so easy to arrive at as in the case of the cigarette, because effects are less easy to interpret. George J. Schuller, in attempting to refute this argument, protested that complex chains of reasoning are required for consumers to select intelligently an automobile or television set. 
But such knowledge is not necessary, for the whole point is that the consumers have always at hand a simple and pragmatic test of success. Does the product work and work well? In public economic affairs, there is no such test, for no one can know whether a particular policy has worked or not without knowing the a priori reasoning of economics. It may be objected that while the average voter may not be competent to decide on issues that require chains of praxeological reasoning, he is competent to pick the experts, the politicians, who will decide on the issues, just as the individual may select his own private expert advisor in any one of numerous fields. But the critical problem is precisely that in government, the individual has no direct, personal test of success or failure of his hired expert, such as he has in the market. On the market, individuals tend to patronize those experts whose advice is most successful. Good doctors or lawyers reap rewards on the free market, while poor ones fail. The privately hired expert flourishes in proportion to his ability. In government, on the other hand, there is no market test of the expert's success. Since there is no direct test in government, and indeed little or no personal contact or relationship between politician or expert and voter, there is no way by which the voter can gauge the true expertise of the man he is voting for. As a matter of fact, the voter is in even greater difficulties in the modern type of issueless election between candidates who agree on all fundamental questions than he is voting on issues. For issues, after all, are susceptible to reasoning. The voter can, if he wants to and has the ability, learn about and decide on the issues. But what can any voter, even the most intelligent, know about the true expertise or competence of individual candidates, especially when elections are shorn of all important issues? The only thing that the voter can fall back on for a decision are the purely external, advertised personalities of the candidates, their glamorous smiles, etc., the result is that voting purely on candidates is bound to be even less rational than voting on the issues themselves. Not only does government lack a successful test for picking the proper experts, not only is the voter necessarily more ignorant than the consumer, but government itself has other inherent mechanisms which lead to poorer choices of experts and officials. For one thing, the politician and the government expert receive their revenues not from service voluntarily purchased on the market, but from a compulsory levy on the inhabitants. These officials, then, wholly lack the direct pecuniary incentive to care about servicing the public properly and competently. Furthermore, the relative rise of the fittest applies in government as in the market, but the criterion of fitness is here very different. In the market, the fittest are those most able to serve the consumers.
In government, the fittest are either 1. those most able at wielding coercion, or 2. if bureaucratic officials, those best fitted to curry favor with the leading politicians, or 3. if politicians, those most adroit at appeals to the voting public. Another critical divergence between market action and democratic voting is this. The voter has, for example, only a one-one-hundred-billionth power to choose among his potential rulers, who in turn will make decisions affecting him unchecked until the next election. The individual acting on the market, on the other hand, has absolute sovereign power to make decisions over his property, not just a removed one-one-hundred-billionth power. Furthermore, the individual is continually demonstrating his choices of whether to buy or not to buy, to sell or not to sell, by making absolute decisions in regard to his property. The voter, by voting for some particular candidate, demonstrates only a relative preference for him over one or two other potential rulers, and he must do this, let us not forget, within the framework of the coercive rule that whether he votes or not, one of these men will rule over him for the next few years. We should also not forget that with a secret ballot, the voter does not even demonstrate this much of a constrained and limited preference. It may be objected that the shareholder voting in a corporation is in similar straits, but he is not. Aside from the critical point that the corporation does not acquire its funds by compulsory levy, the shareholder still has absolute power over his own property by being able to sell his shares on the free market, something that the democratic voter clearly cannot do. Moreover, the shareholder has voting power in the corporation proportionate to his degree of property ownership of the common assets. Thus we see that the free market has a smooth, efficient mechanism to bring anticipated ex-ante utility into the realization and fruition of ex-post. The free market always maximizes ex-ante social utility. It always tends to maximize ex-post social utility as well. The field of political action, on the other hand, that is, the field where most intervention takes place, has no such mechanism. Indeed, the political process inherently tends to delay and thwart the realization of expected gains, so that the divergence in ex-post results between free market and intervention is even greater than in ex-ante, anticipated utility. In fact, the divergence is still greater than we have shown. For, as we analyze the indirect consequences of intervention in the remainder of this chapter, we shall find that in every instance the consequences of intervention will make the intervention look worse in the eyes of many of its original supporters. Thus we shall find that the indirect consequence of a price control is to cause unexpected shortages of the product. Ex post, many of the interveners themselves will feel that they have lost, rather than gained, in utility. 
In sum, the free market always benefits every participant, and it maximizes social utility ex ante. It also tends to do so ex post, for it contains an efficient mechanism for speedily converting anticipations into realizations. With intervention, one group gains directly at the expense of another, and therefore social utility is not maximized or even increased. There is no mechanism for speedy translation of anticipation into fruition, but indeed the opposite. And finally, as we shall see, the indirect consequences of intervention will cause many interveners themselves to lose utility ex post. The remainder of this chapter traces the nature and indirect consequences of various forms of intervention. 5. Triangular Intervention Price Control A triangular intervention occurs when an intervener either compels a pair of people to make an exchange or prohibits them from making an exchange. The coercion may be imposed on the terms of the exchange or on the nature of one or both of the products being exchanged or on the people doing the exchanging. The former type of triangular intervention is called a price control because it deals specifically with the terms, that is, the price at which the exchange is made. The latter may be called product control, as dealing specifically with the nature of the product or of the producer. An example of price control is a decree by the government that no one may buy or sell a certain product at more, or alternatively, less than X gold ounces per pound. An example of product control is the prohibition of the sale of this product, or prohibition of the sale by any but certain persons selected by the government. Clearly, both forms of control have various repercussions on both the price and the nature of the product. A price control may be effective or ineffective. It will be ineffective if the regulation has no influence on the market price. Thus, if automobiles are selling at 100 gold ounces on the market and the government decrees that no autos be sold for more than 300 ounces on pain of punishment inflicted on violators, the decree is at present completely academic and ineffective. Of course, even a completely ineffective triangular control is likely to increase the government bureaucracy dealing with the matter and therefore increase the total amount of binary intervention over the taxpayer. However, should a customer wish to order an unusual custom built automobile for which the seller would charge over 300 ounces, Then the regulation now becomes effective and changes transactions from what they would have been on the free market. There are two types of effective price control a maximum price control that prohibits all exchanges of a good above a certain price, with the controlled price being below the market equilibrium price. 
and a minimum price control prohibiting exchanges below a certain price, this fixed price being above market equilibrium. The government, let us assume, imposes a maximum control price above which any sale is illegal. At the control price, the market is no longer cleared, and the quantity demanded exceeds the quantity supplied. In this way, an artificially created shortage of the good has been created. In any shortage, consumers rush to buy goods which are not available at the price. Some must do without. Others must patronize the market, revived as illegal or black, paying a premium for the risk of punishment that sellers now undergo. The chief characteristic of a price maximum is the queue, the endless lining up for goods that are not sufficient to supply the people at the rear of the line. All sorts of subterfuges are invented by people desperately seeking to arrive at the clearance of supply and demand once provided by the market. Under-the-table deals, bribes, favoritism for older customers, etc., are inevitable features of a market shackled by the price maximum. A bribe is only payment of the market price by a buyer. It must be noted that even if the stock of a good is frozen for the foreseeable future, this artificial shortage will still develop, and all these consequences ensue. The more elastic the supply, that is, the more resources shift out of production, the more aggravated, ceteris paribus, the shortage will be. The firms that leave production are the ones nearest the margin. If the price control is selective, that is, is imposed on one or a few products, the economy will not be as universally dislocated as under general maxima, but the artificial shortage created in the particular line will be even more pronounced, since entrepreneurs and factors can shift to the production and sale of other products, preferably substitutes. The prices of the substitutes will go up as the excess demand is channeled off in their direction. In the light of this fact, the typical government reason for selective price control we must impose controls on this necessary product so long as it continues in short supply, is revealed to be an almost ludicrous error. For the truth is the reverse. Price control creates an artificial shortage of the product, which continues as long as the control is in existence. In fact, becomes ever worse as resources have time to shift to other products. If the government were really worried about the short supply of certain products, it would go out of its way not to impose maximum price controls upon them. Before investigating further the effects of general price maxima, let us analyze the consequences of a minimum price control, that is, the imposition of a price above the free market price. Under these circumstances, the quantity demanded is less than the quantity supplied. Thus, while the effect of a maximum price is to create an artificial shortage, a minimum price creates an artificial unsold surplus. 
the unsold surplus exists even if the stock of the good is frozen for the foreseeable future, but a more elastic supply will, ceteris paribus, aggravate the surplus. Once again, the market is not cleared. The artificially high price at first attracts resources into the field, while at the same time discouraging buyer demand. Under selective price control, resources will leave other fields where they benefit themselves and consumers better and transfer to this field where they overproduce and suffer losses as a result. This offers an interesting example of intervention tampering with the market and causing entrepreneurial losses. Entrepreneurs operate on the basis of certain criteria prices, interest rate, etc., established by the free market. Interventionary tampering with these signals destroys the continual market tendency to adjustment and brings about losses and misallocation of resources in satisfying consumer wants. General overall price maxima dislocate the entire economy and deny consumers the enjoyment of substitutes. General price maxima are usually imposed for the announced purpose of preventing inflation, invariably while the government is inflating the money supply by a large amount. Overall price maxima are equivalent to imposing a minimum on the PPM. As a result, the money stock exceeds the money demanded. As a result, people possess a quantity of money in unsold surplus, they try to sell their money by buying goods, but they cannot. Their money is anesthetized. To the extent that a government's overall price maximum is effective, a part of people's money becomes useless, for it cannot be exchanged. But a mad scramble inevitably ensues, with each person hoping that his money can be used. Ironically, the government's destruction of part of the people's money almost always takes place after the government has pumped in new money and used it for its own purposes. The injury that the government imposes on the public is twofold. One, it takes resources away from the public by inflating the currency— and, two, after the money has percolated down to the public, it destroys part of the money's usefulness. Favoritism, lining up, bribes, etc., inevitably abound, as well as great pressure for a black market, that is, the market, to provide a channel for the surplus money. A general price minimum is equivalent to a maximum control on the PPM, this sets up an unsatisfied excess demand for money over the stock of money available, specifically in the form of unsold stocks of goods in every field. The principles of maximum and minimum price control apply to any prices, whatever they may be, of consumers' goods, capital goods, land or labor services, or, as we have seen, the price of money in terms of other goods. They apply, for example, to minimum wage laws. 
When a minimum wage law is effective, that is, where it imposes a wage above the market value of a grade of labor, above the laborer's discounted marginal value product, the supply of labor services exceeds the demand, and the unsold surplus of labor services means involuntary mass unemployment. Selective, as opposed to general minimum wage rates, create unemployment in particular industries and tend to perpetuate these pockets by attracting labor to the higher rates. Labor is eventually forced to enter less remunerative, less value-productive lines. This analysis applies whether the minimum wage is imposed by the state or by a labor union. The reader is referred to Chapter 10 for an analysis of the rare case of a minimum wage imposed by a voluntary union. We saw that this creates unemployment and shifts labor to less remunerative and value-productive branches of employment, but that these results must be treated as voluntary. To prohibit people from joining unions and agreeing voluntarily on union wage scales and on the mystique of unionism would subject workers by force to the dictates of consumers and would impose a welfare loss upon the former. However, as we have stated, a spread among the workers of praxeological knowledge, of a realization that union solidarity causes unemployment and lower wage rates for many workers, would probably weaken this solidarity considerably. Empirically, on the other hand, almost all cases of effective unionism are imposed through coercion exercised by unions, that is, through union intervention in the market. In the present-day United States, much of the task of coercion has been assumed on the union's behalf by the government. This was the essence of the Wagner Act, the law of the land since 1935. The Taft-Hartley Act was only a relatively unimportant amendment to the Wagner Act, which continues on the books. The crucial provisions of this act are, one, to coerce all workers in a certain production unit, arbitrarily defined ad hoc by the government, into being represented by a union in bargaining with an employer if a majority of workers agree. Two, to prohibit the employer from refusing to hire union members or union organizers, and three, to compel the employer to bargain with this union. Thus, unions have been invested with governmental authority, and the strong arm of the government uses coercion to force workers and employers alike to deal with the unions. The effects of union intervention are then the same as the same degree of government intervention would have been. As we have pointed out, the analysis of intervention applies to whatever agency wields the violence, whether private or governmental. Unemployment and misallocations of many workers to less efficient and lower-paying jobs again occur in this case, and again, involuntarily. Our analysis of the effects of price control applies also, as Mises has brilliantly shown, to control over the price, exchange rate, of one money in terms of another. 
This was partially seen in Gresham's Law, one of the first economic laws to be discovered. Few have realized that this law is merely a specific instance of the general consequences of price controls. Perhaps this failure is due to the misleading formulation of Gresham's Law, which is usually phrased, bad money drives good money out of circulation. Taken at its face value, this is a paradox that violates the general rule of the market that the best methods of satisfying consumers tend to win out over the poorer. The phrasing has been fallaciously used even by those who generally favor the free market to justify a state monopoly over the coinage of gold and silver. Actually, Gresham's law should read, Money overvalued by the state will drive money undervalued by the state out of circulation. Whenever the state sets an arbitrary value or price on one money in terms of another, it thereby establishes an effective minimum price control on one money and a maximum price control on the other, the prices being in terms of each other. This, for example, was the essence of bimetallism. Under bimetallism, a nation recognized gold and silver as monies, but set an arbitrary price or exchange ratio between them. When this arbitrary price differed as it was bound to do from the free market price, and this became ever more likely as time passed and the free market price changed while the government's arbitrary price remained the same, one money became overvalued and the other undervalued by the government. Thus, suppose that a country used gold and silver as monies, and the government set the ratio between them at 16 ounces of silver to 1 ounce of gold. The market price, perhaps 16 to 1 at the time of the price control, then changes to 15 to 1. What is the result? Silver is now being arbitrarily undervalued by the government, and gold arbitrarily overvalued. In other words, silver is fixed cheaper than it really is in terms of gold on the market, and gold is forced to be more expensive than it really is in terms of silver. The government has imposed a price maximum on silver and a price minimum on gold in terms of each other. The same consequences now follow as from any effective price control. With a price maximum on silver, the gold demand for silver in exchange now exceeds the silver demand for gold. Conversely, with a price minimum on gold, the silver demand for gold is less than the gold demand for silver. Gold goes begging for silver in unsold surplus, while silver becomes scarce and disappears from circulation. Silver disappears to another country or area where it can be exchanged at the free market price, and gold, in turn, flows into the country. If the bimetallism is worldwide, then silver disappears into the black market, and official or open exchanges are made only with gold. No country, therefore, can maintain a bimetallic system in practice, since one money will always be undervalued or overvalued in terms of the other. The overvalued always displaces the other from circulation, 
the latter being scarce. Similar consequences follow from such price control as setting arbitrary exchange rates on fiat monies, and in setting new and worn coins arbitrarily equal to one another when they discernibly differ in weight. To sum up our analysis of price control, directly the utility of at least one set of exchangers will be injured by the control. Indirectly, as we find by further analysis, hidden but just as certain effects injure a substantial number of people who thought they would gain in utility from the imposed controls. The announced aim of a maximum price control is to benefit the consumer by giving him his supply at a lower price. Yet the objective effect is to prevent many consumers from having the good at all. The announced aim of a minimum price control is to ensure higher prices to the sellers. Yet the effect will be to prevent many sellers from selling any of their surplus. Furthermore, the price controls inevitably distort the production and allocation of resources and factors in the economy, thereby injuring again the bulk of consumers. And we must not overlook the army of bureaucrats who must be financed by the binary intervention of taxation and who must administer and enforce the myriad of regulations. This army in itself withdraws a mass of workers from productive labor and saddles them onto the remaining producers, thereby benefiting the bureaucrats but injuring the rest of the people. 6. Triangular Intervention Product Control Triangular interference with an exchange can alter the terms of the exchange or else in some way alter the nature of the product or the persons making the exchange. The latter intervention, product control, may regulate the product itself, for example a law prohibiting all sales of liquor or the people selling or buying the product. For example, a law prohibiting Mohammedans from selling or buying liquor. Product control clearly and evidently injures all parties concerned in the exchange. The consumers who lose utility because they cannot purchase the product and satisfy their most urgent wants, and the producers who are prevented from earning a remuneration in this field, and must therefore settle for lower earnings elsewhere. Losses by producers are particularly borne by laborers and landowners, specific to the industry, who must accept permanently lower income. Entrepreneurial profit is ephemeral anyway, and capitalists tend to earn a uniform interest rate throughout the economy. Whereas with price control, one could make out a prima facie case that at least one set of exchangers gains from the control, the consumers whose buying price is pushed below the free market price, and the producers when the price is pushed above, in product control, both parties to the exchange invariably lose. The direct beneficiaries of product control, then, are the government bureaucrats who administer the regulations. 
partly from the tax-created jobs that the regulations create, and partly, perhaps, from satisfactions gained from wielding coercive power over others. In many cases of product prohibition, of course, inevitable pressure develops, as in price control, for the re-establishment of the market illegally, that is, a black market. A black market is always in difficulties because of its illegality. The product will be scarce and costly to cover the risks to producers involved in violating the law and the costs of bribing government officials, and the more strict the prohibition and penalties, the scarcer the product will be and the higher the price. Furthermore, the illegality greatly hinders the process of distributing information about the existence of the market to consumers, for example, by way of advertising. As a result, the organization of the market will be far less efficient, the service to the consumer of poorer quality, and prices for this reason alone will be higher than under a legal market. The premium on secrecy in the black market also militates against large-scale business, which is likely to be more visible and therefore more vulnerable to law enforcement. Paradoxically, product or price control is apt to serve as a monopolistic grant of privilege to the black marketeers for they are likely to be very different entrepreneurs from those who would have succeeded in this industry in a legal market. For here, the premium is on skill in bypassing the law, bribing government officials, etc. It was notorious, for example, that the bootleggers, a caste created by prohibition, were one of the main groups opposing repeal of prohibition in America. Product prohibition may either be absolute, as in American liquor prohibition during the 1920s, or partial. An example of partial prohibition is compulsory rationing, which prohibits consumption beyond a certain amount. The clear effect of rationing is to injure consumers and lower the standard of living of everyone. Since rationing places legal maxima on specific items of consumption, it also distorts the pattern of consumers' spending. Consumers' spending is coercively shifted from the goods more heavily to those less heavily rationed. Furthermore, since ration tickets are usually not transferable, the pattern of consumer spending is even more distorted, because people who do not want a certain commodity are not permitted to exchange these coupons for goods not wanted by others. In short, the non-smoker is not permitted to exchange his cigarette coupons for someone else's gasoline coupons, which have been allocated to those who do not own cars. Ration tickets, therefore, cripple the entire system by introducing a new type of highly inefficient quasi-money, which must be used for purchasing in addition to the regular money. One form of partial product prohibition is to forbid all but certain selected firms from selling a particular product. Such partial exclusion means that these firms are granted a special privilege by the government. 
If such a grant is given to one person or firm, we may call it a monopoly grant. If to several persons or firms, it is a quasi-monopoly grant. We might well call the latter an oligopoly grant, but this would engender hopeless confusion with existing oligopoly theory. Both types of grant may be called monopolistic. An example of this type of grant is licensing, where all those to whom the government refuses to give or sell a license are prevented from pursuing the trade or business. Another example is a protective tariff, or import quota, which prevents competition from beyond a country's geographical limits. Of course, outright monopoly grants to a firm, or compulsory cartelization of an industry, are clear-cut grants of monopolistic privilege. It is obvious that a monopolistic grant directly and immediately benefits the monopolist or quasi-monopolist, whose competitors are debarred by violence from entering the field. It is also evident that would-be competitors are injured and are forced to accept lower remuneration in less efficient and value-productive fields. It is also patently clear that the consumers are injured, for they are prevented from purchasing products from competitors whom they would freely prefer. And this injury takes place, it should be noted, apart from any effect of the grant on prices. In Chapter 10, we buried the theory of monopoly price. We must now resurrect it. The theory of monopoly price as developed there is illusory when applied to the free market, but it applies fully in the case of monopoly and quasi-monopoly grants. For here, we have an identifiable distinction, not the spurious distinction between competitive and monopoly or monopolistic price, but one between the free market price and the monopoly price. The free market price is conceptually identifiable and definable, whereas the competitive price is not. The theory of monopoly price, therefore, properly contrasts it to the free market price, and the reader is referred back to chapter 10 for a description of the theory which can now be applied here. The monopolist will be able to achieve a monopoly price for the product if his demand is inelastic above the free market price. We have seen that on the free market, every demand presented to a firm is elastic above the free market price. Otherwise, the firm would have an incentive to raise its price and increase its revenue. But the grant of monopoly privilege renders the consumer demand less elastic, for the consumer is deprived of substitute products from other potential competitors. Whether this lowering of elasticity will be sufficient to make the demand presented to the firm inelastic, so that gross revenue will be greater at a price higher than the free market price, depends on the concrete historical data of the case, and is not for economic analysis to determine. 
When the demand presented to the firm remains elastic so that gross revenue will be lower at a higher-than-free-market price, the monopolist will not reap any monopoly gain from his grant. Consumers and competitors will still be injured because their trade is prevented, but the monopolist will not gain because his price and income will be no higher than before. On the other hand, if his demand is inelastic, then he institutes a monopoly price so as to maximize his revenue. His production has to be restricted in order to command the higher price. The restriction of production and higher price for the product both injure the consumers. Here, the argument of Chapter 10 must be reversed. We may no longer say that a restriction of production, such as in a voluntary cartel, benefits the consumers by arriving at the most value-productive point. On the contrary, the consumers are now injured because their free choice would have resulted in the free market price. Because of coercive force applied by the state, they may not purchase goods freely from all those willing to sell. In other words, any approach toward the free market equilibrium price and output point for any product benefits the consumers and thereby benefits the producers as well. Any departure away from the free market price and output injures the consumers. The monopoly price resulting from a grant of monopoly privilege leads away from the free market price. It lowers output and raises prices beyond what would be established if consumers and producers could trade freely. And we cannot here use the argument that the restriction is voluntary because the consumers make their own demand inelastic. For the consumers are only fully responsible for their demand on the free market and only this demand can be fully treated as an expression of their voluntary choice. Once the government steps in to prohibit trade and grant privileges, there is no longer wholly voluntary action. Consumers are forced, willy-nilly, to deal with the monopolist for a certain range of purchases. All the effects which monopoly price theorists have mistakenly attributed to voluntary cartels, therefore, do apply to governmental monopoly grants. Production is restricted, and factors are released for production elsewhere. But now, we can say that this production will satisfy the consumers less than under free market conditions. Furthermore, the factors will earn less in the other occupations. As we saw in Chapter 10, there can never be lasting monopoly profits, since profits are ephemeral and all eventually reduce to a uniform interest return. In the long run, monopoly returns are imputed to some factor. What is the factor being monopolized in this case? It is obvious that this factor is the right to enter the industry. In the free market, this right is unlimited to all, and therefore unowned by anyone. The right commands no price on the market because everyone already has it. 
But here, the government has conferred special privileges of entry and sale, and it is these special privileges or rights that are responsible for the extra monopoly gain from a monopoly price, and to which we may impute the gain. The monopolist earns a monopoly gain, therefore, not for owning any truly productive factor, but from owning a special privilege granted by the government. And this gain does not disappear in the long-run ERE as do profits. It is permanent, so long as the privilege remains and consumer valuations continue as they are. Of course, the monopoly gain may well be capitalized into the asset value of the firm, so that subsequent owners who invest in the firm after the capitalization took place will be earning only the equal interest return. A notable example of the capitalization of monopoly, or rather quasi-monopoly, rights is the New York City taxicab industry. Every taxicab must be licensed but the city decided years ago not to issue any further licenses or medallions, so that any new cab owner must purchase his medallion from some previous owner. The high price of medallions on the market is then the capitalized value of the monopoly privilege. As we have seen, all this applies to a quasi-monopolist as well as to a monopolist, since the number of the former's competitors is also restricted by the grant of privilege, which makes his demand less elastic. Of course, ceteris paribus, a monopolist is in a better position than a quasi-monopolist, but how much each benefits depends purely on the data of the particular case. In some cases, such as the protective tariff, the quasi-monopolist will end in the long run by not gaining anything. For since freedom of entry is restricted only to foreign firms, the higher returns accruing to firms newly protected by a tariff will attract more domestic capital to that industry. Eventually, therefore, the new capital will drive the rate of earnings down to the interest rate usual in all of industry, and the monopolistic gain will have been competed away. Monopoly privilege is granted by a government, which has power only over its own geographic area. Therefore, monopoly prices achieved within an area are always, on the market, subject to devastating competition from other countries. This is increasingly true as civilization advances and transportation costs decline, thus subjecting local monopolies to ever greater threats of competition from other areas. Hence, any domestic monopoly will tend to reach out to restrict foreign competition and block efficient interregional trade. It is no wonder that the tariff used to be called the mother of trusts. We might note here that on a truly free market, there would be no need for any separate theory of international trade. Nations become significant economically only with government intervention, either by way of monetary intervention or barriers to trade.
Monopolistic grants can be either direct and evident, such as compulsory cartels or licenses, less direct, such as tariffs, or highly indirect, but nevertheless powerful. Ordinances closing businesses at specific hours, for example, or outlawing pushcart peddlers or door-to-door salesmen, are illustrations of laws that forcibly exclude competition and thereby grant monopolistic privileges. Similarly, antitrust laws and prosecutions, while seemingly designed to combat monopoly and promote competition, actually do the reverse, for they coercively penalize and repress efficient forms of market structure and activity. Even such a seemingly remote action as conscription has the effect of forcibly withdrawing young men from the labor market and thereby giving their competitors a monopolistic, or rather, a restrictionist, wage. Monopolistic privileges to business may confer a monopoly price depending on the elasticity of the firm's demand. Privileges to workers, on the other hand, always confer a higher restrictionist price at lower than free market output. The reason is that a business can expand or contract its production at will. If, then, a few firms are granted the privilege of producing in a certain field, they may expand production, if conditions are ripe, and not reduce total supply. On the other hand, aside from hours worked, which is not very flexible, restriction of entry into a labor market must always reduce the total supply of labor in that industry and therefore confer a restrictionist price. Of course, a direct restriction on production, such as conservation laws, always reduces supply and thereby confers a restrictionist price. Unfortunately, we have not the space here to investigate these and other instructive cases. 7. Binary Intervention The Government Budget Binary intervention occurs, we have seen, when the intervener forces someone to transfer property to him. All government rests on the coerced levy of taxation, which is therefore a prime example of binary intervention. Government intervention, consequently, is not only triangular, like price control, it may also be binary, like taxation, and is therefore embedded into the very nature of government and governmental activity. For years, writers on public finance have been searching for the neutral tax, that is, for that system of taxes which would keep the free market intact. The object of this search is altogether chimerical. For example, economists have often sought uniformity of taxes, so that each person, or at least each person in the same income bracket, pays the same amount of tax. But this is inherently impossible, as we have already seen from Calhoun's demonstration that the community is inevitably divided into tax payers and tax consumers, who, of course, cannot be said to pay taxes at all. To repeat the keen analysis of Calhoun, 
nor can it be otherwise, unless what is collected from each individual in the shape of taxes shall be returned to him in disbursements, which would make the process nugatory and absurd. In short, government bureaucrats do not pay taxes. They consume the tax proceeds. If a private citizen earning $10,000 income pays $2,000 in taxes, the bureaucrat earning $10,000 does not really pay $2,000 in taxes also. That he supposedly does is simply a bookkeeping fiction. It will be more convenient to use dollars rather than gold ounces in this section, but we still assume complete equivalence of dollars and gold weights. We do not consider monetary intervention until the end of this chapter. The bureaucrat is actually acquiring an income of $8,000 and paying no taxes at all. Not only bureaucrats will be tax consumers, but, to a lesser degree, other private members of the population as well. For example, suppose that the government taxes $1,000 away from private people who would have spent the money on jewels and uses it to purchase paper for government offices. This induces a shift in demand away from jewels and toward paper, a decline in the price of jewels, and a flow of resources from the jewelry industry. Conversely, paper prices will tend to increase, and resources will flow into the paper industry. Incomes will decline in the jewelry industry and rise in paper. This does not mean that resources will flow directly out of jewelry and into paper, it is more likely that resources will flow into and out of industries similar to each other, occupationally and geographically, and that resources will readjust step by step from one industry to the next. Hence, the paper industry will be, to some extent, beneficiaries of the government budget, of the tax and expenditure process of government but not just the paper industry, for the new money received by the paper firms will be paid out to their suppliers and original factor owners, and so on, as the ripples impinge on other parts of the economy. On the other hand, the jewelry industry, stripped of revenue, reduces its demands for factors. Thus, the burdens and benefits of the tax and expenditure process diffuse themselves throughout the economy with the strongest impact at the points of first contact, jewelry and paper. In the long run of the ERE, of course, all firms in all industries earn a uniform interest return, and the bulk of the gains or losses are imputed back to the original specific factors. Everyone in the society will be either a net taxpayer or a net tax consumer, and this to different degrees, and it will be for the data of each specific case to determine where any particular person or industry stands in this distribution process. 
The only certainty is that the bureaucrat or politician in office receives 100% of his governmental income from tax proceeds and pays no genuine taxes in return. The tax and expenditure process, therefore, will inevitably distort the allocation of productive factors, the types of goods produced, and the pattern of incomes, from what they would be on the free market. The larger the level of taxing and spending, that is, the bigger the government budget, the greater the distortion will tend to be. And, moreover, the larger the budget in relation to market activity, the greater the burden of government on the economy. A larger burden means that more and more resources of society are being coercively siphoned off from the producers into the pockets of government, those who sell to government, and the subsidized favorites of government. In short, the higher the relative level of government, the narrower the base of the producers, and the greater the take of those expropriating the producers. The higher the level of government, the less resources will be used to satisfy the desires of those consumers who have contributed to production, and the more resources will be used to satisfy the desires of non-producing consumers. There has been a great deal of controversy among economists on how to approach the analysis of taxation. Old-fashioned Marshallians insist on the partial equilibrium approach of looking only at a particular type of tax in isolation and then analyzing its effects. Valrassians, more fashionable today and exemplified by the late Italian public finance expert Antonio De Viti De Marco, insist that taxes cannot be considered at all in isolation, that they may be analyzed only in conjunction with what the government does with the proceeds. In all this, what would be the Austrian approach, had it been developed, is being neglected. This holds that both procedures are legitimate and necessary to analyze the taxing process fully. In short, the level of taxes and expenditures may be analyzed, and its inevitable redistributive and distortive effects discussed, and within this aggregate of taxes, individual types of taxes may then be analyzed in isolation, Neither the partial nor the general approaches should be overlooked. There has also been a great amount of useless controversy about which activity of government imposes the burden on the private sector, taxation or government spending. It is actually futile to separate them, since they are both stages in the same process of burden and redistribution. Thus, suppose the government taxes the betel nut industry $1 million in order to buy paper for government bureaus. $1 million worth of resources are shifted from betel nuts to paper. This is done in two stages, a sort of one-two punch at the free market. First, the betel nut industry is made poorer by taking away its money. Then, the government uses this money to take paper out of the market for its own use, thus extracting resources in the second stage. 
Both sides of the process are a burden. In a sense, the betel nut industry is compelled to pay for the extraction of paper from society. At least, it bears the immediate brunt of payment. However, even without yet considering the partial equilibrium problem of how or whether such taxes are shifted by the betel nut industry onto other shoulders, we should also note that it is not the only one to pay. The consumers of paper certainly pay by finding paper prices raised to them. The process can be seen more clearly if we consider what happens when taxes and government expenditures are not equal, when they are not simply obverse sides of the same coin. When taxes are less than government expenditures, and omitting borrowing from the public for the time being, the government creates new money. It is obvious here that government expenditures are the main burden, since this higher amount of resources is being siphoned off. In fact, as we shall see later when considering the binary intervention of inflation, creating new money is, anyway, a form of taxation. But what of that rare case when taxation is higher than government spending? Say that the surplus is either hoarded in the government's gold supply or that the money is liquidated through deflation. Thus, assume that $1 million is taken from the betel nut industry and only $600,000 is spent on paper. In this case, the larger burden is that of taxation, which pays not only for the extracted paper but also for the hoarded or destroyed money. While the government extracts only $600,000 worth of resources from the economy, the betel nut industry loses $1 million of potential resources, and this loss should not be forgotten in toting up the burdens imposed by the government's budgetary process. In short, when government expenditures and receipts differ, the fiscal burden on society may be very approximately gauged by whichever is the greater total. Since taxation cannot really be uniform, the government in its budgetary process of tax and spend inevitably takes coercively from Peter to give to Paul. Paul, of course, including itself. In addition to distorting the allocation of resources, therefore, the budgetary process redistributes incomes, or rather, distributes incomes. For the free market does not distribute incomes. Income there arises naturally and smoothly out of the market processes of production and exchange, Thus, the very concept of distribution as something separate from production and exchange can arise only from the government's binary intervention. It is often charged, for example, that the free market maximizes the utility of all and the satisfactions of all consumers only given a certain existing distribution of income. But this common fallacy is incorrect. There is no assumed distribution on the free market separate from the voluntary activities of every individual's production and exchange. 
The only given on the free market is the property right of every man in his own person and in the resources which he finds, produces, or creates, or which he obtains in voluntary exchange for his products or as a gift from their producers. The binary intervention of the government's budget, on the other hand, impairs this property right of everyone in his own product and creates the separate process and the problem of distribution. No longer do income and wealth flow purely from service rendered on the market. They now flow to special privilege created by the state and away from those specially burdened by the state. There are many economists who regard the free market as only being free of triangular interference. Such binary interference as taxation is not considered intervention in the purity of the free market. The economists of the Chicago School, headed by Frank H. Knight, have been particularly adept at splitting man's economic activity and confining the market to a narrow compass. They can thus favor the free market because they oppose such triangular interventions as price control while advocating drastic binary interventions in taxes and subsidies to redistribute the income determined by that market. In short, the market is to be left free in one sphere, while being subject to perpetual harassment and reshuffling by outside coercion. This concept assumes that man is fragmented, that the market man is not concerned with what happens to himself as a subject-to-government man. This is purely an impermissible myth, which we might call the tax illusion, the idea that people do not consider what they earn after taxes, but only before taxes. In short, if A earns $9,000 a year on the market, B $5,000 and C $1,000, and the government decides to keep redistributing the incomes so that each earns $5,000, the individuals apprised of this are not going to keep foolishly assuming that they are still earning what they did before. They are going to take the taxes and subsidies into account. Thus we see that the government budgetary process is a coercive shift of resources and incomes from producers on the market to non-producers. It is also a coercive interference with the free choices of individuals by those constituting the government. Later, we shall analyze the nature and consequences of government spending in more detail. At this time, let us emphasize the important point that government cannot be in any way a fountain of resources. All that it spends, all that it distributes in largesse, it must first acquire in revenue. That is, it must first extract from the private sector. The great bulk of the revenues of government, the very nub of its power and its essence, is taxation, to which we turn in the next section. Another method is inflation, the creation of new money. A third method is borrowing from the public.
A fourth method, revenue from sale of governmental goods or services, is a peculiar form of taxation. At the very least, to acquire the original assets for this business, taxation is needed. 8. Binary Intervention Taxation A. Income Taxation Taxation, as we have seen, takes from producers and gives to others. Any increase in taxation swells the resources, the incomes, and usually the numbers of those living off the producers, while diminishing the production base from which these others are drawing their sustenance. Clearly, this is eventually a self-defeating process. There is a limit beyond which the top-heavy burden can no longer be carried by the diminishing stock of producers. Narrower limits are also imposed by the disincentive effects of taxation. The greater the amount of taxes imposed on the producers, the taxpayers, the lower the marginal utility of work will be for the returns from work are forcibly diminished, and the greater the marginal utility of leisure foregone. Not only that, the greater will be the incentive to shift from the ranks of the burdened taxpayers to the ranks of the tax consumers, either as full-time bureaucrats or as those subsidized by the government. As a result, production will diminish even further, as people retreat to leisure or scramble harder to join the ranks of the privileged tax consumers. In the less developed countries, where a money economy is still emerging from barter, any given amount of taxation will have a still more drastic effect for it will make monetary incomes much less worthwhile and will shift people's efforts from trying to make money back to untaxed barter arrangements. Taxation can, therefore, decisively retard development from a barter to a monetary economy or even reverse the process. If any government taxes in kind, there is then no span of time between taxation and the extraction of physical resources from the private sector. Both take place in the same act. In the market economy, net incomes are derived from wages, interest, ground rents, and profit. And insofar as taxes strike at the earnings from these sources, attempts to earn these incomes will diminish. The laborer, faced with a tax on his wages, has less incentive to work hard. The capitalist, confronting a tax on his interest or profit return, has more incentive to consume rather than to save and invest. The landlord, a tax being imposed on his rents, will have less of a spur to allocate land sites efficiently. It has been objected that since a man's marginal utility of money assets increases as he holds less of a stock of money, lower money income will mean an increased marginal utility of income. As a result, a tax on money incomes creates both a substitution effect against work and in favor of leisure, or against saving in favor of consumption, and an income effect working in the opposite direction. This is true, and in rare empirical cases, the latter effect will predominate. 
In plain language, this means that when extra penalties are placed upon man's efforts, he will generally slacken them, but in some cases he will work harder to try to offset the burdens. In the latter cases, however, we must remember that he will lose the valuable consumption good of leisure. He will have less leisure now than he would have if his choices were still free. Working harder under penalty is only a cause for rejoicing if we regard the matter exclusively from the point of view of those living off the producers, who will thereby benefit from the tax. The standard of living of the workers, which must include leisure, has fallen. The income tax, by taxing income from investments, cripples saving and investment, since it lowers the return from investing below what free market time preferences would dictate. The lower net interest return leads people to bring their savings investment into line with the new realities. In short, the marginal savings and investments at the higher return will now be valued below consumption and will no longer be made. There is another unheralded reason why an income tax will particularly penalize saving and investment as against consumption. It might be thought that since the income tax confiscates a certain portion of a man's income and leaves him free to allocate the rest between consumption and investment, and since time preference schedules remain given, the proportion of consumption to saving will remain unchanged. But this ignores the fact that the taxpayer's real income and the real value of his monetary assets have been lowered by paying the tax. We have seen in Chapter 6 that, given a man's time preference schedule, the lower the level of his real monetary assets, the higher his time preference rate will be, and therefore the higher the proportion of his consumption to investment. Under income taxation, he shifts to a higher proportion of consumption and a lower proportion of saving and investment. For this shift to occur, the individual's real monetary assets must decline, not just the nominal amount in terms of money. If, then, instead of this tax, there is deflation in the society, and the value of the monetary unit increases roughly proportionately everywhere, then the nominal fall in each individual's money stock will not be a real fall, and hence effective time preference ratios will remain unchanged. In the case of income taxation, deflation will not occur, since the government will spend the revenue rather than contract the money supply. Even in the rare case where all the tax money is liquidated by the government, the individuals taxed will lose more than others, and hence will lose some real monetary assets. We have now seen two reasons why an income tax will shift the social proportion toward more consumption and less saving and investment. It might be objected that the time preference reason is invalid, since the government officials and the people they subsidize will receive the tax revenues and find that their money stock has increased just as that of the taxpayers has declined. 
We shall see, however, that no truly productive savings and investments can be made by government, its employees, or the recipients of its subsidies. Some economists maintain that income taxation reduces savings and investment in society in yet a third way. They assert that income taxation, by its very nature, imposes a double tax on savings investment as against consumption. Double is used in the sense of two instances, not arithmetically twice. The reasoning runs as follows. Saving and consumption are really not symmetrical. All saving is directed toward enjoying more consumption in the future. Otherwise, there would be no point at all to saving. Saving is abstaining from possible present consumption in return for the expectation of increased consumption at some time in the future. No one wants capital goods for their own sake. They are only the embodiment of increased consumption in the future. Saving investment is Crusoe's building the stick to obtain more apples at a future date. It fructifies in higher consumption later. Hence, the imposition of an income tax is a double tax on consumption and excessively penalizes saving and investment. These economists generally conclude that not income, but only consumption, should be taxed as the only real income. This line of reasoning correctly explains the investment consumption process. It suffers, however, from a grave defect. It is irrelevant to problems of taxation. It is true that saving is a fructifying agent, but the point is that everyone knows this. That is precisely why people save. Yet even though they know that saving is a fructifying agent, they do not save all their income. Why? Because of their time preferences for present consumption. Every individual, given his current income and value scales, allocates that income in the most desirable proportions between consumption, investment, and additions to his cash balance. Any other allocation would satisfy his desires less well and lower his position on his value scale. The fructifying power of saving is already taken into account when he makes his allocation. There is therefore no reason to say that an income tax doubly penalizes saving investment. It penalizes the individual's entire standard of living, encompassing present consumption, future consumption, and his cash balance. It does not, per se, penalize saving any more than the other avenues of income allocation. This Irving Fisher argument reflects a curious tendency among economists devoted to the free market to be far more concerned about governmental measures penalizing saving and investment than they are about measures hobbling consumption. Surely an economist favoring the free market must grant that the market's voluntary consumption-investment allocations are optimal, and that any government interference in this proportion from either direction is distortive of that market and of production to meet the wants of the consumers. 
There is nothing, after all, particularly sacred about savings. They are simply the road to future consumption. But they are, then, clearly no more important than present consumption, the allocations between the two being determined by the time preferences of all individuals. The economist who balks more at interference with free market savings than he does at infringement on free market consumption is therefore implicitly advocating statist interference in the opposite direction. He is implicitly calling for a coerced distortion of resources to lower consumption and increase investment. The bias in favor of investment, or growth, as against present consumption is similar to the conservationist attack on present consumption. What is so worthy about future consumption, and so unworthy about consuming in the present? Perhaps what we have here is an illicit smuggling of the less rational aspects of the Protestant ethic into economic science, Of the many problems involved, we may mention one here. What non-arbitrary quantitative standards for thrift can the economist establish once the free market's decision is overridden? B. Attempts at Neutral Taxation So far, we have discussed the impact of a tax on an individual considered by himself. Equally important is the distortion of the market's pattern of factor prices and incomes, created by the way taxes bear down upon different people. The free market determines an intricate, almost infinite array and structure of prices, rates, and incomes. The imposition of different taxes disrupts these patterns and cripples the market's work of allocating resources and output. Thus, if firm A pays $5,000 a year for a certain type of labor, and firm B pays $3,000, laborers will tend to shift from B to A, and thereby more efficiently serve the wants of consumers. But if the income earned at firm A is taxed $2,000 per annum, while income at B is taxed negligibly or not at all, the market inducement to move from B to A will totally or virtually disappear, perpetuating a misallocation of productive resources and hampering the growth and even the existence of firm A. We have seen that the quest for a neutral tax, a tax neutral to the market, leaving the market roughly as it was before the tax was imposed, is a hopeless venture. For there can be no uniformity in paying taxes when some people in society are necessarily taxpayers while others are privileged tax consumers. But even if we disregard these objections and fail to consider the redistributionist effects of government spending out of tax revenues, we cannot arrive at a system of neutral taxation. This is true if we also disregard the grave conceptual difficulties of arriving at a definition of income in accounting for the imputed monetary value of work done within a household, of averaging fluctuating incomes over various years, etc. 
Many writers have maintained that uniformly proportional income taxes for all would yield a neutral tax. For then, the relative ratios of incomes in society would remain the same as before. Thus, if A received six thousand dollars a year, B earned three thousand dollars, and C two thousand dollars, a ten percent tax on each man would yield a distribution of A fifty-four hundred dollars, B twenty-seven hundred dollars, C eighteen hundred dollars. The same mutual ratios as before. This assumes, of course, no disincentive effects of the tax on the various individuals, or rather, equiproportional disincentive effects on each individual in the society—a most unlikely occurrence. But the trouble is that this solution misconceives the nature of what a neutral tax would have to be. For a tax truly neutral to the free market would not be one that left income patterns the same as before. It would be a tax which would affect the income pattern and all other aspects of the economy in the same way as if the tax were really a free market price. This is a very important correction, for we must surely realize that when a service is sold at a certain price on the free market, this sale emphatically does not leave income distribution the same as before. For normally, market prices are not proportional to each man's income or wealth, but are uniform in the sense of equal to everyone, regardless of his income or wealth, or even his eagerness for the product. A loaf of bread does not cost a multi-millionaire a thousand times as much as it costs the average man. If indeed the market really behaved in this way, there would soon be no market, for there would be no advantage whatever in earning money. The more money one earned, the more peru pasu the price of every good would be raised to him. Therefore, the entire civilized money economy and the system of production and division of labor based upon it would break down. Far from being neutral to the free market, then a proportional income tax follows a principle which, if consistently applied, would eradicate the market economy and the entire monetary economy itself. It is clear then that equal taxation of everyone, the so-called head tax or poll tax, would be a far closer approach to the goal of neutrality. But even here, there are serious flaws in its neutrality, entirely apart from the ineluctable taxpayer-tax-consumer dichotomy. For one thing, goods and services on the free market are purchased only by those freely willing to obtain them at the market price. Since a tax is a compulsory levy rather than a free purchase, it can never be assumed that each and every member of society would, in a free market, pay this equal sum to the government. In fact, the very compulsory nature of taxation implies that far less revenue would be paid into the government were it conducted in a voluntary manner. 
Rather than being neutral, therefore, the equal tax would distort market results by imposing undue levies on at least three groups of citizens—the poor, the uninterested, and the hostile—that is, those who, for one reason or another, would not have voluntarily paid these equal sums to the government. Another grave problem in treating the equal tax as akin to a free market price is that we do not know what services of government the people are supposed to be purchasing. For example, if the government uses the tax to subsidize a certain favored group, it is difficult to know what sort of service the payers of the head tax are reaping from this act of government. But let us take a seemingly clear-cut case of pure service, police protection, and let us assume that the head tax is being paid for this expenditure. The free market rule is that equal prices are paid for equal services. But what here is an equal service? Surely the service of police protection is of far greater magnitude in an urban crime center than it is in some sleepy backwater where crime is rare. Police protection will certainly cost more in the crime-ridden area. Hence, if it were supplied on the market, the price paid there would be higher than in the backwater. Furthermore, a person under particular threat of crime and who might require greater surveillance would have to pay a higher police fee. A uniform tax would be below market price in the dangerous areas and above it in the peaceful areas. To approach neutrality, then, a tax would have to vary in accordance with the costs of services and not be uniform. We are not here conceding that costs determine prices. The general array of final prices determines the general array of cost prices. But then the viability of firms is determined by whether the price that people will pay for their particular products will be enough to cover the costs, which are determined throughout the market. This is the neglected cost. Principle of taxation. The cost principle, however, is hardly neutral either. Apart from the inexorable taxpayer-tax-consumer problem, there is again the problem of how a service is to be defined and isolated. What is the service of redistribution from Peter to Paul, and what is the cost for which Peter is to be assessed? And even if we confine the discussion to such common services as police protection, there are grave flaws. In the first place, the costs of government, as we shall see further, are bound to be much higher than those of the free market. Secondly, the state cannot calculate well, and therefore cannot gauge its costs accurately. Thirdly, costs are equal to prices only in equilibrium. Since the economy is never in equilibrium, costs are never a precise estimate of what the free market price would have been. And finally, as in the equal tax and in contrast to the free market, the taxpayer never demonstrates his benefit from the governmental act. 
It is simply and blithely assumed that he would have purchased the service voluntarily at this price. Still another attempt at neutral taxation is the benefit principle, which states that a tax should be levied equal to the benefit which the individuals receive from the government service. It is not always realized what this principle would mean, for example, that recipients of welfare benefits would have to pay the full costs of these benefits. Each recipient of government welfare would then have to pay more than he received, for he would also have to pay the handling costs of government bureaucracy. Obviously, there would be no such welfare or any other subsidy payments if the benefit principle were maintained. Even if we again confine the discussion to services like police protection, grave flaws still remain. Let us again disregard the persistent taxpayer-tax-consumer dichotomy. A fatal problem is that we cannot measure benefits or even know whether they exist. As in the head tax and cost principles, there is here no free market where people can demonstrate that they are receiving a benefit from the exchange greater than the value of the goods they surrender. In fact, since taxes are levied by coercion, it is clear that people's benefits from government are considerably less than the amount that they are required to pay since, if left free, they would contribute less to government. The benefit, then, is simply assumed, arbitrarily, by government officials. Furthermore, even if the benefit were freely demonstrable, the benefit principle would not approach the process of the free market. For once again, Individuals pay a uniform price for services on the free market regardless of the extent of their subjective benefits. The man who would walk a mile for a camel pays no more ordinarily than the man who couldn't care less. To tax everyone in accordance with the benefit he receives, then, is diametrically opposed to the market principle. Finally, if everyone's benefit is taxed away, there would be no reason for him to make the exchange or to receive the government service. On the market, not all people, not even the marginal buyers, pay the full amount of their benefit. The supramarginal buyers obtain unmeasurable surplus benefit, and so do the marginal buyers, for without such a surplus they would not buy the product. Moreover, for such services as police protection, the benefit principle would require the poor and the infirm to pay more than the rich and the able, since the former may be said to benefit more from protection. Finally, it should be noted that if each person's benefit from government is to be taxed away, the bureaucrats, who receive all their income from the government, would have to return their whole salary to the government, and so serve without pay. Ever since Adam Smith, economists have tried fallaciously to use the benefit principle to justify proportional and even progressive taxation, on the ground that people benefit from society in proportion, or even more than in proportion, to their incomes. 
but it is clear that the rich benefit less from such services as police protection, since they could more afford to pay for their own than the poor, and the rich derive no benefit from welfare expenditures. Therefore, the rich derive fewer benefits absolutely from government than the poor, and the benefit principle cannot be used to justify proportional or progressive taxation. But, it might be objected, can't we say that everyone derives proportional benefits to his income from society, though not from government? In the first place, this cannot be established. In fact, the opposite argument would be more accurate, for since both A and B participate in society and its benefits, any differential income between A and B must be due to their own particular worths rather than to society. Certainly, equal benefits from society cannot be used to imply a proportional tax, And, furthermore, even if the argument were true, by what ledger domain can we say that society is equivalent to the state? If A, B, C, producers on the market, benefit from each other's existence as society, how can G, the government, use this fact to establish its claim to their wealth? We have thus seen that no principle of taxation can be neutral with respect to the free market. Progressive taxation, where each man pays more than proportionately to his income, of course makes no attempt at neutrality. If the proportional tax embodies a principle destructive to the entire market economy and the monetary economy itself, then the progressive tax does so still more, for the progressive tax penalizes the able and efficient in even greater proportion than their relative ability and efficiency. Progressive rates are a particular disincentive against especially able work or entrepreneurship, and since such ability is engaged in serving the consumer, a progressive tax levies a particular burden on the consumers as well. In addition to the two ways discussed by which income taxation penalizes saving, the progressive tax imposes an added penalty, for empirically, in most cases, the wealthy save and invest proportionately more of their incomes than the lower-income groups. There is, however, no apodictic praxeological reason why this must always be so. The rule would not hold, for example, in a country where the wealthy bought jewelry while the poor thriftily saved and invested. While the progressive principle is certainly highly destructive of the market, most conservative, pro-free market economists tend to overweigh its effects and to underweigh the destructive effects of proportional taxation. Proportional income taxation has many of the same consequences, and therefore the level of income taxation is generally more important for the market than the degree of progressivity. Thus, Society A may have a proportional income tax requiring every man to pay 50% of his income, 
Society B may have a very steeply progressive tax requiring a poor man to pay one-fourth percent and the richest man ten percent of his income. The rich man will certainly prefer Society B even though the tax is progressive, demonstrating that it is not so much the progressivity as the height of his tax that burdens the rich man. Incidentally, the poor producer, with a lower tax upon him, will also prefer Society B. This demonstrates the fallacy in the common conservative complaint against progressive taxation that it is a means for the poor to rob the rich. For both the poor man and the rich man have, in our example, chosen progression, The reason is that the poor do not rob the rich under progressive taxation. Instead, it is the state that robs both through taxation, whether proportional or progressive. It may be objected that the poor benefit from the state's expenditures and subsidies from the tax proceeds, and thus do their robbing indirectly. But this overlooks the fact that the state can spend its money in many different ways. It may consume the products of specific industries. It may subsidize some or all of the rich. It may subsidize some or all of the poor. The fact of progressivity does not in itself imply that the poor are being subsidized en masse. Indeed, if some of the poor are being subsidized, others will probably not be, and so these latter net taxpayers will be robbed along with the rich. In fact, since there are usually far more poor than rich, the poor en masse may very well bear the greatest burden of even a progressive tax system. Of all the possible types of taxes, the one most calculated to cripple and destroy the workings of the market is the excess profits tax. For of all productive incomes, profits are a relatively small sum with enormous significance and impact. They are the motor, the driving force of the entire market economy. Profit and loss signals are the prompters of the entrepreneurs and capitalists who direct and ever redirect the productive resources of society in the best possible ways and combinations to satisfy the changing desires of consumers under changing conditions. With the drive for profit crippled, profit and loss no longer serve as an effective incentive or, therefore, as the means for economic calculation in the market economy. It is curious that in wartime, precisely when it would seem most urgent to preserve an efficient productive system, the cry invariably goes up for taking the profits out of war. This zeal never seems to apply so harshly to the clearly war-borne profits of steel workers in higher wages, only to the profits of entrepreneurs. There is certainly no better way of crippling a war effort. In addition, the excess concept requires some sort of norm above which the profit can be taxed. 
This norm may either be a certain rate of profit, which involves the numerous difficulties of measuring profit and capital investment in every firm, or it may refer to profits at a base period before the war started. The latter, the general favorite because it specifically taps war profits, makes the economy even more chaotic, for it means that while the government strains for more war production, the excess profits tax creates every incentive toward lower and inefficient war production. In short, the EPT tends to freeze the process of production as of the peacetime base period, and the longer the war lasts, the more obsolete, the more inefficient and absurd the base period structure becomes. C. Shifting and Incidents – A Tax on an Industry no discussion of taxation, however brief, can overlook the famous problem of the shifting and incidence of taxation. In brief, who pays a tax? The person on whom it is levied, or someone else, to whom the former is able to shift the tax? There are still economists, incredibly, who hew to the old 19th century equal diffusion theory of taxation, which simply closes the problem by proclaiming that all taxes are shifted to everyone, so that there is no need to analyze each one in particular. This obscurantist tendency is fostered by treating shifting in too broad a way, Thus, if an income tax is levied on Jones at 80%, this will hurt not only Jones, but also, by decreasing Jones' incentives as well as capacities, other consumers, by reducing Jones' work and savings. It is therefore true that the effects of taxation diffuse outward from the center of the target, but this is far from saying that Jones can simply shift the tax burden onto the shoulders of others. The concept of shifting will here be limited to the case where the payment of a tax can be directly transferred from the original payer to someone else and will not be used when others suffer in addition to the original taxpayer. The latter may be called the indirect effects of the tax. The first rule of shifting is that an income tax cannot be shifted. This formerly accepted truth in economics is now countered with the popular assumption that, for example, a tax on wages will spur unions to demand higher wages to compensate for the tax, and that therefore the tax on wages is shifted forward onto the employer, who in turn shifts it again forward onto the body of consumers. And yet, almost every step in this commonly proclaimed sequence is an egregious fallacy. It is absurd in the first place to think that workers or unions wait quietly for a tax to galvanize them into making demands. Workers always want higher wages. Unions always demand more. The question is, will they get more? There is no reason to think that they can. A worker can get only the value of the discounted marginal productivity of his labor. 
No clamor will raise that productivity, and therefore none can raise the wage he earns from his employer. Union demands for higher wages will be treated as usual. That is, they can be satisfied only at the cost of the unemployment of some of the workforce in that industry. But this is true whether or not there has been a tax on wages. The tax will have nothing to do with the final wage set on the market. The idea that the increased cost will be passed on to the consumer by the employer is an illustration of perhaps the single most widespread fallacy on taxation that businessmen can simply shift their higher costs forward onto the consumers in the form of higher prices. All the economic theory expounded in this book shows the error of this doctrine. For the price of a given product is set by the demand schedules of the consumers. There is nothing in higher costs or higher taxes which, per se, increases these schedules. Hence, any change in selling prices, whether higher or lower, will decrease the revenues of the business involved. For each business on the market tends to be at all times at its maximum profit point in relation to the consumers. Prices are already at their point of maximum return for the business. Therefore, higher taxes or other costs imposed on the firm will reduce their net incomes rather than be smoothly and easily passed on to consumers. We thus arrive at this significant conclusion. No tax, not just an income tax, can ever be shifted forward. Suppose that a particularly heavy tax of whatever type has been laid on a specific industry, say the liquor industry. What will be the effects? As we have noted, the tax will not simply be passed on to the consumers. Businessmen are particularly prone to this passing on argument, obviously in an attempt to convince consumers that they are really paying any tax on that industry. Yet the argument is clearly belied by the very zeal of each industry to have its taxes lowered and to fight against a tax increase. If taxes could really be shifted so easily, and businessmen were simply unpaid collection agents for the government, they would never protest a tax on their industry. Perhaps this is the reason why almost no businessmen have protested being collection agents for withholding taxes on their workers. Instead, the price of liquor will remain the same the net income of the firms will decline. This will mean that returns will be lower to capital and enterprise in liquor than in other industries of the economy. Marginal liquor firms will suffer losses and go out of business, and in general productive resources of all types will flow out of liquor and into other industries. The long-run effect, therefore, is to decrease the supply of liquor produced, and therefore, by the law of supply and demand, to raise the price of liquor on the market. However, as we have said before, this process, this diffusion of suffering over the economy, is hardly 
shifting. For the tax is not simply passed on. It only permeates to the consumers through hurting the industry taxed. The final result will be a distortion of the factors of production. Fewer goods are now being produced than the consumers would prefer in the liquor industry, and too many goods, relatively to liquor, are being produced in the other industry. Taxes, in short, can more readily be shifted backward than forward. Strictly, the result is not shifting because it is not a painless process. But it is clear that the backward process, backward to the factors of production, happens more quickly and directly than the effects on consumers. For losses or lowered profits to liquor firms will immediately lower their demand for land, labor, and capital factors of production. This falling of demand schedules will lower wages and rents earned in the liquor industry, and these lower earnings will induce a shift of labor, land, and capital out of liquor and into other industries. The rapid backward shifting is in harmony with the Austrian theory of consumption and production developed in this volume. For prices of factors are determined by the selling prices of the goods which they produce, and not vice versa, which would have to be the conclusion of the naive shifting forward doctrine. It should be noted that in some cases the industry itself can welcome a tax upon it for the sake of conferring an indirect but effective monopolistic privilege on the supramarginal firms. Thus, a flat license tax will confer a particular privilege on the more heavily capitalized firms, which can more easily afford to pay the fee. D. Shifting and incidents: a general sales tax. The most popular example of a tax supposedly shifted forward is the general sales tax. Surely, for example, if the government imposes a uniform twenty percent tax on all retail sales, and if we can make the simplifying assumption that the tax can be equally well enforced everywhere. Then business will simply pass on the twenty percent increase in all prices to consumers. In fact, however, there is no way for prices to increase at all. As in the case of one particular industry, prices were previously set, or approximately so, at the points of maximum net revenue for the firms. Stocks of goods or factors have not yet changed, and neither have demand schedules. How then could prices rise? Moreover, if we look at the general array of prices, as is proper when dealing with a general sales tax, these are determined by the supply of and the demand for money from the goods and money sides. For the general array of prices to rise, there must be either an increase in the supply of money, a decrease in the demand schedule for money, or both. Nothing in a general sales tax causes a change in either of these determinants. It might be objected that the firms can pass along the sales tax because it is a general increase for all firms. 
Aside from the fact that no relevant general factor, supply, demand for money, has increased, the individual firm is still concerned only with its individual demand, and this has not shifted. A tax increase has done nothing to make a higher price more profitable than it was before. Furthermore, the long-run effects of a general sales tax on prices will be smaller than in the case of an equivalent partial excise tax. A tax on a specific industry, such as liquor, will push resources out of this industry and into others, and therefore the relative price of the taxed commodity will eventually rise. In a general, uniformly enforced sales tax, however, there is no room for such shifts of resources. Resources can now shift only from work into idleness or into barter. This, of course, may and probably will happen, since, as we shall see further, a sales tax is a tax on incomes. The rise in opportunity cost of leisure may push some workers into idleness and thereby lower the quantity of goods produced. To this extent, prices will eventually rise, although hardly in the smooth, immediate, proportionate way of shifting. The myth that a sales tax can be shifted forward is comparable to the myth that a general union-imposed wage increase can be shifted forward to higher prices for consumers, thereby causing inflation. There is here no way that the general array of prices can rise, and the only possible result of such a wage increase is mass unemployment. Of course, if the money supply is increased after a wage rise and credit expanded, prices can be raised so that money wages are again not above their discounted marginal value products. In considering the general sales tax, many people are misled by the fact that the price paid by the consumer necessarily includes the tax. If someone goes to a movie and pays $1 admission, and if he sees prominently posted the information that this covers a price of $0.85 cents and a tax of $0.15, cents, he tends to conclude that the tax has simply been added on to the price. But $1 is the price, not $0.85, cents, the latter sum simply being the revenue accruing to the firm after taxes, the revenue to the firm has, in effect, been reduced to allow for payment of taxes. This is precisely the consequence of a general sales tax. Its immediate impact lowers the gross revenue of firms by the amount of the tax. In the long run, of course, firms cannot pay the tax, the loss in gross revenue of firms being imputed backward to interest income by capitalists and to wages and rents earned by owners of original factors, labor and ground land. A decrease in gross revenue to retail firms is reflected back to a decreased demand for the products of all the higher-order firms. 
The major result of a general sales tax is a general reduction in the net revenues accruing to original factors. The sales tax has been shifted backwards to original factor returns, to interest, and to all wages and ground rents. No longer does every original factor of production earn its discounted marginal product. Original factors now earn less than their DMVPs, the reduction consisting of the sales tax paid to the government. Let us now integrate this analysis of the incidence of a general sales tax with our previous general analysis of the benefits and burdens of taxation. This is accomplished by remembering that the proceeds of taxation are, in turn, spent by the government. Whether or not the government spends the money for resources for its own activities or simply transfers the money to people it subsidizes, the effect is to shift consumption and investment demand from private hands to the government or to government-supported individuals by the amount of the tax revenue. The tax has been ultimately levied on the incomes of original factors and the money transferred from their hands to the government. The income of the government and of those subsidized by the government has been increased at the expense of the tax producers, and therefore consumption and investment demands on the market have been shifted from the producers to the expropriators by the amount of the tax. As a consequence, the value of the monetary unit will remain unchanged, barring a difference in demands for money between the taxpayers and the tax consumers. But the array of prices will shift in accordance with the shift in demands. Thus, if the market has been spending heavily on clothing, and the government uses the revenue mostly for the purchase of arms, there will be a fall in the price of clothes and a rise in the price of arms, and a tendency for non-specific factors to shift out of the production of clothing and into the production of armaments. As a result, there will not finally be, as might be assumed, a proportional 20% fall in all original factor incomes as the result of a 20% general sales tax. Specific factors in industries that have lost business from the shift from private to governmental demand will lose proportionately more in income. Specific factors in industries gaining in demand will lose proportionately less. Some may gain so much as to gain absolutely from the change. Non-specific factors will not be affected as much proportionately, but they too will lose and gain according to the difference that the concrete shift in demand makes in their marginal value productivity. It should be carefully noted that the general sales tax is a conspicuous example of failure to tax consumption. The sales tax is commonly supposed to penalize consumption rather than income or capital. Yet we find that the sales tax reduces not just consumption, but the incomes of original factors. 
The general sales tax is therefore an income tax, albeit a rather haphazard one. Many right-wing economists have advocated general sales taxation as opposed to income taxation on the grounds that the former taxes consumption but not savings investment. Many left-wing economists have opposed sales taxation for the same reason. Both are mistaken. The sales tax is an income tax, though of a more haphazard and uncertain incidence. The major effect of the general sales tax will be that of the income tax to reduce the consumption and the saving investment of the taxpayers. Mr. Frank Chodorov, in his "The Income Tax: Root of All Evil," fails to indicate what other type of tax would be better from a free market point of view than the income tax. It is clear from our discussion that there are few taxes, indeed, that will not be as bad as the income tax from the viewpoint of the free market. Certainly, sales or excise taxation will not fill the bill. Mr. Chodorov, furthermore, is surely wrong when he terms income and inheritance taxes unique denials of the right of individual property. Any tax, whatever, infringes on property right, and there is nothing in an indirect tax which makes the infringement any less clear. It is true that an income tax forces the subject to keep records and disclose his personal dealings, thus imposing a further loss in his utility. The sales tax, however, also forces record keeping. The difference again is one of degree rather than of kind, since here the directness covers only retail storekeepers instead of the bulk of the population. In fact, since as we have seen, the income tax by its nature falls more heavily on savings investment than on consumption. We reach the paradoxical and important conclusion that a tax on consumption will fall more heavily on savings investment than on consumption in its ultimate incidence. E, a tax on land values. Wherever taxes fall, they blight, hamper, and distort the productive activity of the market. Clearly, a tax on wages will distort the allocation of labor effort. A tax on profits will cripple the profit and loss motor of the economy. A tax on interest will tend to consume capital, etc. One commonly conceded exception to this rule is the doctrine of Henry George that ground landowners perform no productive function, and that therefore the government may safely tax site value without reducing the supply of productive services on the market. This is the economic, as distinguished from the moral, rationale for the famous single tax. Unhappily, very few economists have challenged this basic assumption. The single tax proposal being generally rejected on grounds purely pragmatic, there is no way in practice of distinguishing site from improvement value of land. Or conservative, too much has been invested in land to expropriate the landowners now.
Thus, even so eminent an economist as F. A. Hayek has recently written, this scheme, the single tax, for the socialization of land, is, in its logic, probably the most seductive and plausible of all socialist schemes. If the factual assumptions on which it is based were correct, that is, if it were possible to distinguish clearly between the value of the permanent and indestructible powers of the soil and the value due to improvement, the argument for its adoption would be very strong. Yet this central Georgist contention is completely fallacious. The owner of ground land performs a very important productive service. He finds, brings into use, and then allocates land sites to the most value-productive bidders. We must not be misled by the fact that the physical stock of land is fixed at any given time. In the case of land, as of other material goods, it is not just the physical good that is being sold, but a whole bundle of services along with it, among which is the service of transferring ownership from seller to buyer, and doing so efficiently. Ground land does not simply exist, it must be served to the user by the owner. One man, of course, can perform both functions when the land is vertically integrated. The landowner earns the highest ground rents by allocating land sites to their most value-productive uses, that is, to those uses most desired by consumers. In particular, we must not overlook the importance of location and the productive service of the site owner in assuring the most productive locations for each particular use. The view that bringing sites into use and deciding upon their location is not really productive is a vestige from the old classical view that a service which does not tangibly create something physical is not really productive. I do not know anyone who has brought out the productivity of landowners as clearly as Mr. Spencer Heath, an ex-Georgist. Heath comments on Henry George as follows, Wherever the services of landowners are concerned, he is firm in his dictum that all values are physical. In the exchange services performed by landowners, their social distribution of sites and resources, no physical production is involved. Hence, he is unable to see that they are entitled to any share in the distribution of physical things, and that the rent they receive is but recompense for their non-coercive distributive or exchange services. He rules out all creation of values by the services performed in land distribution by free contract and exchange, which is the sole alternative to either a violent and disorderly or an arbitrary and tyrannical distribution of land. Actually, the function of bringing sites into use and deciding upon their location is just as productive as any other, and a particularly vital function it is. To hamper and destroy this function would wreck the market economy. F. Taxing Excess Purchasing Power 
In this necessarily hasty overview of the high spots of taxation theory, we have space for only one more comment, a criticism of the very common view that, in a business boom, the government should increase taxation in order to sop up excess purchasing power and thereby halt the inflation and stabilize the economy. We shall discuss the problems of inflation, stabilization, and the business cycle later. Here, let us note the oddity of assuming that a tax is somehow less of a social cost, less of a burden, than a price. Thus, suppose in a boom that Messrs. A, B, and C, with the money they have on hand, would spend a certain amount on some commodity, say, pipes at a certain market price, for example, $10 per pipe. The government decides that this is a most unfortunate situation, that the market price is, by some arbitrary, undivulged standard, too high, and that therefore it must help its subjects by taxing their money away from them and thus lowering prices. Suppose, indeed, that A, B, and C are taxed sufficiently to lower the pipe price to, say, $8. By what reasoning are they better off, now that taxes have been increased by precisely the amount that their monetary funds have dwindled? In short, the tax price has gone up in order that the prices of other goods may decline. Why is a voluntary price, paid willingly by buyers and accepted by sellers, somehow bad or burdensome for the buyers, while at the same time a price levied compulsorily on the same buyers for dubious governmental services for which they have not demonstrated a need, is somehow good? Why are high prices burdensome? and high taxes not. 9. Binary Intervention – Government Expenditures Government expenditures are made from government revenue. In the preceding section, we have dealt with the major source of governmental revenue, taxation. Later, we shall deal with inflation, or money creation, and in the present section, a discussion of government enterprise is included. For a brief treatment of the final major source of government revenue, borrowing from the public, see Appendix A. A. The Productive Contribution of Government Spending Government expenditures are a coerced transfer of resources from private producers to the uses preferred by government officials. It is customary to classify government spending into two categories, resource-using and transfer. Resource-using expenditures frankly shift resources from private persons in society to the use of government. This may take the form of hiring bureaucrats to work for government, which shifts labor resources directly, or of buying products from business firms. Transfer payments are pure subsidy spending, when the government takes from Peter to pay Paul. It is true that in the latter case, the government gives Paul money to decide the allocation as he wishes, and in a sense, we may analyze the two types of spending separately.
but the similarities here are greater than the differences, for in both cases resources are seized from private producers and shifted to the uses which government officials think best. After all, when a bureaucrat receives his government salary, this payment is, in the same sense, a transfer payment from the taxpayers, and the bureaucrat is also free to decide how further to allocate the income at his command. In both cases, money and resources are shifted from producers to non-producers, who consume or otherwise use them. It may be objected that while bureaucrats may not be producers, other Pauls who receive subsidies on occasion are basically producers on the market. To the extent that they receive subsidies from the government, however, they are being non-productive and living off the producers by compulsion. What is relevant, in short, is the extent to which they are in a relation of state to their fellow men. We might add that in this work, the term state is never meant in an anthropomorphic manner. State really means people acting toward one another in a systematically statish relationship. I am indebted to Mr. Ralph Rako of the University of Chicago for the relation of state concept. This type of analysis of government has been neglected, because economists and statisticians tend to assume, rather blithely, that government expenditures are a measure of its productive contribution to society. In the private sector of the economy, the value of productive output is sensibly gauged by the amount of money that consumers spend voluntarily on that output. Curiously, on the other hand, the government's productive output is gauged not by what is spent on government, but by what government itself spends. No wonder that grandiose claims are often made for the unique productive power of government spending, when a mere increase in that spending serves to raise the government's productive contribution to the economy. Originally, Professor Simon Kuznets contended that only taxes should gauge the government's productive output, thus measuring product by revenue, as in the case of private firms. But taxes, being compulsory, cannot be used as a productive gauge. In contrast to the present method of national income accounting, Kuznets would have eliminated all government deficits from its productive contribution. What then is the productive contribution of government? Since the value of government is not gauged on the market, and the payments to the government are not voluntary, it is impossible to estimate. It is impossible to know how much would be paid into the government were it purely voluntary, or, indeed, whether one central government in each geographical area would exist at all. Since then, the only thing we do know is that the tax-and-spend process diverts income and resources from what they would have been doing in the private sector we must conclude that the government's productive contribution to the economy is precisely zero, 
Furthermore, even if it be objected that governmental services are worth something, it would have to be noted that we are again suffering from the error pointed out by Bastiat, a sole emphasis on what is seen to the neglect of what is not seen. We may see the government's hydroelectric dam in operation, we do not see the things that private individuals would have done with the money, whether buying consumers' goods or investing in producers' goods, but which they were compelled to forego. In fact, since private consumers would have done something else, something more desired, and therefore, from their point of view, more productive with the money, we can be sure that the loss in productivity incurred by the government's tax and spending is greater than whatever productivity it has contributed. In short, strictly, the government's productivity is not simply zero, but negative, for it has imposed a loss in productivity upon society. Even for those who do not accept this analysis, any who believe empirically that waste in government exceeds 50% of its expenditures would have to agree that our assumption is more accurate than the current estimate of 100% productivity by the government. Government expenditure is often referred to as investment, resulting in capital and we have heard much in recent years about Soviet and other multi-year plans busily engaged in building up capital by government action. Yet it is illegitimate to use the term capital for government expenditures. Capital is the status of productive goods along the path to eventual consumption. In any sort of division of labor economy, capital goods are built not for their own sake by the investor, but in order to use them to produce lower order and eventually consumers' goods. In short, a characteristic of an investment expenditure is that the good in question is not being used to fulfill the needs of the investor, but of someone else, the consumer. Yet, when government confiscates resources from the private market economy, it is precisely defying the wishes of the consumers. When government invests in any good, it does so to serve the whims of government officials, not the desires of consumers. Therefore, no government expenditures can be considered genuine investment, and no government-owned assets can be considered capital. Government expenditures are divisible into two parts, consumption expenditures by government officials, beneficiaries of government subsidies and other non-productive recipients, and waste expenditures, where government officials really believe that they are investing in capital. These waste expenditures result in waste assets. If a waste asset owned by the government is sold to private enterprise, then all or part of it might become a capital good. But this potential does not make the good capital while used by the government. 
It might be objected that government purchases are genuine investments when used by a government enterprise that charges prices on the market. We shall see, however, that this is not really enterprise, but playing at enterprise. The consumption of the governmentally privileged is, of course, in a different category from private consumption, since it is necessarily at the expense of the private consumption of producers. We may therefore call the former anti-productive consumption. This is to be distinguished from the classical concept of non-productive consumption, as all consumption above that needed to maintain the productive capacity of the laborer. B. Subsidies and Transfer Payments Let us delve a little further into the typology of government spending. Transfer spending, or subsidies, distort the market by coercively penalizing the efficient for the benefit of the inefficient, and it does so even if the firm or individual is efficient without a subsidy, for its activities are then being encouraged beyond their most economic point. Subsidies prolong the life of inefficient firms and prevent the flexibility of the market from fully satisfying consumer wants. The greater the extent of government subsidy, the more the market is prevented from working. The more resources are frozen in inefficient ways, and the lower will be the standard of living of everyone. Furthermore, the more government intervenes and subsidizes, the more caste conflict will be created in society, for individuals and groups will benefit only at one another's expense. The more widespread the tax and subsidy process, the more people will be induced to abandon production and join the army of those who live coercively off production. Production and living standards will be progressively lowered as energy is diverted from production to politics and as government saddles a dwindling base of production with a growing and more top-heavy burden of the state privileged. This process will be all the more accelerated because those who succeed in any activity will invariably tend to be those who are best at performing it. Those who particularly flourish on the free market, therefore, will be those most adept at production and at serving their fellow men. Those who succeed in the political struggle for subsidies, on the other hand, will be those most adept at wielding coercion or at winning favors from wielders of coercion. Generally, different people will be in the different categories of the successful, in accordance with the universal specialization of skills. Furthermore, for those who are skillful at both, the tax and subsidy system will encourage and promote their predatory skills and penalize their productive ones. A common example of direct transfer subsidy is governmental poor relief. State poor relief is clearly a subsidization of poverty, for men are now automatically entitled to money from the state because of their poverty. 
Hence, the marginal disutility of income foregone from leisure diminishes, and idleness and poverty tend to increase further, which in turn increases the amount of subsidy that must be extracted from the taxpayers. Thus, a system of legally subsidized poverty tends to call forth more of the very poverty that is supposedly being alleviated. When, as is generally the case, the amount of subsidy depends directly on the number of children possessed by the pauper, there is a further incentive for the pauper to breed more children than otherwise, and thereby multiply the number of paupers, and even more dependent paupers, still further. As Thomas McKay aptly stated, we can have exactly as many paupers as the country chooses to pay for. Private charity to the poor, on the other hand, would not have the same vicious circle effect, since the poor would not have a continuing compulsory claim on the rich. This is particularly true where private charity is given only to the deserving poor. The sincerity of the state's desire to promote charity towards the poor may be gauged by two perennial drives of government to suppress charity rackets, and to drive individual beggars off the streets because the government makes plenty of provision for them. The reader may gauge from the following anecdote by an admirer of such a drive just who was the true friend of the poor organ grinder, his customer or the government. During a similar campaign to clean up the streets of organ grinders, most of whom were simply licensed beggars, a woman came up to LaGuardia at a social function and begged him not to deprive her of her favorite organ grinder. Where do you live? he asked her. On Park Avenue. LaGuardia successfully pushed through his plan to eliminate the organ grinders and the peddlers, despite the pleas of the penthouse slummers. The effect of both measures is to cripple voluntary individual gifts of charity and to force the public to root its giving into the channels approved by and tied in with government officialdom. Similarly, governmental unemployment relief, often supposed to help in curing unemployment, has the precisely reverse effect. It subsidizes and intensifies unemployment. We have seen that unemployment arises when laborers or unions set a minimum wage above what they could obtain on the unhampered market. Tax aid helps them to keep this unrealistic minimum and hence prolongs the period of unemployment and aggravates the problem. C. Resource-Using Activities let us now return to the resource-using activities of government, where the state professes to be providing a service of some sort to the public. Government service may be either furnished free or sold at a price to users. Free services are particularly characteristic of government. Police and military protection, firefighting, education, parks, some water supply come to mind as examples. The first point to note, of course, is that these services are not and cannot be truly free. 
A free good, as we saw early in this book, would not be a good, and hence not an object of human action. It would simply exist in superabundance for all. If a good does not exist a plenty for all, then the resource is scarce, and supplying it costs society other goods foregone. Hence, it cannot be free. The resources needed to supply the free governmental service are extracted from the rest of production. Payment is made, however, not by users on the basis of their voluntary purchases, but by a coerced levy on the taxpayers. A basic split is thus effected between payment and receipt of service. This split is inherent in all government operations. Many grave consequences follow from the split, and from the free service as well. As in all cases where price is below the free market price, an enormous and excessive demand is stimulated for the good, far beyond the supply of service available. Consequently, there will always be shortages of the free good, constant complaints of insufficiency, overcrowding, etc., an illustration is the perpetual complaints about police insufficiency, particularly in crime-ridden districts, about teacher and school shortages in the public school system, about traffic jams on government-owned streets and highways, etc. In no area of the free market are there such chronic complaints about shortages, insufficiencies, and low-quality service. In all areas of private enterprise, firms try to coax and persuade consumers to buy more of their product. Where government owns and operates, on the other hand, there are invariably calls on consumers for patience and sacrifice, and problems of shortages and deficiencies continually abound. It is doubtful if any private enterprise would ever do what the New York City and other governments have done, exhort consumers to use less water. It is also characteristic of government operation that when a water shortage develops, it is the consumers and not the government enterprisers who are blamed for the shortage. The pressure is on consumers to sacrifice and to use less while in private industry, the welcome pressure is on entrepreneurs to supply more. The well-known inefficiencies of government operation are not empirical accidents, resulting perhaps from the lack of a civil service tradition. They are inherent in all government enterprise, and the excessive demand fomented by free and other underpriced services is just one of the many reasons for this condition. Free supply not only subsidizes the users at the expense of non-using taxpayers, it also misallocates resources by failing to supply the service where it is most needed. The same is true to a lesser extent wherever the price is under the free market price. On the free market, consumers can dictate the pricing and thereby assure the best allocation of productive resources to supply their wants. In a government enterprise, this cannot be done. Let us take again the case of the free service. 
Since there is no pricing, and therefore no exclusion of submarginal uses, there is no way that the government, even if it wanted to, could allocate its services to their most important uses and to the most eager buyers. All buyers, all uses, are artificially kept on the same plane. As a result, the most important uses will be slighted. The government is faced with insuperable allocation problems, which it cannot solve even to its own satisfaction. Thus, the government will be confronted with the problem, should we build a road in place A or place B? There is no rational way whatever by which it can make this decision. It cannot aid the private consumers of the road in the best way. It can decide only according to the whim of the ruling government official, that is, only if the government officials do the consuming and not the public. Thus, the government official may select a road that will yield him or his allies more votes. If the government wishes to do what is best for the public, it is faced with an impossible task. D. The Fallacy of Government on a Business Basis Government may either subsidize deliberately by giving a service away free, or it may genuinely try to find the true market price, that is, to operate on a business basis. The latter is often the cry raised by conservatives, that government enterprise be placed on a business footing, that deficits be ended, etc. Almost always this means raising the price. Is this a rational solution, however? It is often stated that a single government enterprise operating within the sphere of a private market and buying resources from it can price its services and allocate its resources efficiently. This, however, is incorrect. There is a fatal flaw that permeates every conceivable scheme of government enterprise and ineluctably prevents it from rational pricing and efficient allocation of resources. Because of this flaw, government enterprise can never be operated on a business basis, no matter how ardent a government's intentions. What is this fatal flaw? It is the fact that government can obtain virtually unlimited resources by means of the coercive tax power, that is, limited only by the total resources of society. Private businesses must obtain their funds from private investors. This allocation of funds by investors, based on time preference and foresight, rations funds and resources to the most profitable and therefore the most serviceable uses. Private firms can get funds only from consumers and investors. They can get funds, in other words, only from people who value and buy their services, and from savers who are willing to risk investment of their saved funds in anticipation of profit. In short, payment and service are, we repeat, indissolubly linked on the market. But government, on the other hand, can get as much money as it likes. The free market, therefore, provides a mechanism, which we have analyzed in detail, for allocating funds for future and present consumption, 
for directing resources to their most value-productive uses for all the people. It thereby provides a means for businessmen to allocate resources and to price services to ensure optimum use. Government, however, has no check rein on itself, that is, no requirement of meeting a test of profit and loss or valued service to consumers to permit it to obtain funds. Private enterprise can get funds only from satisfied valuing customers and from investors guided by present and expected future profits and losses. Government gets more funds at its own whim. With the check rein gone, gone also is any opportunity for government to allocate resources rationally. How can it know whether to build Road A or Road B? whether to invest in a road or a school, in fact, how much to spend for all of its activities. There is no rational way that it can allocate funds or even decide how much to have. When there is a shortage of teachers or schoolrooms or police or streets, the government and its supporters have only one answer, more money the people must relinquish more of their money to the government. Why is this type of answer never offered on the free market? The reason is that money must always be withdrawn from some other use in consumption or investment, and this withdrawal must be justified. On the market, justification is provided by the test of profit and loss, the indication that the most urgent wants of the consumers are being satisfied. If an enterprise or product is earning high profits for its owners, and these profits are expected to continue, more money will be forthcoming. If not, and losses are being incurred, money will flow out of the industry. The profit and loss test serves as the critical guide for directing the flow of productive resources. No such guide exists for government, which therefore has no rational way to decide how much money to spend in total or in each specific line. The more money it spends, the more service, of course, it can supply, but where to stop? Proponents of government enterprise may retort that the government should simply tell its bureau to act as if it were a profit-making enterprise, and to establish itself in the same way as a private business. There are two basic flaws in this theory. One, it is impossible to play enterprise. Enterprise means risking one's own money in investment. Bureaucratic managers and politicians have no real incentive to develop entrepreneurial skills, to really adjust to consumer demands. They do not risk loss of their money in the enterprise. 2. Aside from the question of incentives, even the most eager managers could not function as a business. For regardless of the treatment accorded the operation after it is established, the initial launching of the firm is made with government money, and therefore by coercive levy. A fatally arbitrary element has been built into the very vitals of the enterprise. 
Furthermore, future decisions on expenditures will be made out of tax funds and will therefore be subject to the same flaw. The ease of obtaining money will inherently distort the operations of government enterprise. Moreover, suppose that the government invests in an enterprise, E. Either the free market, left alone, would also have invested in this selfsame enterprise, or it would not. If it would have, then the economy suffers, at the very least, from the take going to the intermediary bureaucracy. If not, and this is almost certain, then it follows immediately that the expenditure on E is a distortion of private utility on the market, that some other expenditure would have brought greater monetary returns. It follows once again that a government enterprise cannot duplicate the conditions of private business. In addition, the establishment of government enterprise creates an unfair competitive advantage over private firms, for at least part of its capital was gained by coercion rather than service. It is clear that government, with its subsidization, can drive a private business out of the field. Private investment in the same industry will be greatly restricted, since future investors will anticipate losses at the hands of privileged governmental competitors. Moreover, since all services compete for the consumer's dollar, all private firms and all private investment will to some degree be affected and hampered. And when a new government enterprise begins, it generates fears in other industries that they will be next, that they will either be confiscated or forced to compete with government-subsidized enterprises. This fear tends to repress productive investment further and thus lower the general standard of living still more. Another argument used quite correctly by leftist proponents of government ownership is this. If business operation is so desirable, why take such a tortuous route? Why not scrap government ownership and turn the whole operation over to private business enterprise? Why go to such elaborate lengths to try to imitate the apparent ideal, private ownership, when the ideal may be pursued directly? The call for business principles in government, therefore, makes little sense, even if that call could be successful. Many criteria have been offered by writers as guides for the pricing of government services. One criterion supports pricing according to marginal cost. As we have indicated, however, this is hardly a criterion at all, and rests on classical fallacies of price determination by costs. Marginal varies according to the period of time surveyed, and costs are not in fact static, but flexible. They change according to prices, and hence cannot be used as a guide to the setting of prices. Moreover, prices equal average costs only in final equilibrium, and equilibrium cannot be regarded as an ideal for the real world. The market only tends toward this goal. Finally, costs of government operation will be higher than for similar operations on the free market. 
Various fallacious criteria have been advanced for deciding between private and state action. One common rule is to weigh marginal social costs and benefits against marginal private costs and benefits. Apart from other flaws, there is no such entity as society separate from constituent individuals, so that this preferred criterion is simply meaningless. Government enterprise will not only hamper and repress private investment and entrepreneurship in the same industry and in industries throughout the economy, it will also disrupt the entire labor market. For the government, A, will decrease production and living standards in the society by siphoning off potentially productive labor to the bureaucracy. B, using confiscated funds, it will be able to pay more than the market rate for labor and hence set up a clamor by government job seekers for an expansion of the unproductive bureaucratic machine. And C, the government's high-tax-supported wages may well mislead workers into believing that this reflects the market wage in private industry, thus causing unwanted unemployment. The inefficiencies of government operation are compounded by several other factors. As we have seen, a government enterprise competing in an industry can usually drive out private owners, since the government can subsidize itself in many ways and supply itself with unlimited funds when desired. In cases where it cannot compete even under these conditions, it can arrogate to itself a compulsory monopoly, driving out competitors by force. This was done in the United States in the case of the post office. When the government thus grants itself a monopoly, it may go to the other extreme from free service. It may charge a monopoly price. Charging a monopoly price, now identifiably different from a free market price, distorts resources again and creates an artificial scarcity of the particular good. It also permits an enormously lowered quality of service. A governmental monopoly need not worry that customers may go elsewhere or that inefficiency may mean its demise. Only governments can make self-satisfied announcements of cuts in service in order to effect economies. In private business, economies must be made as corollaries to improvements in service. A recent example of a cut in government service in the midst of improving private services in most other fields was the decline in American postal deliveries from two to one a day, coupled, of course, with perennial requests for higher rates. When France nationalized the important Western Railway system in 1908, freight was increasingly damaged, trains slowed down, and accidents grew at such a pace that an economist caustically observed that the French government had added railway accidents to its growing list of monopolies. It is particularly absurd to call for business principles where a government enterprise functions as a monopoly. 
Periodically, for example, there are demands that the post office be put on a business basis and end its deficit, which must be paid by the taxpayers. But ending the deficit of an inherently and necessarily inefficient government operation does not mean going on a business basis. To cover costs, the price must be raised high enough to achieve a monopoly price, and so camouflage and compensate for the government's inefficiencies. A monopoly price will levy an excessive burden on the users of the postal service, especially since the monopoly is compulsory. On the other hand, we have seen that even monopolists must abide by the consumer's demand schedule. If this demand schedule is elastic enough, it may well happen that a monopoly price will reduce revenue so much, or cut down so much on its increase, that a higher price will increase deficits rather than reduce them. An outstanding example has been the New York City subway system in recent years. Ironically enough, the higher fares have driven many customers to buying and driving their own cars, thus aggravating the perennial traffic problem, shortage of government street space, even further. Another example of government intervention creating and multiplying its own difficulties. E. Centers of Calculational Chaos we have seen in Chapter 10 that one cartel or one firm could not own all the means of production in the economy because it could not calculate prices and allocate factors in a rational manner. And we have seen that this is the reason why state socialism could also not plan or allocate rationally. We further noted that two or more stages could not be totally integrated vertically on the market, for total integration would eliminate a whole segment of the market and establish an island of calculational and allocational chaos, an island that would preclude optimal planning for profits and maximum satisfaction for the consumers. In the case of simple government ownership, still another extension of this thesis becomes evident, for each governmental firm introduces its own island of chaos into the economy. There is no need to wait for full socialism for chaos to begin its work. No government enterprise can ever determine prices or costs or allocate factors or funds in a rational, welfare-maximizing manner. No government enterprise could be established on a business basis, even if the desire were present. Thus, any governmental operation injects a point of chaos into the economy, and since all markets are interconnected in the economy, every governmental activity disrupts and distorts pricing, the allocation of factors, consumption investment ratios, etc. Every government enterprise not only lowers the social utilities of the consumers by forcing the allocation of funds to other ends than those desired by the public, it lowers the utility of everyone, including the utilities of some government officials, by distorting the market and spreading calculational chaos. 
The greater the extent of government ownership, of course, the more powerful will this impact become. F. Conflict and the Command Posts Aside from its purely economic consequences, government ownership has another kind of impact on society. It necessarily substitutes conflict for the harmony of the free market. Since government service means service by one set of decision-makers, it comes to mean uniform service. The desires of all those forced, directly or indirectly, to pay for the government service cannot be satisfied. Only some forms of the service can or will be produced by the government agency. As a result, government enterprise creates enormous caste conflicts among the citizens, each of whom has different ideas on the best form of service. In the final result, government enterprise can hardly fail to substitute its own values or the values of one set of customers for the values of all others. Artificially standardized services of poorer quality, fit to governmental taste or convenience, will hold sway, in contrast to the diversified services of higher quality which the free market supplies to fit the tastes of a multitude of individuals. In recent years, government schools in America have furnished a striking example of such problems and conflicts. Some parents prefer racially segregated schools. Others prefer integrated education. Some parents want their children taught socialism. Others want anti-socialist teaching in the schools. There is no way that the government can resolve these conflicts. It can only impose the will of one group by coercion and leave the others dissatisfied and unhappy. Whichever type of school is chosen, some groups of parents will suffer. On the other hand, there is no such conflict on the free market which provides any type of service demanded. On the market, those who want segregated or integrated, pro-socialist or individualist schools can have their wants satisfied. It is obvious, therefore, that governmental, as opposed to private provision of services, lowers the standard of living of much of the population. The degrees of government ownership in the economy vary from one country to another. But in all countries, the state has made sure that it owns and monopolizes the vital nerve centers, the command posts of the society. It has acquired compulsory monopoly ownership over these command posts, and it has always asserted without proof that private ownership and enterprise in these fields is simply and a priori impossible. Such vital command posts are defense, money, the mint, and nowadays note issue, rivers and coastal seas, streets and highways, Land, generally, the public domain and the power of eminent domain, and the post office. The defense function is particularly vital to the state's existence, for on its virtual monopoly of force depends its ability to extract taxes from its citizens. 
Another critical command post held, though not always monopolized by the state, is education, for government schooling permits the influencing of the youthful mind to accept the virtues of the government under which it lives, and of the principle of government intervention. Conservatives who often attack socialistic teaching in government schools are particularly wide of the mark, for the very fact that a government school exists and is therefore presumed to be good teaches its little charges the virtues of government ownership by example. And if government ownership is good and even preferable in schooling, why not for other educational media, for example, newspapers, or for other important social services? Even where the government does not have a compulsory monopoly of schooling, it approaches this ideal by compelling attendance of all children at either a government school or a private school approved by the government. Compulsory attendance brings into the schools those who do not desire or cannot benefit from schooling, and forces them out of such competing fields as leisure, and business employment. G. The Fallacies of Public Ownership Finally, government ownership is often referred to as public ownership, the public domain, public schools, the public sector. The implication is that when government owns anything, every member of the public owns equal shares of that property. But we have seen that the important feature of ownership is not legal formality, but actual rule, and under government ownership, it is the government officialdom that controls and directs, and therefore owns, the property. Any member of the public who thinks he owns the property may test this theory by trying to appropriate for his own individual use his aliquot part of government property. It might be objected that individual stockholders of corporations cannot do this either. For example, a General Motors stockholder is not allowed to seize a car in lieu of cash dividends or in exchange for his stock. Yet stockholders do own their company, and this example precisely proves our point. For the individual stockholder can contract out of his company he can sell his aliquot shares of General Motors stock to someone else. The subject of government cannot contract out of that government. He cannot sell his shares in the post office, for example, because he has no such shares. As F. A. Harper has succinctly stated, the corollary of the right of ownership is the right of disownership. So if I cannot sell a thing, it is evident that I do not really own it. It might be noted that even if all the fallacious planks of the Henry George structure were conceded, the single tax program would still not follow from the premises. As Benjamin Tucker brilliantly demonstrated years ago, the most that could possibly be established would be each man's right to his tiny aliquot part of the site value of every plot of land, not the state's right to the whole value.
While rulers of government own public property, their ownership is not secure in the long run since they may always be defeated in an election or deposed. Hence, government officials will tend to regard themselves as only transitory owners of public resources, while a private owner, secure in his property and its capital value, may plan the use of his resource over a long period of time in the future, the government official must exploit his property as quickly as he can, since he has no security of tenure, and even the most securely entrenched civil servant must concentrate on present use, because government officials cannot usually sell the capitalized value of their property, as private owners can. In short, except in the case of the private property of a hereditary monarch, government officials own the current use of resources, but not their capital value. But if a resource itself cannot be owned, but only its current use— there will rapidly ensue an uneconomic exhaustion of the resource, since it will be to no one's benefit to conserve it over a period of time, and yet to each owner's advantage to use it up quickly. It is particularly curious, then, that almost all writers parrot the notion that private owners, possessing time preference, must take the short view in using their resources, while only government officials are properly equipped to exercise the long view. The truth is precisely the reverse. The private individual, secure in his capital ownership, can afford to take the long view because of his interest in maintaining the capital value of his resource. It is the government official who must take and run, who must exploit the property quickly while he is still in command. Those who object that private individuals are mortal, while governments are immortal, indulge in the fallacy of conceptual realism at its starkest. Government is not a real acting entity, but rather a type of interpersonal action adopted by actual individuals. H. Social Security before ending our discussion of specific governmental activities, we may note in passing a curiously popular form of government expenditure, Social Security. Social Security confiscates the income of wage earners, and then, most people presume, it invests the money more wisely than they could themselves, later paying out the money to the former wage earners in their old age. Considered as social insurance, this is a typical example of government enterprise. There is no relation between premiums and benefits, the latter changing yearly under the impact of political pressures. On the free market, anyone who wishes may invest in an insurance annuity or in stocks or real estate compelling everyone to transfer his funds to the government forces him to lose utility. Thus, even on its face, it is difficult to understand the great popularity of the Social Security program. But the true nature of the program differs greatly from the popular image, for the government does not invest the funds it takes in taxes. It simply spends them, 
giving itself its own bonds, which must later be cashed when the benefits fall due. The cash, of course, can be obtained only by further taxation. Thus, the public must pay twice for one payment of Social Security. The program is essentially one of making more palatable a general taxation of lower-income wage-earning groups. I. Socialism and Central Planning When government ownership or control extends to the entire productive system, then the economic system is called socialism. Socialism, in short, is the violent abolition of the market, the compulsory monopolization of the entire productive sphere by the state. There are two and only two ways that any economy can be organized. One is by freedom and voluntary choice, the way of the market. The other is by force and dictation, the way of the state. To those ignorant of economics, it may seem that the way of the market is only anarchic confusion and chaos, while the way of the state constitutes genuine organization and central planning. On the contrary, we have seen in this book what an amazing and flexible mechanism the market is for satisfying the wants of all individuals. State operation or intervention is, on the other hand, far less efficient and creates many disruptive and cumulative problems of its own. Moreover, a socialist state, deprived of the real market and its determination of prices for producers' goods, cannot calculate and can therefore run a productive system only in chaotic fashion. The economics of socialism, a whole branch of economics of its own, can only be touched upon here. Suffice it to say that Mises' demonstration of the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism has never been successfully refuted. Here we might mention just a few points on the economics of socialism. 1. Since ownership is, de facto, the control of a resource, a Nazi, fascist, or other centrally planned system is as much socialism as a communist regime that officially nationalizes property. A chief difference is that a formal communist-style expropriation makes it far more difficult to de-socialize later. Secondly, the extent of socialism in the present-day world is at the same time underestimated in countries such as the United States and overestimated in Soviet Russia. It is underestimated because the expansion of government lending to private enterprise in the United States has been generally neglected, and we have seen that the lender, regardless of his legal status, is also an entrepreneur and part owner. The extent of socialism is overestimated because most writers ignore the fact that Russia, socialist as she is, cannot have full socialism as long as she can still refer to the relatively free markets existing in other parts of the world. In short, a single socialist country or block of countries, while inevitably experiencing enormous difficulties and wastes in planning, can still buy and sell and refer to the world market, 
and can therefore at least vaguely approximate some sort of rational pricing of producers' goods by extrapolating from that market. The first one to point this out was Ludwig von Mises in his Human Action. It is particularly interesting to find an empirical confirmation by P.J.D. Wiles dealing with communist planning. What actually happens is that world prices, that is, capitalist world prices, are used in all intra-Soviet bloc trade. They are translated into rubles and entered into bilateral clearing accounts. To the question, what would you do if there were no capitalist world, came only the answer, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. In the case of electricity, the bridge is already under their feet. There has been great difficulty in pricing it since there is no world market. The well-known wastes and errors of this partial socialist planning are negligible compared to what would be experienced under the total calculational chaos of a world socialist state. Another neglected factor diminishing the extent of planning in socialist countries is black market activities, particularly in commodities, candy, cigarettes, drugs, stockings, etc., that are easy to conceal. Even in bulkier commodities, falsification of records and extensive graft may bring some sort of limited market a market violating all the socialist plans, into existence. Moreover, it should be noted that a centrally planned economy is a centrally prohibited economy. The concept of social engineering is a deceptive metaphor, since in the social realm it is largely people who are being planned, rather than the inanimate machinery of engineering blueprints. And since every individual is, by nature, if not always by law, a self-owner and self-starter, that is, a self-energizer, this means that central orders, backed up as they must be under socialism, by force and violence, effectively prohibit all the individuals from doing what they want most, or what they believe themselves to be best fitted to do. If the Central Planning Board, in short, orders X and Y to Pinsk to work as truck drivers, this means that X and Y are effectively and coercively prohibited from doing what they would have done voluntarily. Perhaps X would have gone to Leningrad to be a longshoreman, and perhaps Y would have stayed around to tinker in his workshop and invent a new and highly useful device. The latter point brings us to another grave defect of central planning. Inventions, innovations, technological developments, by their very nature, by definition, cannot be predicted in advance, and therefore cannot be centrally and bureaucratically planned. Not only does no one know what will be invented when, no one knows who will do the inventing. Clearly, a centrally prohibited economy, irrational and inefficient enough for given ends and given means and techniques at any point of time, is all the more incompetent if a flow of inventions and new development are desired in society. 
bureaucracy, incompetent enough to plan a stationary system, is vastly more incompetent at planning a progressive one. 10. Growth, Affluence, and Government A. The Problem of Growth in recent years, economists and journalists alike have been heavily emphasizing a new concept, growth, and much economic writing is engaged in a numbers game on what percentage or rate of growth we should have next year or in the next decade. The discussion is replete with comparisons of the higher rate of country X, which we must hurriedly counter, etc., Amidst all the interest in growth, there are many grave problems which have hardly been touched upon. First and foremost is the simple query, what is so good about growth? The economists, discoursing scientifically about growth, have illegitimately smuggled an ethical judgment into their science, an ethical judgment that remains unanalyzed, as if it were self-evident. But why should growth be the highest value for which we can strive? What is the ethical justification? There is no doubt about the fact that growth, taken over as another dubious metaphor from biology, sounds good to most people, but this hardly constitutes an adequate ethical analysis. Many things are considered as good, but on the free market every man must choose between different quantities of them and the price for those foregone. Similarly, growth, as we shall presently see, must be balanced and weighed against competing values. Given due consideration, growth would be considered by few people as the only absolute value. If it were, why stop at 5% or 8% growth per year? Why not 50%? It is completely illegitimate for the economist qua economist simply to endorse growth. What he can do is contrast what growth means in various social conditions. In a free market, for example, every person chooses how much future growth he wants as compared to present consumption. Growth, that is, a rise in future living standards, can be achieved, as we have implicitly made clear throughout this volume, only in a few definable ways. Either more and better resources can be found, or more and better people can be born, or technology improved, or the capital goods structure must be lengthened and capital multiplied. In practice, since resources need capital to find and develop them, since technological improvement can be applied to production only via capital investment, since entrepreneurial skills act only through investments, and since an increased labor supply is relatively independent of short-run economic considerations and can backfire in Malthusian fashion by lowering per capita output, the only viable way to growth is through increased saving and investment. On the free market, each individual decides how much he wants to save, to increase his future living standards, as against how much he wants to consume in the present. 
The net resultant of all these voluntary individual decisions is the nation's or world's rate of capital investment. The total is a reflection of the voluntary free decisions of every consumer, of every person. The economist, therefore, has no business endorsing growth as an end. If he does so, he is injecting an unscientific, arbitrary value judgment, especially if he does not present an ethical theory and justification. He should simply say that, in a free market, everyone gets as much growth as he chooses to obtain, and that furthermore, the people as a whole benefit greatly from the voluntary savings of others who do the saving and investing. What happens if the government decides, either by subsidies or by direct government ownership, to try to spur the social rate of growth? Then, the economist should point out, the entire situation changes. No longer does each person elect to grow as he thinks best. Now, with compulsory saving and investing, investment can come only at the expense of the forced saving of some individuals. In short, if A, B, and C grow because their standard of living rises from compulsory investment, they do so at the expense of D, E, and F, the ones who were compelled to save. No longer can we say that the social standard of living, the standard of living of each active person, rises. Under compulsory growth, some people, the coerced savers, clearly and demonstrably lose. They grow backward. Here is one reason why government intervention can never raise society's rate of growth. For when individuals act freely on the market, every one of their actions benefits everyone, and so growth is truly social that is, participated in by everyone in the society. But when government acts to force growth, it is only some who grow, at the expense of the retrogression of others. The Wertfrei economist is therefore not permitted to say that society grows at all. Growth, therefore, is demonstrably not the single absolute value for anyone. People on the market all weigh growth against present consumption, just as they weigh work against leisure, and all goods against one another. If we fully realize that there is no such existent entity as society apart from individuals, it becomes clear that society cannot grow at the expense of imposing losses on some or most of its members. Suppose, for example, that a community exists where the bulk of the population do not want to grow. They would rather not work very hard or save very much. Instead, they would loll under the trees, pick berries, and play games. To advocate the governments coming on the scene and forcing these people to work and save in order to grow at some time in the future means to advocate the compulsory lowering of the standard of living of the bulk of the populace in the present and near future.
Any sort of achieved production under this scheme, however great, would not be growth for society. Instead, it would be retrogression, not only for some, but for most people. An economist, therefore, cannot scientifically advocate compulsory growth, for what he is really doing is attempting to impose his own ethical views. For example, more hard work and saving is better than more leisure and berries on the other members of society by force. These members greatly lose utility as a result. Furthermore, it must be emphasized again that in cases of coerced saving, the saver reaps none of the benefit of his sacrifice, which is instead reaped by government officials or other beneficiaries. This contrasts to the free market, where people save and invest precisely because they will reap some tangible and desired rewards. In a regime of coerced growth, then, society cannot grow, and conditions are totally different from those of the free market. Indeed, what we have is a form of the free rider argument against the free market and for government. Here, the various free riders band together to force other people to be thrifty so that the former can benefit. Even if we set these problems aside, it is doubtful how much the coercing free riders can benefit from these measures. Many considerations treated earlier now come into play. In the first place, the growth and success of the compulsory free riders discourage production and shift more and more people and energy from production to the exploitation of production, that is, to compulsory free riding. Secondly, we have seen that if government itself does the investing out of the confiscated savings of others, the result, for many reasons, is not genuine investment, but waste assets. The capital built out of coerced savings, then, instead of benefiting the consumers, is largely wasted and dissipated. Even if government uses the money to subsidize various private investments, the results are still grave. For these investments, being uneconomic in relation to genuine consumers' demand and profit and loss signals on the market, will constitute malinvestment. Once the government removed its subsidies and let all capital compete equally in serving consumers, it is doubtful how much of this investment would survive. Although we have no intention of dealing here to any extent with an empirical problem like Soviet economic growth, we may illustrate our analysis by noting the hullabaloo that has been raised in recent years over the supposedly enormous rate of Soviet growth. Curiously, one finds that the growth seems to be taking place almost exclusively in capital goods, such as iron and steel, hydroelectric dams, etc., whereas little or none of this growth seems ever to filter down to the standard of living of the average Soviet consumer. The consumer's standard of living, however, is the be-all and end-all of the entire production process. 
production makes no sense whatever except as a means to consumption. Investment in capital goods means nothing except as a necessary way station to increased consumption. When capital investment takes place in the free market, it deprives no one of consumption goods. For those save who voluntarily choose investment over some present consumption. No one is required to sacrifice present consumption who does not wish to do so. As a result, the standard of living of everyone rises continually and smoothly as investment increases. But a Soviet or other system of compulsory investment lowers the standard of living of almost everyone, certainly in the near future. And there is every indication that the pie in the sky day when living standards finally rise almost never arrives. In short, government investment, as we have noted, turns out to be a peculiar form of wasteful consumption by government officials. In many cases, these investments are not simply bureaucratic errors. They pay welcome gains to government officials in prestige. Every underdeveloped government seems to insist on its steel mill or its dam, for example, regardless whether it is economic or not. Therefore, usually not. As Milton Friedman astutely points out, the pharaohs raised enormous sums of capital to build the pyramids. This was capital formation on a grand scale. It certainly did not promote economic development in the fundamental sense of contributing to a self-sustaining growth in the standard of life of the Egyptian masses. Modern Egypt has, under government auspices, built a steel mill. This involves capital formation, but it is a drain on the economic resources of Egypt, since the cost of making steel in Egypt is very much greater than the cost of buying it elsewhere. It is simply a modern equivalent of the pyramids, except that maintenance expenses are higher. There is another consideration that reinforces our conclusion. Professor Lachman has been diligently reminding us of what economists generally forget, that capital is not just a homogeneous blob that can be added to or subtracted from. Capital is an intricate, delicate, interweaving structure of capital goods. All of the delicate strands of this structure have to fit, and fit precisely, or else malinvestment occurs. The free market is almost an automatic mechanism for such fitting, and we have seen throughout this volume how the free market, with its price system and profit and loss criteria, adjusts the output and variety of the different strands of production, preventing any one from getting long out of alignment. But under socialism, or with massive government investment, there is no such mechanism for fitting and harmonizing. Deprived of a free price system and profit and loss criteria, the government can only blunder along, blindly investing without being able to invest properly in the right fields, the right products, or the right places. A beautiful subway will be built, but no wheels will be available for the trains. 
a giant dam, but no copper for transmission lines, etc. These sudden surpluses and shortages, so characteristic of government planning, are the result of massive malinvestment by the government. As P.T. Bauer writes, if development has meaning as a desirable process, it must refer to an increase in desired output. Governmental collection and investment of saving affect production which is not subject to the test of voluntary purchase at market price. Increased output through this method is at best an ambiguous indicator of economic improvement. If the capital is not provided voluntarily, this suggests that the population prefers an alternative use of resources, whether current consumption or other forms of investment. The current controversy over growth is, in a sense, the result of a critical error made by right-wing economists in their continuing debate with their left-wing opponents. Instead of emphasizing freedom and free choice as their highest political end, the rightist economists have stressed the importance of freedom as a utilitarian means of encouraging saving, investment, and therefore economic growth. We have seen that conservative opponents of the progressive income tax have often fallen into the trap of treating saving and investment as somehow a greater and higher good than consumption, and therefore of implicitly criticizing the free market's saving-consumption ratio. Here we have another example of the same lapse into an implicit, arbitrary criticism of the market. What the modern leftist proponents of compulsory growth have done is to use the venerable arguments of the conservatives as a boomerang against them, and to say, in effect, to their opponents, Very well, you have been maintaining that saving and investment are of critical importance because they lead to growth and economic progress. Fine, But as you yourselves implicitly grant, the free market's proportion of saving and investment is really too slow. Why then rely upon it? Why not speed up growth by using government to coerce even more saving and investment, to speed up capital further? It is evident that conservatives cannot counter by reiterating their familiar arguments— The proper comment here is the analysis we have been expounding. In short, a. By what right do you maintain that people should grow faster than they voluntarily wish to grow? b. Compulsory growth will not benefit the whole of society as will freely chosen growth, and it is therefore not social growth. Some will gain, and gain at some distant date, at the expense of the retrogression of others. C. Government investment or subsidized investment is either malinvestment or not investment at all, but simply waste assets or consumption of waste for the prestige of government officials. What, in point of fact, is economic growth? 
Any proper definition must surely encompass an increase of economic means available for the satisfaction of people's ends. In short, increased satisfactions of people's wants, or, as P.T. Bauer has put it, an increase in the range of effective alternatives open to people. On such a definition, it is clear that compulsory saving, with its imposed losses and restrictions on people's effective choices, cannot spur economic growth, and also that government investment, with its neglect of voluntary private consumption as its goal, can hardly be said to add to people's alternatives. Quite the contrary. On Soviet economic growth, P.T. Bauer and Basil Yemi make this salutary comment. The meaning of national income, industrial output, and capital formation is also debatable in an economy when so large a part of output is not governed by consumers' choices in the market. The difficulties of interpretation are particularly obvious in connection with the huge capital expenditure undertaken by government without reference to the valuation of output by consumers. Finally, the very term growth is an illegitimate import of a metaphor from biology into human action. Growth and rate of growth connote some sort of automatic necessity or inevitability and have, for many people, a value-loaded connotation of something self-evidently desirable. Concomitantly with the hubbub about growth, there has developed an enormous literature about the economics of underdeveloped countries. We can here note only a few considerations. First, contrary to a widespread impression, neoclassical economics applies just as fully to underdeveloped as to any other countries. In fact, as P.T. Bauer has often stressed, the economic discipline is in some ways sharper in less developed countries because of the extra option that many people have of reverting from a monetary to a barter economy. An underdeveloped country can grow only in the same ways as a more advanced country, largely via capital investment. The economic laws which we have adumbrated throughout this volume are independent of the specific content of any community's or nation's economy, and therefore independent of its level of development. Secondly, underdeveloped countries are especially prone to the wasteful, dramatic, prestigious government investment in such projects as steel mills or dams, as contrasted with economic but undramatic private investment in improved agricultural tools. The following quotation from Bauer's study on India is instructive for its analysis of central planning as well as development. As a corollary of reserving a large and increasing sector of the economy for the government, private enterprise and investment, both Indian and foreign, are banned from a wide range of industrial and commercial activity. These restrictions and barriers affect not only private Indian investment, but also the entry of foreign capital, enterprise, and skill, 
which inevitably retards economic development. Such measures are thus paradoxical in view of the alleged emphasis on economic advance. Bauer's chief defect is a tendency to underweigh the role of capital in economic development. It is fascinating to discover in 1925 and 1926, before Soviet Russia became committed to full socialism and coerced industrialization, Soviet leaders and economists attacking central planning and forced industry and calling for economic reliance on private peasantry. After 1926, however, the Soviet planned economy deliberately planned uneconomically for forced heavy industry in order to establish an autarkic socialism. Finally, the term underdeveloped is definitely value-loaded to imply that certain countries are too little developed below some sort of imposed standard. As James W. Wiggins and Helmut Schurk point out, undeveloped would be a more objective term. Because of its spectacular burst of popularity, something must here be said of the recent Stages of Economic Growth doctrine of Professor W. W. Rostow. Highly recommended as the answer to Marx, as if Marx had never been answered before, Rostow divines five stages of economic growth through which each modern nation passes. These center around the takeoff and include preconditions of takeoff, drive from takeoff to maturity, and as the final stage, high mass consumption. Perhaps some of the popularity may be due to the term takeoff, which is certainly in tune with our aeronautical and space minded age. In addition to committing the common fallacy of assuming some sort of automatic rate of growth, Rostow adds many others of his own, among which are the following. A. The resumption of the futile modern search for non-existent laws of history. B. The discovery of such laws by way of that hoary fallacy of late 19th century German thought, stages of history, with each arbitrary stage somehow destined to evolve automatically into the next. C. The undue stress, here as in other ways closer to Marx than most critics realize, on sheer technology, on sheer technology, as the fons et origo of economic development. D. The deliberate mixing of government and private firms as equally capable of entrepreneurship. And E. Reliance on the fallacious concept of social overhead capital, which must be mainly supplied by the government before takeoff is achieved. Actually, as we have seen, there are not different stages of economy, each subject to its own laws, but one single economics which applies to any level of development and explains any degree of growth. Rostow's final stage of high mass consumption is particularly open to question. What was more characteristic of the early takeoff stage of the Industrial Revolution in Britain than precisely the shift of production toward mass consumption of cheap, 
factory-made textile goods. Mass consumption was a feature of the Industrial Revolution from the beginning. It is not, contrary to a popular myth, some sort of new condition of the 1950s. B. Professor Galbraith and the Sin of Affluence In the early part of the 20th century, the main indictment of the capitalist system by its intellectual critics was the alleged pervasiveness of monopoly. In the 1930s, mass unemployment and poverty, one-third of a nation, came to the fore. At the present time, growing abundance and prosperity have greatly dimmed the poverty and unemployment theme, and the only serious monopoly seems to be that of labor unionism. Let it not be thought, however, that criticism of capitalism has died. Two seemingly contradictory charges are now rife. A. That capitalism is not growing fast enough, and B. That the trouble with capitalism is that it makes us too affluent. Excess wealth has suddenly replaced poverty as the tragic flaw of capitalism. This performance leads one to believe that Schumpeter was right when he declared, Capitalism stands its trial before judges who have the sentence of death in their pockets. They are going to pass it whatever the defense they may hear. The only success victorious defense may produce is a change in the indictment. At first sight, these latter charges appear contradictory, for capitalism is at one and the same time accused of producing too many goods, and yet of not increasing its production of goods fast enough. The contradiction seems especially glaring when the same critic presses both lines of attack, as is true of the leading critic of the sin of affluence, Professor John Kenneth Galbraith. But as the Wall Street Journal has aptly pointed out, this is not really a contradiction at all, for the excessive affluence is all in the private sector, the goods enjoyed by the consumers. The deficiency, or starvation, is in the public sector, which needs further growth. Thus Galbraith deplores the government's failure to invest more in scientists and scientific research to promote our growth, while also attacking American affluence. It turns out, however, that Galbraith wants more of precisely that kind of research which can have no possible commercial application. Although Galbraith's book, The Affluent Society, is replete with fallacies, backed by dogmatic assertions and time-honored rhetorical devices in place of reasoned argument, the book warrants some consideration here in view of its enormous popularity. Galbraith's major rhetorical device may be called the sustained sneer, which includes a. Presenting an opposing argument so sardonically as to make it seem patently absurd with no need for reasoned refutation. b. Coining and reiterating Veblenesque names of disparagement, for example, the conventional wisdom. And c. Ridiculing the opposition further by psychological ad hominem attacks, that is, accusing opponents of having a psychological vested interest in their absurd doctrines, this mode of attack being now more fashionable than older accusations of economic venality.
The conventional wisdom encompasses just about everything with which Galbraith disagrees. As in the case of most economists who attack economic science, Professor Galbraith is an historicist who believes that economic theory, instead of being grounded on the eternal facts of human nature, is somehow relative to different historical epochs. Conventional economic theory, he asserts, was true for the eras before the present, which were times of poverty. Now, however, we have vaulted from a centuries-long state of poverty into an age of affluence, and for such an age, a completely new economic theory is needed. Galbraith also makes the philosophical error of believing that ideas are essentially refuted by events. On the contrary, in human action, as contrasted with the natural sciences, ideas can be refuted only by other ideas. Events themselves are complex resultants which need to be interpreted by correct ideas. One of Galbraith's gravest flaws is the arbitrariness of the categories which pervade his work, of poverty and affluence. Nowhere does he define what he means by these terms, and therefore nowhere does he lay down standards by which we can know, even in theory, when we have passed the magic borderland between poverty and affluence that requires an entirely new economic theory to come into being. The present book, and most other economic works, make it evident that economic science is not dependent on some arbitrary level of wealth. The basic praxeological laws are true of all men at all times, and the catalactic laws of the exchange economy are true whenever and wherever exchanges are made. Galbraith makes much of his supposed discovery, suppressed by other economists, that the marginal utility of goods declines as one's income increases, and that therefore a man's final $1,000 is not worth nearly as much to him as his first, the margin of subsistence. But this knowledge is familiar to most economists, and this book, for example, has included it. The marginal utility of goods certainly declines as our income rises, but the very fact that people continue to work for the final $1,000 and work for more money when the opportunity is available demonstrates conclusively that the marginal utility of goods is still greater than the marginal disutility of leisure foregone. Galbraith's hidden fallacy is a quantitative assumption. From the mere fact that the marginal utility of goods falls as one's income and wealth rise, Galbraith has somehow concluded that it has already fallen to virtually, or really, zero. The fact of decline, however, tells us nothing whatever about the degree of this decline, which Galbraith arbitrarily assumes has been almost total. All economists, even the most conventional, know that as incomes have risen in the modern world, workers have chosen to take more and more of that income in the form of leisure. 
and this should be proof enough that economists have long been familiar with the supposedly suppressed truth that the marginal utility of goods in general tends to decline as their supply increases. But, Galbraith retorts, economists admit that leisure is a consumer's good, but not that other goods decline in value as their supply increases. Yet this is surely an erroneous contention. What economists know is that, as civilization expands the supply of goods, the marginal utility of goods declines, and the marginal utility of leisure foregone, the opportunity cost of labor, increases, so that more and more real income will be taken in the form of leisure. There is nothing at all startling, subversive, or revolutionary about this familiar fact. According to Galbraith, economists willfully ignore the specter of the satiation of once. Yet they do so quite properly, because when once, or rather once for exchangeable goods, are truly satiated, we shall all know it soon enough. For at that point, everyone will cease working, will cease trying to transform land resources into final consumers' goods. There will be no need to continue producing, because all needs for consumers' goods will have been supplied, or at least all those which can be produced and exchanged. At this point, everyone will stop work. The market economy, indeed all economy, will come to an end. Means will no longer be scarce in relation to ends, and everyone will bask in paradise. I think it's self-evident that this time has not yet arrived, and shows no signs of arriving. If it some day should arrive, it will be greeted by economists, as by most other people, not with curses, but with rejoicing. Despite their venerable reputation as practitioners of a dismal science, economists have no vested interests, psychological or otherwise, in scarcity. But in the meanwhile, this is still a world of scarcity. Scarce means have to be applied to alternate ends. Labor is still necessary. People still work for their final $1,000 of income and would be happy to accept another $1,000 should it be offered. We would venture another prediction. An informal poll taken among the people asking whether they would accept or know what to do with an extra few thousand dollars of annual real income would find almost no one who would refuse the offer because of excessive affluence or satiety, or for any other reason. Few would be at a loss about what to do with their increased wealth. Professor Galbraith, of course, has an answer to all this. These wants, he says, are not real or genuine ones. They have been created in the populace by advertisers, and their wicked clients, the producing businessmen. The very fact of production, through such advertising, creates the supposed wants that it supplies. Galbraith's entire theory of excess affluence rests on this flimsy assertion that consumer wants are artificially created by business itself. 
It is an allegation backed only by repetitious assertion and by no evidence whatever, except perhaps for Galbraith's obvious personal dislike for detergents and tail fins. What is more, the attack on wicked advertising as creating wants and degrading the consumer is surely the most conventional of the conventional wisdom in the anti-capitalist's arsenal. In addition to wicked advertising, wants are also artificially created, according to Galbraith, by emulation of one's neighbor, keeping up with the Joneses. But in the first place, what is wrong with such emulation, except an unsupported ethical judgment of Galbraith's? Galbraith pretends to ground his theory not on his private ethical judgment, but on the alleged creation of wants by production itself. Yet simple emulation would not be a function of producers, but of consumers themselves, unless emulation, too, were inspired by advertising. But this reduces to the criticism of advertising discussed in the text. And secondly, where did the original Jones obtain his wants? Regardless of how many people have wants purely in emulation of others, some person or persons must have originally had these wants as genuine needs of their very own. Otherwise, the argument is hopelessly circular. Once this is conceded, it is impossible for economics to decide to what extent each want is pervaded by emulation. There are many fallacies in Galbraith's conventional attack on advertising. In the first place, it is not true that advertising creates wants or demands on the part of the consumers. It certainly tries to persuade consumers to buy the product, but it cannot create wants or demands because each person must himself adopt the ideas and values on which he acts whether these ideas or values are sound or unsound. Galbraith here assumes a naive form of determinism, of advertising upon the consumers. And, like all determinists, he leaves an implicit escape clause from the determination for people like himself, who are, unaccountably, not determined by advertising. If there is determinism by advertising, how can some people be determined to rush out and buy the product while Professor Galbraith is free to resist the advertisements with indignation and to write a book denouncing the advertising? Secondly, Galbraith gives us no standard to decide which wants are so created and which are legitimate. By his stress on poverty, one might think that all wants above the subsistence level are false wants created by advertising. Of course, he supplies no evidence for this view, but, as we shall see further, this is hardly consistent with his views on public or governmentally induced wants. Thirdly, Galbraith fails to distinguish between fulfilling a given want in a better way and inducing new wants. Unless we are to take the extreme and unsupported view that all wants above the subsistence line are created, we must note the rather odd behavior attributed to businessmen by Galbraith's assumptions. 
Why should businessmen go to the expense, bother, and uncertainty of trying to create new wants when they could far more easily look for better or cheaper ways of fulfilling wants that consumers already have? If consumers, for example, already have a discernible and discoverable want for a no-rub cleanser, it is surely easier and less costly to produce and then advertise a no-rub cleanser than it would be to create some completely new want, say for blue cleansers in particular, and then work very hard and spend a great deal of money on advertising campaigns to try to convince people that they need blue cleansers because blue is the color of the sky or for some other artificial reason. Professor Lawrence Abbott, in his important book on competition, quality of products, and the business system, put it this way, the producers will generally find it easier and less costly to gain sales by adapting the product as closely as possible to existing tastes and by directing advertising to those whose wants it is already well-equipped to satisfy than by attempting to alter human beings to fit the product. In short, the Galbraithian view of the business and marketing system makes little or no sense. Rather than go to the expensive, uncertain, and at bottom needless task of trying to find a new want for consumers, business will tend to satisfy those wants that consumers already have, or that they are pretty sure consumers would have if the product were available. Advertising is then used as a means of a. conveying information to the consumers that the product is now available and telling them what the product will do, and b. specifically trying to convince the consumers that this product will satisfy their given want, for example, will be a no-rub cleanser. Indeed, our view is the only one that makes sense of the increasingly large quantities of money spent by business on marketing research. Why bother investigating in detail what consumers really want if all one need do is to create the wants for them by advertising? If, in fact, production really created its own demand through advertising, as Galbraith maintains, business would never again have to worry about losses or bankruptcy or a failure to sell automatically any good that it may arbitrarily choose to produce. Certainly there would be no need for marketing research or for any wondering about what consumers will buy. This image of the world is precisely the reverse of what is occurring. Indeed, precisely because people's standards of living are moving ever farther past the subsistence line, businessmen are worrying ever more intensely about what consumers want and what they will buy. It is because the range of goods available to the consumers is expanding so much beyond simple staples needed for subsistence in quantity, quality, and breadth of product substitutes that businessmen must compete as never before in paying court to the consumer, in trying to obtain his attention, in short, 
in advertising. Increasing advertising is a function of the increasingly effective range of competition for the consumer's favor. Not only will businessmen tend to produce for and satisfy what they believe are the given wants of consumers, but the consumers, in contrast to voters, as we have seen, have a direct market test for every piece of advertising that they confront. If they buy the cleanser and find that much rubbing is still required, the product will soon fade into oblivion. Thus, any advertising claims for market products can be and are quickly and readily tested by the consumers. Confronted with these facts, Galbraith could only maintain that the aversion against rubbing was itself generated in some mysterious and sinister fashion by business advertising. On the alleged powers of business advertising, it is well to note these pungent comments of Ludwig von Mises. It is a widespread fallacy that skillful advertising can talk the consumers into buying everything that the advertiser wants them to buy. However, nobody believes that any kind of advertising would have succeeded in making the candle makers hold the field against the electric bulb, the horse drivers against the motor cars, the goose quill against the steel pen, and later against the fountain pen. Advertising is one of the areas in which Galbraith, curiously and in glaring self-contradiction, treats private business differently from governmental activities. Thus, while business is supposed to be creating consumer wants through advertising, thereby generating an artificial affluence, at the same time the neglected public sector is increasingly starved and poverty-stricken. Apparently, Galbraith has never heard of, or refuses to acknowledge the existence of, governmental propaganda. He makes no mention whatever of the hordes of press agents, publicists, and propagandists working for government agencies, bombarding the taxpayers with propaganda which the latter have been forced to support. Since a considerable part of the propaganda is for ever greater increases in the particular government bureau's activities, this means that G, the government officials, expropriate T, the bulk of the taxpayers, in order to hire more propagandists for G, to persuade the taxpayers to permit still more funds to be taken from them, and so forth. It is strange that, while waxing indignant over detergent and automobile commercials over television, Professor Galbraith has never had to endure the tedium of public service commercials beamed at him from the government. We may pass over the Washington conferences for influential private organizations that serve as transmission belts for government propaganda to the grassroots, the inside briefings that perform the same function, the vast quantities of printed matter subsidized by the taxpayer and issued by the government, etc. Indeed, not only does Galbraith not consider government propaganda as artificially want-creating, and this is a realm, let us remember, where consumers have no market test of the product, 
But one of his major proposals is for a vast program of what he calls investment in men, which turns out to be large-scale governmental education to uplift the wants and tastes of the citizenry. In short, Galbraith wants society's objective to be the deliberate expansion of the new class, roughly intellectuals, who are blithely assumed to be the only ones who really enjoy their work. With its emphasis on education and its ultimate effect on intellectual, literary, cultural, and artistic demands. In proposing this large scale creation of an intellectual class, Galbraith virtually ignores the artificiality of educating people beyond their interests, capacities, or job opportunities available. It seems evident that while the free market and business are accused of artificially creating consumer wants, the shoe is precisely on Galbraith's own foot. It is Galbraith who is eager to curtail and suppress the consumer's freely chosen wants, and who is advocating a massive and coercive attempt by the government to create artificial wants, to invest in men by educating them to redirect their wants into those refined and artistic channels of which Professor Galbraith is so fond. Everyone will have to give up his tail fins so that all may be compelled to read books, like the affluent society, for example. There are other grave and fundamental fallacies in Galbraith's approach to government. In particular, after making much ado over the fact that, with poverty conquered, the marginal utility of further goods is lower, he finds that everything somehow works in reverse for governmental needs. Governmental needs, in some mystical way, are exempt from this law of diminishing marginal wants. Instead, mirabile dictu, governmental needs increase in urgency as society becomes more affluent. From this flagrant and unresolved contradiction, Galbraith leaps to the conclusion that government must compel the massive shifting of resources from superfluous private to starved public needs. But on the basis of diminishing marginal utility alone, there is no case for such a shift, since all wants at a higher real income are of lower utility than the wants of the poverty-stricken. And when we realize that if we talk about created wants at all, governmental propaganda is vastly more likely to create wants than is business, a case, even in Galbraith's own terms, can be made for just the reverse, for a shift from the governmental to the private sector. And finally, Galbraith, in his lament for the starved and underprivileged public sector, somehow neglects to inform his readers that, whatever statistics are used, it is clear that in the past half-century, government activity has increased far more than private. Government is absorbing and confiscating a far greater share of the national product than in earlier days. How much lower its utility, and how much greater the case in Galbraith's terms for a shift from government to private activity.
Galbraith also airily assumes, in common with many other writers, that many governmental services are collective goods and therefore simply cannot be supplied by private enterprise. Without going further into the question of the desirability of private enterprise in these fields, one must note that Galbraith is quite wrong. Not only is his thesis simply a bald assertion, unsupported by facts, but, on the contrary, every single service generally assumed to be suppliable by government alone has been historically supplied by private enterprise. This includes such services as education, road building and maintenance, coinage, postal delivery, fire protection, police protection, judicial decisions, and military defense, all of which are often held to be self-evidently and necessarily within the exclusive province of government. Since this would take us far afield indeed, we can mention here only one reference, to the successful development of the road and canal networks of 18th century England by private road, canal, and navigation improvement companies. There are many other important fallacies in Galbraith's book, but the central thesis of the affluent society has now been discussed. Thus, one of the reasons why Galbraith sees great danger in the present high consumption is that much is financed by consumer credit, which Galbraith considers in the conventional manner to be inflationary and to lead to instability and depression. Yet, as we shall see further, consumer credit that does not add to the money supply is not inflationary. It simply permits consumers to redirect the pattern of their spending so as to buy more of what they want and ascend higher in their value scales. In short, they may redirect spending from non-durable to durable goods, this is a transfer of spending power, not an inflationary rise. The device of consumer credit was a highly productive invention. Predictably, Galbraith pours much of his scorn on the supply and demand explanation of inflation, and especially on the proper monetary explanation, which he terms mystical his view of depression is purely Keynesian and assumes that a depression is caused by a deficiency of aggregate demand. Inflation is an increase in prices, which he would combat either by reducing aggregate demand through high taxes or by selective price controls and the fixing by compulsory arbitration of important wages and prices. If the former route is chosen, Galbraith, as a Keynesian, believes that unemployment would ensue. But Galbraith is not really worried, for he would take the revolutionary step of separating income from production. Production, it seems, is important only because it provides income. We have seen that government activity has already effected a considerable separation, he proposes a sliding scale of unemployment insurance provided by the government to be greater in depression than in boom, the payment in depression rising almost to the general prevailing wage. 
For some reason, Galbraith would not go precisely as high because of a lingering fear of some disincentive effect on the unemployed's finding jobs. He does not seem to realize that this is merely a way of aggravating and prolonging unemployment during a depression and indirectly subsidizing union wage scales above the market. There is no need to stress the author's other vagaries, such as his adoption of the conventional conservationist concern about using up precious resources, a position, of course, consistent with Galbraith's general attack on the private consumer. Amidst the tangle of Galbraith's remaining fallacies and errors, we might mention one, his curious implication that Professor von Mises is a businessman. For first, Galbraith talks of the age-old hostility between businessmen and intellectuals, backs this statement by quoting Mises as critical of many intellectuals, and then concedes that most businessmen would regard Mises as rather extreme. But since Mises is certainly not a businessman, it is odd to see his statements used as evidence for businessman intellectual enmity. This peculiar error is shared by Galbraith's Harvard colleagues, whose work he cites favorably, and who persist in quoting such non-businessmen as Henry Hazlitt and Dr. F. A. Harper as spokesmen for the classical business creed. As we have indicated, there is a problem of the public sector. Scarcities and conflicts keep appearing in government services and in these fields alone. For example, juvenile delinquency, traffic jams, overcrowded schools, lack of parking space, etc. We have seen that the single remedy that proponents of government activity can offer is for more funds to be channeled from private to public activity. We have shown, however, that such scarcity and inefficiency are inherent in government operation of any activity. Instead of taking warning from the inefficiencies of government output, writers like Galbraith turn the blame from government onto the taxpayers and consumers, just as government water officials characteristically blame the consumers for water shortages. At no time does Galbraith so much as consider the possibility of mending an ailing public sector by making that sector private. How would Galbraith know when his desired social balance was achieved? What criteria has he set to guide us in knowing how much shift there should be from private to public activity? The answer is none. Galbraith cheerfully concedes that there is no way of finding the point of optimum balance. No test can be applied, for none exists. But, after all, precise definitions, precise equilibrium, are not important. For to Galbraith, it is crystal clear that we must move now from private to public activity, and to a considerable extent. We shall know when we arrive, for the public sector will then bask in opulence. And to think that Galbraith accuses the perfectly sound and logical monetary theory of inflation of being mystical and unrevealed magic. 
Before leaving the question of affluence and the recent attack on consumption, the very goal of the entire economic system, let us note two stimulating contributions in recent years on hidden but important functions of luxury consumption, particularly by the rich. F. A. Hayek has pointed out the important function of the luxury consumption of the rich at any given time in pioneering new ways of consumption, and thereby paving the way for later diffusion of such consumption innovations to the mass of the consumers. As Hayek puts it, a large part of the expenditure of the rich, though not intended for that end, thus serves to defray the cost of the experimentation with the new things that, as a result, can later be made available to the poor. The important point is not merely that we gradually learn to make cheaply on a large scale what we already know how to make expensively in small quantities but that only from an advanced position does the next range of desires and possibilities become visible, so that the selection of new goals and the effort toward their achievement will begin long before the majority can strive for them. And Bertrand de Juvenel, stressing the fact that refined aesthetic and cultural tastes are concentrated precisely in the more affluent members of society, also points out that these citizens are the ones who could freely and voluntarily give many gratuitous services to others, services which, because they are free, are not counted in the national income statistics. If all housewives suddenly stopped doing their own housework and instead hired themselves out to their next-door neighbors, the supposed increase in national product, as measured by statistics, would be very great, even though the actual increase would be nil. 11. Binary Intervention – Inflation and Business Cycles A. Inflation and Credit Expansion In Chapter 11, we depicted the workings of the monetary system of a purely free market. A free money market adopts specie, either gold or silver, or both parallel, as the standard, or money proper. Units of money are simply units of weight of the money stuff. The total stock of the money commodity increases with new production, mining, and decreases from wear and tear and use in industrial employments. Generally, there will be a gradual secular rise in the money stock, with effects as analyzed. The wealth of some people will increase, and of others will decline, and no social usefulness will accrue from an increased supply of money in its monetary use. However, an increased stock will raise the social standard of living and well-being by further satisfying non-monetary demands for the monetary metal. Intervention in this money market usually takes the form of issuing pseudo-warehouse receipts as money substitutes, 
As we saw in Chapter 11, demand liabilities, such as deposits or paper notes, may come into use in a free market, but may equal only the actual value or weight of the specie deposited. The demand liabilities are then genuine warehouse receipts, or true money certificates, and they pass on the market as representatives of the actual money, that is, as money substitutes. Pseudo-warehouse receipts are those issued in excess of the actual weight of specie on deposit. Naturally, their issue can be a very lucrative business. Looking like the genuine certificates, they serve also as money substitutes, even though not covered by specie. They are fraudulent because they promise to redeem in specie at face value a promise that could not possibly be met were all the deposit holders to ask for their own property at the same time. Only the complacency and ignorance of the public permit the situation to continue. Although it has obvious third-person effects, this type of intervention is essentially binary because the issuer, or intervener, gains at the expense of individual holders of legitimate money. The lines of force radiate from the interveners to each of those who suffer losses. Broadly, such intervention may be effected either by the government or by private individuals and firms in their role as banks or money warehouses. The process of issuing pseudo-warehouse receipts, or more exactly, the process of issuing money beyond any increase in the stock of specie, may be called inflation. Inflation in this work is explicitly defined to exclude increases in the stock of specie. While these increases have such similar effects as raising the prices of goods, they also differ sharply in other effects. A. Simple increases in specie do not constitute an intervention in the free market, penalizing one group and subsidizing another and, b, they do not lead to the processes of the business cycle. A contraction in the money supply outstanding over any period, aside from a possible net decrease in specie, may be called deflation. Clearly, inflation is the primary event and the primary purpose of monetary intervention, there can be no deflation without an inflation having occurred in some previous period of time. A priori, almost all intervention will be inflationary. For not only must all monetary intervention begin with inflation, the great gain to be derived from inflation comes from the issuers putting new money into circulation. The profit is practically costless, because while all other people must either sell goods and services and buy or mine gold, the government or the commercial banks are literally creating money out of thin air. They do not have to buy it. Any profit from the use of this magical money is clear gain to the issuers. As happens when new specie enters the market, the issue of uncovered money substitutes also has a diffusion effect. 
The first receivers of the new money gain the most, the next gain slightly less, etc., until the midpoint is reached, and then each receiver loses more and more as he waits for the new money. For the first individual's selling prices soar, while buying prices remain almost the same, but later, buying prices have risen while selling prices remain unchanged. A crucial circumstance, however, differentiates this from the case of increasing specie. The new paper or new demand deposits have no social function whatever. They do not demonstrably benefit some without injuring others in the market society. The increasing money supply is only a social waste and can only advantage some at the expense of others, and the benefits and burdens are distributed as just outlined, the early comers gaining at the expense of later comers. Certainly the business and consumer borrowers from the bank, its clientele, benefit greatly from the new money, at least in the short run, since they are the ones who first receive it. If inflation is any increase in the supply of money not matched by an increase in the gold or silver stock available, the method of inflation just depicted is called credit expansion the creation of new money substitutes entering the economy on the credit market. As will be seen, while credit expansion by a bank seems far more sober and respectable than outright spending of new money, it actually has far graver consequences for the economic system, consequences which most people would find especially undesirable. This inflationary credit is called circulating credit, as distinguished from the lending of saved funds, called commodity credit. In this book, the term credit expansion will apply only to increases in circulating credit. Credit expansion has, of course, the same effect as any sort of inflation. Prices tend to rise as the money supply increases. Like any inflation, it is a process of redistribution, whereby the inflators and the part of the economy selling to them gain at the expense of those who come last in line in the spending process. This is the charm of inflation for the beneficiaries and the reason why it has been so popular, particularly since modern banking processes have camouflaged its significance for those losers who are far removed from banking operations. The gains to the inflators are visible and dramatic, the losses to others hidden and unseen, but just as effective for all that. Just as half the economy are taxpayers and half tax consumers, so half the economy are inflation payers and the rest inflation consumers. Most of these gains and losses will be short-run or one-shot. They will occur during the process of inflation but will cease after the new monetary equilibrium is reached. The inflators make their gains, but after the new money supply has been diffused throughout the economy, the inflationary gains and losses are ended. 
However, as we have seen in chapter 11, there are also permanent gains and losses resulting from inflation. For the new monetary equilibrium will not simply be the old one multiplied in all relations and quantities by the addition to the money supply. This was an assumption that the old quantity theory economists made. The valuations of the individuals making temporary gains and losses will differ. Therefore, each individual will react differently to his gains and losses and alter his relative spending patterns accordingly. Moreover, the new money will form a high ratio to the existing cash balance of some and a low ratio to that of others, and the result will be a variety of changes in spending patterns. Therefore, all prices will not have increased uniformly in the new equilibrium. The purchasing power of the monetary unit has fallen, but not equiproportionally over the entire array of exchange values. Since some prices have risen more than others, therefore, some people will be permanent gainers and some permanent losers from the inflation. Particularly hard hit by an inflation, of course, are the relatively fixed income groups, who end their losses only after a long period or not at all. Pensioners and annuitants who have contracted for a fixed money income are examples of permanent as well as short-run losers. Life insurance benefits are permanently slashed. Conservative anti-inflationists' complaints about the widows and orphans have often been ridiculed, but they are no laughing matter nevertheless, for it is precisely the widows and orphans who bear a main part of the brunt of inflation. The avowed goal of Keynes inflationist program was the euthanasia of the rentier, did Keynes realize that he was advocating the not-so-merciful annihilation of some of the most unfit-for-labor groups in the entire population, groups whose marginal value productivity consisted almost exclusively in their savings? Also suffering losses are creditors who have already extended their loans and find it too late to charge a purchasing power premium on their interest rates. Inflation also changes the market's consumption-investment ratio. Superficially, it seems that credit expansion greatly increases capital, for the new money enters the market as equivalent to new savings for lending. Since the new bank money is apparently added to the supply of savings on the credit market, businesses can now borrow at a lower rate of interest. Hence, inflationary credit expansion seems to offer the ideal escape from time preference, as well as an inexhaustible fount of added capital. Actually, this effect is illusory. On the contrary, inflation reduces saving and investment, thus lowering society's standard of living. It may even cause large-scale capital consumption, in the first place, as we have just seen, existing creditors are injured. This will tend to discourage lending in the future, and thereby discourage saving investment. 
Secondly, as we have seen in chapter 11, the inflationary process inherently yields a purchasing power profit to the businessman, since he purchases factors and sells them at a later time, when all prices are higher. The businessman may thus keep abreast of the price increase. We are here exempting from variations in price increases the terms of trade component neither losing nor gaining from the inflation. But business accounting is traditionally geared to a world where the value of the monetary unit is stable. Capital goods purchased are entered in the asset column at cost, that is, at the price paid for them. When the firm later sells the product, the extra inflationary gain is not really a gain at all for it must be absorbed in purchasing the replaced capital good at a higher price. Inflation, therefore, tricks the businessman. It destroys one of his main signposts and leads him to believe that he has gained extra profits when he is just able to replace capital. Hence, he will undoubtedly be tempted to consume out of these profits, and thereby unwittingly consume capital as well. Thus, inflation tends at once to repress saving investment and to cause consumption of capital. The accounting error stemming from inflation has other economic consequences. The firms with the greatest degree of error will be those with capital equipment bought more preponderantly when prices were lowest. If the inflation has been going on for a while, these will be the firms with the oldest equipment. Their seemingly great profits will attract other firms into the field, and there will be a completely unjustified expansion of investment in a seemingly high-profit area. Conversely, there will be a deficiency of investment elsewhere. Thus, the error distorts the market's system of allocating resources and reduces its effectiveness in satisfying the consumer. The error will also be greatest in those firms with a greater proportion of capital equipment to product, and similar distorting effects will take place through excessive investment in heavily capitalized industries, offset by underinvestment elsewhere. B. Credit Expansion and the Business Cycle We have already seen in Chapter 8 what happens when there is net saving investment an increase in the ratio of gross investment to consumption in the economy. Consumption expenditures fall, and the prices of consumers' goods fall. On the other hand, the production structure is lengthened, and the prices of original factors specialized in the higher stages rise. The prices of capital goods change like a lever being pivoted on a fulcrum at its center, the prices of consumers' goods fall most, those of first-order capital goods fall less, those of highest-order capital goods rise most, and the others less. Thus, the price differentials between the stages of production all diminish.
prices of original factors fall in the lower stages and rise in the higher stages, and the non-specific original factors, mainly labor, shift partly from the lower to the higher stages. Investment tends to be centered in lengthier processes of production. The drop in price differentials is, as we have seen, equivalent to a fall in the natural rate of interest, which, of course, leads to a corollary drop in the loan rate. After a while, the fruit of the more productive techniques arrives, and the real income of everyone rises. Thus, an increase in saving resulting from a fall in time preferences leads to a fall in the interest rate and another stable equilibrium situation with a longer and narrower production structure. What happens, however, when the increase in investment is not due to a change in time preference and saving, but to credit expansion by the commercial banks? Is this a magic way of expanding the capital structure easily and costlessly, without reducing present consumption? Suppose that six million gold ounces are being invested, and four million consumed, in a certain period of time. Suppose now that the banks in the economy expand credit and increase the money supply by two million ounces. What are the consequences? The new money is loaned to businesses. To the extent that the new money is loaned to consumers rather than businesses, the cycle effects discussed in this section do not occur. These businesses, now able to acquire the money at a lower rate of interest, enter the capital goods and original factors market to bid resources away from the other firms. At any given time, the stock of goods is fixed, and the two million new ounces are therefore employed in raising the prices of producers' goods. The rise in prices of capital goods will be imputed to rises in original factors. The credit expansion reduces the market rate of interest. This means that price differentials are lowered. And as we have seen in Chapter Eight, lower price differentials raise prices in the highest stages of production, shifting resources to these stages and also increasing the number of stages. As a result, the production structure is lengthened. The borrowing firms are led to believe that enough funds are available to permit them to embark on projects formerly unprofitable. On the free market, investment will always take place first in those projects that satisfy the most urgent wants of the consumers. Then the next most urgent wants are satisfied, etc. The interest rate regulates the temporal order of choice of projects in accordance with their urgency. A lower rate of interest on the market is a signal that more projects can be undertaken profitably. Increased saving on the free market leads to a stable equilibrium of production at a lower rate of interest, but not so with credit expansion. For the original factors now receive increased money income. In the free market example, total money incomes remained the same. 
the increased expenditure on higher stages was offset by decreased expenditure in the lower stages. The increased length of the production structure was compensated by the reduced width. But credit expansion pumps new money into the production structure. Aggregate money incomes increase instead of remaining the same. The production structure has lengthened, but it has also remained as wide without contraction of consumption expenditure. The owners of the original factors, with their increased money income, naturally hasten to spend their new money. They allocate this spending between consumption and investment in accordance with their time preferences. Let us assume that the time preference schedules of the people remain unchanged. This is a proper assumption, since there is no reason to assume that they have changed because of the inflation. Production now no longer reflects voluntary time preferences. Business has been led by credit expansion to invest in higher stages as if more savings were available. Since they are not, business has over-invested in the higher stages and under-invested in the lower. Consumers act promptly to re-establish their time preferences, their preferred investment consumption proportions and price differentials. The differentials will be re-established at the old, higher amount. That is, the rate of interest will return to its free market magnitude. As a result, the prices at the higher stages of production will fall drastically. The prices at the lower stages will rise again, and the entire new investment at the higher stages will have to be abandoned or sacrificed. Altering our oversimplified example, which has treated only two stages, we see that the highest stages, believed profitable, have proved to be unprofitable. The pure rate of interest, reflecting consumer desires, is shown to have really been higher all along. The bank's credit expansion had tampered with that indispensable signal, the interest rate, that tells businessmen how much savings are available and what length of projects will be profitable. In the free market, the interest rate is an indispensable guide in the time dimension to the urgency of consumer wants. But bank intervention in the market disrupts this free price and renders entrepreneurs unable to satisfy consumer desires properly or to estimate the most beneficial time structure of production. As soon as the consumers are able, that is, as soon as the increased money enters their hands, they take the opportunity to re-establish their time preferences and, therefore, the old differentials and investment consumption ratios. Over-investment in the highest stages and under-investment in the lower stages are now revealed in all their starkness. The situation is analogous to that of a contractor misled into believing that he has more building material than he really has, and then awakening to find that he has used up all his material on a capacious foundation, the higher stages, with no material left to complete the house. 
Clearly, bank credit expansion cannot increase capital investment by one iota. Investment can still come only from savings. It should not be surprising that the market tends to revert to its preferred ratios. The same process, as we have seen, takes place in all prices after a change in the money stock. Increased money always begins in one area of the economy, raising prices there, and filters and diffuses eventually over the whole economy, which then roughly returns to an equilibrium pattern conforming to the value of the money. If the market then tends to return to its preferred price ratios after a change in the money supply, it should be evident that this includes a return to its preferred saving investment ratio, reflecting social time preferences. It is true, of course, that time preferences may alter in the interim, either for each individual or as a result of the redistribution during the change. The gainers may save more or less than the losers would have done. Therefore, the market will not return precisely to the old free market interest rate and investment consumption ratio, just as it will not return to its precise pattern of prices. It will revert to whatever the free market interest rate is now, as determined by current time preferences. Some advocates of coercing the market into saving and investing more than it wishes have hailed credit expansion as leading to forced saving, thereby increasing the capital goods structure. But this can happen not as a direct consequence of credit expansion, but only because effective time preferences have changed in that direction, that is, time preference schedules have shifted, or relatively more money is now in the hands of those with low time preferences. Credit expansion may well lead to the opposite effect. The gainers may have higher time preferences, in which case the free market interest rate will be higher than before. Because these effects of credit expansion are completely uncertain and depend on the concrete data of each particular case, it is clearly far more cogent for advocates of forced saving to use the taxation process to make their redistribution. The market, therefore, reacts to a distortion of the free market interest rate by proceeding to revert to that very rate. The distortion caused by credit expansion deceives businessmen into believing that more savings are available and causes them to malinvest, to invest in projects that will turn out to be unprofitable when consumers have a chance to reassert their true preferences. This reassertion takes place fairly quickly, as soon as owners of factors receive their increased incomes and spend them. This theory permits us to resolve an age-old controversy among economists, whether an increase in the money supply can lower the market rate of interest. To the mercantilists, and to the Keynesians, it was obvious that an increased money stock permanently lowered the rate of interest, given the demand for money. 
To the classicists, it was obvious that changes in the money stock could affect only the value of the monetary unit and not the rate of interest. The answer is that an increase in the supply of money does lower the rate of interest when it enters the market as credit expansion, but only temporarily. In the long run, and this long run is not very long, the market reestablishes the free market time preference interest rate and eliminates the change. In the long run, a change in the money stock affects only the value of the monetary unit. This process, by which the market reverts to its preferred interest rate and eliminates the distortion caused by credit expansion, is, moreover, the business cycle. Our analysis, therefore, permits the solution not only of the theoretical problem of the relation between money and interest, but also of the problem that has plagued society for the last century and a half and more, the dread business cycle. And furthermore, the theory of the business cycle can now be explained as a subdivision of our general theory of the economy. Note the hallmarks of this distortion-reversion process. First, the money supply increases through credit expansion. Then, businesses are tempted to malinvest, over-investing in higher-stage and durable production processes. Next, the prices and incomes of original factors increase, and consumption increases, and businesses realize that the higher-stage investments have been wasteful and unprofitable. The first stage is the chief landmark of the boom. The second stage, the discovery of the wasteful malinvestments, is the crisis. The depression is the next stage, during which malinvested businesses become bankrupt, and original factors must suddenly shift back to the lower stages of production. The liquidation of unsound businesses, the idle capacity of the malinvested plant, and the frictional unemployment of original factors that must suddenly and en masse shift to lower stages of production, these are the chief hallmarks of the depression stage. We have seen in Chapter 11 that the major unexplained features of the business cycle are the mass of error and the concentration of error and disturbance in the capital goods industries. Our theory of the business cycle solves both of these problems. The cluster of error suddenly revealed by entrepreneurs is due to the interventionary distortion of a key market signal, the interest rate. The concentration of disturbance in the capital goods industries is explained by the spur to unprofitable higher-order investments in the boom period. And we have just seen that other characteristics of the business cycle are explained by this theory. One point should be stressed. The depression phase is actually the recovery phase. Most people would be happy to keep the boom period, where the inflationary gains are visible and the losses hidden and obscure. This boom euphoria is heightened by the capital consumption that inflation promotes through illusory accounting profits. 
The stages that people complain about are the crisis and depression, but the latter periods, it should be clear, do not cause the trouble. The trouble occurs during the boom, when malinvestments and distortions take place. The crisis-depression phase is the curative period, after people have been forced to recognize the malinvestments that have occurred. The depression period, therefore, is the necessary recovery period. It is the time when bad investments are liquidated and mistaken entrepreneurs leave the market, the time when consumer sovereignty and the free market reassert themselves and establish once again an economy that benefits every participant to the maximum degree. The depression period ends when the free market equilibrium has been restored and expansionary distortion eliminated. It should be clear that any governmental interference with the depression process can only prolong it, thus making things worse from almost everyone's point of view. Since the depression process is the recovery process, any halting or slowing down of the process impedes the advent of recovery. The depression readjustments must work themselves out before recovery can be complete. The more these readjustments are delayed, the longer the depression will have to last, and the longer complete recovery is postponed. For example, if the government keeps wage rates up, it brings about permanent unemployment. If it keeps prices up, it brings about unsold surplus. And if it spurs credit expansion again, then new malinvestment and later depressions are spawned. Many 19th century economists referred to the business cycle in a biological metaphor, likening the depression to a painful but necessary curative of the alcoholic or narcotic jag which is the boom, and asserting that any tampering with the depression delays recovery. They have been widely ridiculed by present-day economists. The ridicule is misdirected, however, for the biological analogy is, in this case, correct. One obvious conclusion from our analysis is the absurdity of the under-consumptionist remedies for depression, the idea that the crisis is caused by under-consumption and that the way to cure the depression is to stimulate consumption expenditures. The reverse is clearly the truth. What has brought about the crisis is precisely the fact that entrepreneurial investment erroneously anticipated greater savings, and that this error is revealed by consumers re-establishing their desired proportion of consumption. Over-consumption, or under-saving, has brought about the crisis, although it is hardly fair to pin the guilt on the consumer, who is simply trying to restore his preferences after the market has been distorted by bank credit. The only way to hasten the curative process of the depression is for people to save and invest more, and consume less thereby finally justifying some of the malinvestments and mitigating the adjustments that have to be made. One problem has been left unexplained. 
We have seen that the reversion period is short, and that factor incomes increase rather quickly and start restoring the free market consumption-saving ratios. But why do booms historically continue for several years? What delays the reversion process? The answer is that as the boom begins to peter out from an injection of credit expansion, the banks inject a further dose. In short, the only way to avert the onset of the depression adjustment process is to continue inflating money and credit. For only continual doses of new money on the credit market will keep the boom going and the new stages profitable. Furthermore, only ever-increasing doses can step up the boom, can lower interest rates further, and expand the production structure. For as the prices rise, more and more money will be needed to perform the same amount of work. Once the credit expansion stops, the market ratios are re-established, and the seemingly glorious new investments turn out to be malinvestments, built on a foundation of sand. How long booms can be kept up, what limits there are to booms in different circumstances, will be discussed later. But it is clear that prolonging the boom by ever larger doses of credit expansion will have only one result, to make the inevitably ensuing depression longer and more grueling. The larger the scope of malinvestment and error in the boom, the greater and longer the task of readjustment in the depression. The way to prevent a depression, then, is simple. Avoid starting a boom. And to avoid starting a boom, all that is necessary is to pursue a truly free market policy in money, that is, a policy of 100% specie reserves for banks and governments. Credit expansion always generates the business cycle process, even when other tendencies cloak its workings. Thus, many people believe that all is well if prices do not rise or if the actually recorded interest rate does not fall. But prices may well not rise because of some counteracting force, such as an increase in the supply of goods or a rise in the demand for money. But this does not mean that the boom-depression cycle fails to occur. The essential processes of the boom, distorted interest rates, malinvestments, bankruptcies, etc., continue unchecked. This is one of the reasons why those who approach business cycles from a statistical point of view and try in that way to arrive at a theory are in hopeless error. Any historical statistical fact is a complex resultant of many causal influences and cannot be used as a simple element with which to construct a causal theory. The point is that credit expansion raises prices beyond what they would have been in the free market and thereby creates the business cycle. Similarly, credit expansion does not necessarily lower the interest rate below the rate previously recorded. It lowers the rate below what it would have been in the free market, and thus creates distortion and malinvestment. 
Recorded interest rates in the boom will generally rise, in fact, because of the purchasing power component in the market interest rate. An increase in prices, as we have seen, generates a positive purchasing power component in the natural interest rate, that is, the rate of return earned by businessmen on the market. In the free market, this would quickly be reflected in the loan rate, which, as we have seen, is completely dependent on the natural rate. But a continual influx of circulating credit prevents the loan rate from catching up with the natural rate, and thereby generates the business cycle process. Since Knut Vwicksell is one of the fathers of this business cycle approach, it is important to stress that our usage of natural rate differs from his. Wixell's natural rate was akin to our free market rate. Our natural rate is the rate of return earned by businesses on the existing market without considering loan interest. It corresponds to what has been misleadingly called the normal profit rate, but is actually the basic rate of interest. A further corollary of this bank-created discrepancy between the loan rate and the natural rate is that creditors on the loan market suffer losses for the benefit of their debtors. The capitalists on the stock market or those who own their own businesses. The latter gain during the boom by the differential between the loan rate and the natural rate while the creditors, apart from banks, which create their own money, lose to the same extent. After the boom period is over, what is to be done with the malinvestments? The answer depends on their profitability for further use, that is, on the degree of error that was committed. Some malinvestments will have to be abandoned since their earnings from consumer demand will not even cover the current costs of their operation. Others, though monuments of failure, will be able to yield a profit over current costs, although it will not pay to replace them as they wear out. Temporarily working them fulfills the economic principle of always making the best of even a bad bargain. Because of the malinvestments, however, the boom always leads to general impoverishment, that is, reduces the standard of living below what it would have been in the absence of the boom. For the credit expansion has caused the squandering of scarce resources and scarce capital, some resources have been completely wasted, and even those malinvestments that continue in use will satisfy consumers less than would have been the case without the credit expansion. C. Secondary Developments of the Business Cycle In the previous section, we have presented the basic process of the business cycle, this process is often accentuated by other or secondary developments induced by the cycle. Thus, the expanding money supply and rising prices are likely to lower the demand for money. Many people begin to anticipate higher prices and will therefore dishoard. The lowered demand for money raises prices further. 
since the impetus to expansion comes first in expenditure on capital goods and later in consumption, this secondary effect of a lower demand for money may take hold first in producers' goods industries. This lowers the price and profit differentials further, and hence widens the distance that the rate of interest will fall below the free market rate during the boom. The effect is to aggravate the need for readjustment during the depression. The adjustment would cause some fall in the prices of producers' goods anyway, since the essence of the adjustment is to raise price differentials. The extra distortion requires a steeper fall in the prices of producers' goods before recovery is completed. As a matter of fact, the demand for money generally rises at the beginning of an inflation. People are accustomed to thinking of the value of the monetary unit as inviolate and of prices as remaining at some customary level. Hence, when prices first begin to rise, most people believe this to be a purely temporary development, with prices soon due to recede. This belief mitigates the extent of the price rise for a time. Eventually, however, people realize that credit expansion has continued and undoubtedly will continue, and their demand for money dwindles, becoming lower than the original level. After the crisis arrives and the depression begins, various secondary developments often occur. In particular, for reasons that will be discussed further, the crisis is often marked not only by a halt to credit expansion, but by an actual deflation, a contraction in the supply of money. The deflation causes a further decline in prices. Any increase in the demand for money will speed up adjustment to the lower prices. Furthermore, when deflation takes place first on the loan market, that is, as credit contraction by the banks, and this is almost always the case, this will have the beneficial effect of speeding up the depression adjustment process. For credit contraction creates higher price differentials, and the essence of the required adjustment is to return to higher price differentials, that is, a higher natural rate of interest. Furthermore, deflation will hasten adjustment in yet another way, for the accounting error of inflation is here reversed, and businessmen will think their losses are more and profits less than they really are. Hence, they will save more than they would have with correct accounting, and the increased saving will speed adjustment by supplying some of the needed deficiency of savings. It may well be true that the deflationary process will overshoot the free market equilibrium point and raise price differentials and the interest rate above it. But if so, no harm will be done, since a credit contraction can create no malinvestments and therefore does not generate another boom-bust cycle. If some readers are tempted to ask why credit contraction will not lead to the opposite type of malinvestment to that of the boom, overinvestment in lower-order capital goods and underinvestment in higher-order goods, 
The answer is that there is no arbitrary choice open of investing in higher-order or lower-order goods. Increased investment must be made in the higher-order goods, in lengthening the structure of production. A decreased amount of investment simply cuts down on higher-order investment. There will thus be no excess of investment in the lower orders, but simply a shorter structure than would otherwise be the case. Contraction, unlike expansion, does not create positive malinvestments. And the market will correct the error rapidly. When there is such excessive contraction and consumption is too high in relation to savings, the money income of businessmen is reduced, and their spending on factors declines, especially in the higher orders. Owners of original factors receiving lower incomes will spend less on consumption. Price differentials and the interest rate will again be lowered, and the free market consumption-investment ratios will be speedily restored. Just as inflation is generally popular for its narcotic effect, deflation is always highly unpopular for the opposite reason. The contraction of money is visible. The benefits to those whose buying prices fall first and who lose money last remain hidden, and the illusory accounting losses of deflation make businesses believe that their losses are greater or profits smaller than they actually are, and this will aggravate business pessimism. It is true that deflation takes from one group and gives to another, as does inflation. Yet not only does credit contraction speed recovery and counteract the distortions of the boom, but it also, in a broad sense, takes away from the original coercive gainers and benefits the original coerced losers. While this will certainly not be true in every case, in the broad sense, much the same groups will benefit and lose, but in reverse order from that of the redistributive effects of credit expansion. Fixed income groups, widows and orphans, will gain, and businesses and owners of original factors previously reaping gains from inflation will lose. The longer the inflation has continued, of course, the less the same individuals will be compensated. If the economy is on a gold or silver standard, then many advocates of a free market will argue for credit contraction for the following additional reasons. A. To preserve the principle of paying one's contractual obligations, and B. To punish the banks for their expansion and force them back toward a 100% specie reserve policy. Some may object that deflation causes unemployment. However, as we have seen, deflation can lead to continuing unemployment only if the government or the unions keep wage rates above the discounted marginal value products of labor. If wage rates are allowed to fall freely, no continuing unemployment will occur. Finally, deflationary credit contraction is necessarily severely limited. Whereas credit can expand, 
barring various economic limits to be discussed later, virtually to infinity, circulating credit can contract only as far down as the total amount of specie in circulation. In short, its maximum possible limit is the eradication of all previous credit expansion. The business cycle analysis set forth here has essentially been that of the Austrian school, originated and developed by Ludwig von Mises and some of his students. A prominent criticism of this theory is that it assumes the existence of full employment, or that its analysis holds only after full employment has been attained. Before that point, say the critics, credit expansion will beneficently put these factors to work and not generate further malinvestments or cycles. But in the first place, inflation will put no unemployed factors to work unless their owners, though holding out for a money price higher than their marginal value product, are blindly content to accept the necessarily lower real price when it is camouflaged as a rise in the cost of living and credit expansion generates further cycles whether or not there are unemployed factors. It creates more distortions and malinvestments, delays indefinitely the process of recovery from the previous boom, and makes necessary an eventually far more grueling recovery to adjust to the new malinvestments as well as to the old. If idle capital goods are now set to work, this idle capacity is the hangover effect of previous wasteful malinvestments, and hence is really sub-marginal and not worth bringing into production. Putting the capital to work again will only redouble the distortions. D. The Limits of Credit Expansion Having investigated the consequences of credit expansion, we must discuss the important question, if fractional reserve banking is legal, are there any natural limits to credit expansion by the banks? The one basic limit, of course, is the necessity of the banks to redeem their money substitutes on demand. Under a gold or silver standard, they must redeem in specie. Under a government fiat paper standard, the banks have to redeem in government paper. In any case, they must redeem in standard money or its virtual equivalent. Therefore, every fractional reserve bank depends for its very existence on persuading the public, specifically its clients, that all is well and that it will be able to redeem its notes or deposits whenever the clients demand. Since this is palpably not the case, the continuance of confidence in the banks is something of a psychological marvel. Perhaps one reason for continuing confidence in the banking system is that people generally believe that fraud is prosecuted by the government, and that therefore any practice not so prosecuted must be sound. Governments indeed always go out of their way to bolster the banking system. It is certain at any rate that a wider knowledge of praxeology among the public would greatly weaken confidence in the banking system, for the banks are in an inherently weak position. 
Let just a few of their clients lose confidence and begin to call on the banks for redemption, and this will precipitate a scramble by other clients to make sure that they get their money while the bank's doors are still open. The obvious and justifiable panic of the banks, should any sort of run develop, encourages other clients to do the same, and aggravates the run still further. At any rate, runs on banks can wreak havoc, and, of course, if pursued consistently, could close every bank in the country in a few days. All this, of course, assumes no further government intervention in banking than permitting fractional reserve banking. Since the advent of deposit insurance during the New Deal, for example, the bank run limitation has been virtually eliminated by this act of special privilege. Runs, therefore, and the constant underlying threat of their occurrence, are one of the prime limits to credit expansion. Runs often develop during a business cycle crisis, when debts are being defaulted and failures become manifest. Runs and the fear of runs help to precipitate deflationary credit contraction. Runs may be an ever-present threat, but as effective limitations they are not generally active. When they do occur, they usually wreck the banks. The fact that a bank is in existence at all signifies that a run has not developed. A more active, everyday limitation is the relatively narrow range of a bank's clientele. The clientele of a bank consists of those people willing to hold its deposits or notes, its money substitutes, in lieu of money proper. It is an empirical fact in almost all cases that one bank does not have the patronage of all people in the market society, or even of all those who prefer to use bank money rather than specie. It is obvious that the more banks exist, the more restricted will be the clientele of any one bank. People decide which bank to use on many grounds. Reputation for integrity, friendliness of service, price of service, and convenience of location may all play a part. How does the narrow range of a bank's clientele limit its potentiality for credit expansion? The newly issued money substitutes are, of course, loaned to a bank's clients. The client then spends the new money on goods and services. The new money begins to be diffused throughout the society. Eventually, usually very quickly, it is spent on the goods or services of people who use a different bank. Suppose that the star bank has expanded credit. The newly issued Star Bank's notes or deposits find their way into the hands of Mr. Jones, who uses the Citibank. Two alternatives may occur, either of which has the same economic effect. A. Jones accepts the Star Bank's notes or deposits and deposits them in the Citibank, which calls on the Star Bank for redemption. Or, B, Jones refuses to accept the Star Bank's notes and insists that the Star client, say Mr. Smith, who bought something from Jones, redeem the note himself and pay Jones in acceptable standard money.
Thus, while gold or silver is acceptable throughout the market, a bank's money substitutes are acceptable only to its own clientele. Clearly, a single bank's credit expansion is limited, and this limitation is stronger, a, the narrower the range of its clientele, and b, the greater its issue of money substitutes in relation to that of competing banks. In illustration of the first point, let us assume that each bank has only one client. Then it is obvious that there will be very little room for credit expansion. At the opposite extreme, if one bank is used by everybody in the economy, there will be no demands for redemption resulting from its clients purchasing from non-clients. It is obvious that ceteris paribus, a numerically smaller clientele, is more restrictive of credit expansion. As regards the second point, the greater the degree of relative credit expansion by any one bank, the sooner will the day of redemption and potential bankruptcy be at hand. Suppose that the star bank expands credit while none of the competing banks do. This means that the star bank's clientele have added considerably to their cash balances. As a result, the marginal utility to them of each unit of money to hold declines, and they are impelled to spend a great proportion of the new money. Some of this increased spending will be on one another's goods and services, but it is clear that the greater the credit expansion, the greater will be the tendency for their spending to spill over onto the goods and services of non-clients. This tendency to spill over or drain is greatly enhanced when increased spending by clients on the goods and services of other clients raises their prices. In the meanwhile, the prices of the goods sold by non-clients remain the same. As a consequence, clients are impelled to buy more from non-clients and less from one another while non-clients buy less from clients and more from one another. The result is an unfavorable balance of trade from clients to non-clients. In the consolidated balance of payments of the clients, money income from sales to non-clients, exports, will decline, and money expenditures on the goods and services of non-clients, imports, will increase. The excess cash balances of the clients are transferred to non-clients. It is clear that this tendency of money to seek a uniform level of exchange value throughout the entire market is an example of the process by which new money, in this case new money substitutes, is diffused through the market. The greater the relative credit expansion by the bank, then, the greater and more rapid will be the drain and consequent pressure on an expanding bank for redemption. The purpose of banks keeping any specie reserves in their vaults, assuming no legal reserve requirements, now becomes manifest. It is not to meet bank runs, since no fractional reserve bank can be equipped to withstand a run. It is to meet the demands for redemption which will inevitably come from non-clients. 
Mises has brilliantly shown that a subdivision of this process was discovered by the British Currency School and by the classical international trade theorists of the 19th century. These older economists assumed that all the banks in a certain region or country expanded credit together. The result was a rise in the prices of goods produced in that country. A further result was an unfavorable balance of trade, that is, an outflow of standard specie to other countries. Since other countries did not patronize the expanding country's banks, the consequence was a specie drain from the expanding country and increased pressure for redemption on its banks. Like all parts of the overstressed and overelaborated theory of international trade, this analysis is simply a special subdivision of general economic theory and cataloging it as international trade theory, as Mises has shown, underestimates its true significance. Older economists also distinguished an internal drain as well as the external drain, but included in the former only the drain from bank users to those who insist on standard money. Thus, the more freely competitive and numerous are the banks, the less they will be able to expand fiduciary media, even if they are left free to do so. As we noted in Chapter 11, such a system is known as free banking. A major objection to this analysis of free banking has been the problem of bank cartels, if banks get together and agree to expand their credit simultaneously, the clientele limitation vis-à-vis -vis competing banks will be removed, and the clientele of each bank will, in effect, increase to include all bank users. Mises points out, however, that the sounder banks with higher fractional reserves will not wish to lose the goodwill of their own clients and risk bank runs by entering into collusive agreements with weaker banks. This consideration, while placing limits on such agreements, does not rule them out altogether. For, after all, no fractional reserve banks are really sound. And if the public can be led to believe that, say, an 80% specie reserve is sound, it can believe the same about 60% or even 10% reserve banks. Indeed, the fact that the weaker banks are allowed by the public to exist at all demonstrates that the more conservative banks may not lose much goodwill by agreeing to expand with them. As Mises has demonstrated, there is no question that, from the point of view of opponents of inflation and credit expansion, free banking is superior to a central banking system. But, as Amasa Walker stated, much has been said at different times of the desirableness of free banking, of the propriety and rightfulness of allowing any person who chooses to carry on banking as freely as farming or any other branch of business, there can be no doubt. But while banking, as at present, means the issuing of inconvertible paper, the more it is guarded and restricted, the better.
But when such issues are entirely forbidden, and only notes equivalent to certificates of so much coin are issued, banking may be as free as brokerage. The only thing to be secured would be that no issues should be made except upon specie in hand. E. The Government as Promoter of Credit Expansion Historically, governments have fostered and encouraged credit expansion to a great degree. They have done so by weakening the limitations that the market places on bank credit expansion. One way of weakening it is to anesthetize the bank against the threat of bank runs. In 19th century America, the government permitted banks, when they got into trouble in a business crisis, to suspend specie payment while continuing in operation. They were temporarily freed from their contractual obligation of paying their debts, while they could continue lending and even force their debtors to repay in their own banknotes. This is a powerful way to eradicate limitations on credit expansion, since the banks know that if they overreach themselves, the government will permit them blithely to avoid payment of their contractual obligations. Under a fiat money standard, governments, or their central banks, may obligate themselves to bail out, with increased issues of standard money, any bank or any major bank in distress. In the late 19th century, the principle became accepted that the central bank must act as the lender of last resort, which will lend money freely to banks threatened with failure. Another recent American device to abolish the confidence limitation on bank credit is deposit insurance, whereby the government guarantees to furnish paper money to redeem the bank's demand liabilities. These and similar devices remove the market breaks on rampant credit expansion. A second device, now so legitimized that any country lacking it is considered hopelessly backward, is the central bank. The central bank, while often nominally owned by private individuals or banks, is run directly by the national government. Its purpose, not always stated explicitly, is to remove the competitive check on bank credit provided by a multiplicity of independent banks. Its aim is to make sure that all the banks in the country are coordinated and will therefore expand or contract together, at the will of the government. And we have seen that coordination of expansion greatly weakens the market's limits. The crucial way in which governments have established central bank control over the commercial banking system is by granting the bank a monopoly of the note issue in the country. As we have seen, money substitutes may be issued in the form of notes or book deposits. Economically, the two forms are identical. The state has found it convenient, however, to distinguish between the two and to outlaw all note issue by private banks. Such nationalizing of the note issue business forces the commercial banks to go to the central bank whenever their customers desire to exchange demand deposits for paper notes. To obtain notes to furnish their clients, commercial banks must buy them from the central bank.
Such purchases can be made only by selling their gold coin or other standard money or by drawing on the bank's deposit accounts with the central bank. Since the public always wishes to hold some of its money in the form of notes and some in demand deposits, the banks must establish a continuing relationship with the central bank to be assured a supply of notes. Their most convenient procedure is to establish demand deposit accounts with the central bank, which thereby becomes the banker's bank. These demand deposits, added to the gold in their vaults, become the reserves of the banks. The central bank can also more freely create demand liabilities not backed 100% by gold, and these increased liabilities add to the reserves and demand deposits held by banks or else increase central bank notes outstanding. The rise in reserves of banks throughout the country will spur them to expand credit, while any decrease in these reserves will induce a general contraction in credit. The central bank can increase the reserves of a country's banks in three ways. A. By simply lending them reserves. B. By purchasing their assets, thereby adding directly to the bank's deposit accounts with the central bank or C, by purchasing the IOUs of the public, which will then deposit the drafts on the central bank in the various banks that serve the public directly, thereby enabling them to use the credits on the central bank to add to their own reserves. The second process is known as discounting, the latter as open market purchase, a lapse in discounts as the loans mature will lower reserves, as will open market sales. In open market sales, the people will pay the central bank for its assets, purchased with checks drawn on their accounts at the banks, and the central bank exacts payment by reducing bank reserves on its books. In most cases, the assets purchased or sold on the open market are government IOUs. There is a fourth way by which a central bank may increase bank reserves. In countries such as the United States, where banks must keep a legally required minimum ratio of reserves to deposits, the bank may simply lower the required ratio. Thus, the banking system becomes coordinated under the aegis of the government. The central bank is always accorded a great deal of prestige by its creator government. Often, the government makes its notes legal tender. Under the gold standard, the wide resources which it commands, added to the fact that the whole country is its clientele, usually make negligible any trouble the bank may have in redeeming its liabilities in gold. Furthermore, it is certain that no government will let its own central bank, that is, itself, go bankrupt. The central bank will always be permitted to suspend specie payment in times of serious difficulty. It can therefore inflate and expand credit itself through re-discounts and open market purchases and by adding to bank reserves spur a multiple bank credit expansion throughout the country. 
The effect is multiple because banks will generally keep a certain proportion of reserves to liabilities based on estimates of non-client redemption, and a general increase in their reserves will induce a multiple expansion of fiduciary media. In fact, the multiple will even increase, for the knowledge that all the banks are coordinated and expanding together decreases the possibility of non-client redemption, and therefore the proportion of reserves that each bank will wish to keep. When the government goes off the gold standard, central banknotes then become legal tender and virtually the standard money. It then cannot possibly fail, and this, of course, practically eliminates limitations on its credit expansion. In the present-day United States, for example, the current basically fiat standard, also known as a restricted international gold bullion standard, virtually eliminates pressure for redemption, while the central bank's ready provision of reserves as well as deposit insurance eliminates the threat of bank failure. Foreign central banks and governments are still permitted to redeem in gold bullion, but this is hardly a consolation for either foreign citizens or Americans. The result is that gold is still an ultimate balancing item between national governments, and therefore a kind of medium of exchange for governments and central banks in international transactions. In order to ensure centralized control by the government over bank credit, the United States enforces on banks a certain minimum ratio of reserves, almost wholly deposits with the central bank, to deposits. So long as a country is, in any sense, on the gold standard, the central bank and the banking system must worry about an external drain of specie should the inflation become too great. Under an unrestricted gold standard, it must also worry about an internal drain resulting from the demands of those who do not use the banks. A shift in public taste from deposits to notes will embarrass the commercial banks, though not the central bank. Assiduous propaganda on the conveniences of banking, however, has reduced the ranks of those not using banks to a few malcontents. As a result, the only limitation on credit expansion is now external. Governments, of course, are always anxious to remove all checks on their powers of inducing monetary expansion. One way of removing the external threat is to foster international cooperation so that all governments and central banks expand their money supply at a uniform rate. The ideal condition for unlimited inflation is, of course, a world fiat paper money issued by a world central bank or other governmental authority. Pure fiat money on a national scale would serve almost as well, but there would then be the embarrassment of national monies depreciating in terms of other monies and imports becoming much more expensive. The transition from gold to fiat money will be greatly smoothed if the state has previously abandoned ounces, grams, grains, and other units of weight in naming its monetary units, and substituted unique names such as dollar, mark, 
frank, etc. It will then be far easier to eliminate the public's association of monetary units with weight and to teach the public to value the names themselves. Furthermore, if each national government sponsors its own unique name, it will be far easier for each state to control its own fiat issue absolutely. F. The Ultimate Limit The Runaway Boom With the establishment of fiat money by a state or by a world state, it would seem that all limitations on credit expansion or on any inflation are eliminated. The central bank can issue limitless amounts of nominal units of paper unchecked by any necessity of digging a commodity out of the ground. They may be supplied to banks to bolster their credit at the pleasure of the government. No problems of internal or external drain exist. And if there existed a world state or a cooperating cartel of states with a world bank and world paper money and gold and silver money were outlawed, could not the world state then expand the money supply at will with no foreign exchange or foreign trade difficulties, permanently redistributing wealth from the market's choice to its own favorites, from voluntary producers to the ruling castes? Many economists and most other people assume that the state could accomplish this goal. Actually, it could not, for there is an ultimate limit on inflation. A very wide one, to be sure, but a terrible limit that will, in the end, conquer any inflation. Paradoxically, this is the phenomenon of runaway inflation, or hyperinflation. When the government and the banking system begin inflating, the public will usually aid them unwittingly in this task. The public, not cognizant of the true nature of the process, believes that the rise in prices is transient, and that prices will soon return to normal. As we have noted, people will therefore hoard more money, that is, keep a greater proportion of their income in the form of cash balances. The social demand for money, in short, increases. As a result, prices tend to increase less than proportionately to the increase in the quantity of money. The government obtains more real resources from the public than it had expected, since the public's demand for these resources has declined. Eventually, the public begins to realize what is taking place. It seems that the government is attempting to use inflation as a permanent form of taxation, but the public has a weapon to combat this depredation. Once people realize that the government will continue to inflate, and therefore that prices will continue to rise, they will step up their purchases of goods, for they will realize that they are gaining by buying now, instead of waiting until a future date when the value of the monetary unit will be lower and prices higher. In other words, the social demand for money falls, and prices now begin to rise more rapidly than the increase in the supply of money. 
When this happens, the confiscation by the government, or the taxation effect of inflation, will be lower than the government had expected, for the increased money will be reduced in purchasing power by the greater rise in prices. This stage of the inflation is the beginning of hyperinflation, of the runaway boom. The lower demand for money allows fewer resources to be extracted by the government, but the government can still obtain resources so long as the market continues to use the money. The accelerated price rise will, in fact, lead to complaints of a scarcity of money and stimulate the government to greater efforts of inflation, thereby causing even more accelerated price increases. This process will not continue long, however. As the rise in prices continues, the public begins a flight from money, getting rid of money as soon as possible in order to invest in real goods, almost any real goods, as a store of value for the future. This mad scramble away from money, lowering the demand for money to hold practically to zero, causes prices to rise upward in astronomical proportions. The value of the monetary unit falls practically to zero. The devastation and havoc that the runaway boom causes among the populace is enormous. The relatively fixed income groups are wiped out. Production declines drastically, sending up prices further as people lose the incentive to work, since they must spend much of their time getting rid of money. The main desideratum becomes getting hold of real goods, whatever they may be, and spending money as soon as received. When this runaway stage is reached, the economy, in effect, breaks down. The market is virtually ended, and society reverts to a state of virtual barter and complete impoverishment. Commodities are then slowly built up as media of exchange. The public has rid itself of the inflation burden by its ultimate weapon, lowering the demand for money to such an extent that the government's money has become worthless. When all other limits and forms of persuasion fail, this is the only way, through chaos and economic breakdown, for the people to force a return to the hard commodity money of the free market. The most famous runaway inflation was the German experience of 1923. It is particularly instructive because it took place in one of the world's most advanced industrial countries. The chaotic events of the German hyperinflation and other accelerated booms, however, are only a pale shadow of what would happen under a world state inflation. For Germany was able to recover and return to a full monetary market economy quickly, since it could institute a new currency based on exchanges with other pre-existing monies, gold or foreign paper. As we have seen, however, Mises' regression theorem shows that no money can be established on the market except as it can be exchanged for a previously existing money which in turn must have ultimately related back to a commodity in barter. 
If a world state outlaws gold and silver and establishes a unitary fiat money, which it proceeds to inflate until a runaway boom destroys it, there will be no pre-existing money on the market. The task of reconstruction will then be enormously more difficult. G. Inflation and Compensatory Fiscal Policy Inflation in recent years has been generally defined as an increase in prices. This is a highly unsatisfactory definition. Prices are highly complex phenomena, activated by many different causal factors. They may increase or decrease from the goods side, that is, as a result of a change in the supply of goods on the market. They may increase or decrease because of a change in the social demand for money to hold, or they may rise or fall from a change in the supply of money. To lump all of these causes together is misleading, for it glosses over the separate influences, the isolation of which is the goal of science. Thus, the money supply may be increasing, while at the same time the social demand for money is increasing from the goods side, in the form of increased supplies of goods. Each may offset the other, with no general price changes occurring. Yet both processes perform their work, nevertheless. Resources will still shift as a result of inflation, and the business cycle caused by credit expansion will still appear. It is, therefore, highly inexpedient to define inflation as a rise in prices. Movements in the supply of goods and in the demand for money schedules are all the results of voluntary changes of preferences on the market. The same is true for increases in the supply of gold or silver, but increases in fiduciary or fiat media are acts of fraudulent intervention in the market, distorting voluntary preferences and the voluntarily determined pattern of income and wealth. Therefore, the most expedient definition of inflation is one we have set forth, an increase in the supply of money beyond any increase in specie. Inflation is here defined as any increase in the money supply greater than an increase in specie, not as a big change in that supply. As here defined, therefore, the terms inflation and deflation are praxeological categories. The absurdity of the various governmental programs for fighting inflation now becomes evident, most people believe that government officials must constantly pace the ramparts, armed with a huge variety of control programs designed to combat the inflation enemy. Yet all that is really necessary is that the government and the banks, nowadays controlled almost completely by the government, cease inflating. The absurdity of the term inflationary pressure also becomes clear. Either the government and banks are inflating, or they are not. There is no such thing as inflationary pressure. The idea that the government has the duty to tax the public in order to sop up excess purchasing power is particularly ludicrous.
If inflation has been underway, this excess purchasing power is precisely the result of previous governmental inflation. In short, the government is supposed to burden the public twice, once in appropriating the resources of society by inflating the money supply, and again by taxing back the new money from the public. Rather than checking inflationary pressure, then, a tax surplus in a boom will simply place an additional burden upon the public. If the taxes are used for further government spending or for repaying debts to the public, then there is not even a deflationary effect. If the taxes are used to redeem government debt held by the banks, the deflationary effect will not be a credit contraction and therefore will not correct maladjustments brought about by the previous inflation. It will, indeed, create further dislocations and distortions of its own. Keynesian and neo-Keynesian compensatory fiscal policy advocates that government deflate during an inflationary period and inflate, incur deficits financed by borrowing from the banks to combat a depression. It is clear that government inflation can relieve unemployment and unsold stocks only if the process dupes the owners into accepting lower real prices or wages. This money illusion relies on the owners being too ignorant to realize when their real incomes have declined, a slender basis on which to ground a cure. Furthermore, the inflation will benefit part of the public at the expense of the rest, and any credit expansion will only set a further boom-bust cycle into motion. The Keynesians depict the free market's monetary fiscal system as minus a steering wheel, so that the economy, though readily adjustable in other ways, is constantly walking a precarious tightrope between depression and unemployment on the one side and inflation on the other. It is then necessary for the government, in its wisdom, to step in and steer the economy on an even course. After our completed analysis of money and business cycles, however, it should be evident that the true picture is just about the reverse. The free market, unhampered, would not be in danger of suffering inflation, deflation, depression, or unemployment, but the intervention of government creates the tightrope for the economy and is constantly, if sometimes unwittingly, pushing the economy into these pitfalls. 12. Conclusion The Free Market and Coercion We have thus concluded our analysis of voluntary and free action and its consequences in the free market, and of violent and coercive action and its consequences in economic intervention. Superficially, it looks to many people as if the free market is a chaotic and anarchic place, while government intervention imposes order and community values upon this anarchy. Actually, praxeology, economics, shows us that the truth is quite the reverse. We may divide our analysis into the direct or palpable effects and the indirect, hidden effects of the two principles. 
directly, voluntary action, free exchange, leads to the mutual benefit of both parties to the exchange. Indirectly, as our investigations have shown, the network of these free exchanges in society, known as the free market, creates a delicate and even awe-inspiring mechanism of harmony, adjustment, and precision in allocating productive resources, deciding upon prices, and gently but swiftly guiding the economic system toward the greatest possible satisfaction of the desires of all the consumers. In short, not only does the free market directly benefit all parties and leave them free and uncoerced, it also creates a mighty and efficient instrument of social order. Proudhon, indeed, wrote better than he knew when he called liberty the mother, not the daughter, of order. On the other hand, coercion has diametrically opposite features. Directly, coercion benefits one party only at the expense of others. Coerced exchange is a system of exploitation of man by man, in contrast to the free market, which is a system of cooperative exchanges in the exploitation of nature alone. And not only does coerced exchange mean that some live at the expense of others, but indirectly, as we have just observed, coercion leads only to further problems. It is inefficient and chaotic, it cripples production, and it leads to cumulative and unforeseen difficulties. Seemingly orderly, coercion is not only exploitative, it is also profoundly disorderly. The major function of praxeology, of economics, is to bring to the world the knowledge of these indirect, these hidden consequences of the different forms of human action. The hidden order, harmony, and efficiency of the voluntary free market, the hidden disorder, conflict, and gross inefficiency of coercion and intervention, these are the great truths that economic science, through deductive analysis from self-evident axioms, reveals to us. Praxeology cannot by itself pass ethical judgment or make policy decisions. Praxeology, through its Wertfrei laws, informs us that the workings of the voluntary principle and of the free market lead inexorably to freedom, prosperity, harmony, efficiency, and order, while coercion and government intervention lead inexorably to hegemony, conflict, exploitation of man by man, inefficiency, poverty, and chaos. At this point, praxeology retires from the scene, and it is up to the citizen, the ethicist, to choose his political course according to the values that he holds dear. Appendix A. Government Borrowing The major source of government revenue is taxation. Another source is government borrowing. Government borrowing from the banking system is really a form of inflation. It creates new money substitutes that go first to the government and then diffuse with each step of spending into the community. Inflation has been discussed. 
This is a process entirely different from borrowing from the public, which is not inflationary, for the latter transfers saved funds from private to governmental hands rather than creates new funds. Its economic effect is to divert savings from the channels most desired by the consumers and to shift them to the uses desired by government officials. Hence, from the point of view of the consumers, borrowing from the public wastes savings. The consequences of this waste are a lowering of the capital structure of the society and a lowering of the general standard of living in the present and the future. Diversion and waste of savings from investment causes interest rates to be higher than they otherwise would, since now private uses must compete with government demands. Public borrowing strikes at individual savings more effectively even than taxation, for it specifically lures away savings rather than taxing income in general. It might be objected that lending to the government is voluntary and is therefore equivalent to any other voluntary contribution to the government. The diversion of funds is something desired by the consumers and hence by society. A recent objection of this sort has been voiced by James M. Buchanan. Yet the process is voluntary only in a one-sided way. For we must not forget that the government enters the time market as a bearer of coercion and as a guarantor that it will use this coercion to obtain funds for repayment. The government is armed by coercion with a crucial power denied to all other people on the market. It is always assured of funds, whether by taxation or by inflation. The government will therefore be able to divert considerable funds from savers and at an interest rate lower than any paid elsewhere. For the risk component in the interest rate paid by the government will be lower than that paid by any other borrowers. It is incorrect, however, to say that government loans are riskless and therefore that the interest yield on government bonds may be taken to be the pure interest rate. Governments may always repudiate their obligations if they wish, or they may be overturned and their successors may refuse to honor the IOUs. Lending to government, therefore, may be voluntary, but the process is hardly voluntary when considered as a whole. It is, rather, a voluntary participation in future confiscation to be committed by the government. In fact, lending to government twice involves diversion of private funds to the government. Once, when the loan is made and private savings are diverted to government spending, and again when the government taxes or inflates or borrows again to obtain the money to repay the loan. Then, once more, a coerced diversion takes place from private producers to the government, the proceeds of which, after payment of the bureaucracy for handling services, accrues to the government bondholders. The latter have thus become a part of the state apparatus and are engaging in a relation of state with the taxpaying producers. 
Hence, despite Buchanan's criticism, the classical economists such as Mill were right. The public debt is a double burden on the free market. In the present, because resources are withdrawn from private to unproductive governmental employment, and in the future, when private citizens are taxed to pay the debt. Indeed, for Buchanan to be right, and the public debt to be no burden, two extreme conditions would have to be met. One, the bondholder would have to tear up his bond, so that the loan would be a genuinely voluntary contribution to the government. And, two, the government would have to be a totally voluntary institution, subsisting on voluntary payments alone, not just for this particular debt, but for all its transactions with the rest of society. The ingenious slogan that the public debt does not matter because we owe it to ourselves is clearly absurd. The crucial question is... Who is the we, and who are the ourselves? Analysis of the world must be individualistic and not holistic. Certain people owe money to certain other people, and it is precisely this fact that makes the borrowing as well as the taxing process important, for we might just as well say that taxes are unimportant for the same reason. In the same way, we would have to assert that the Jews killed by the Nazis during World War II really committed suicide. They did it to themselves. Many right-wing opponents of public borrowing, on the other hand, have greatly exaggerated the dangers of the public debt and have raised persistent alarms about imminent bankruptcy. It is obvious that the government cannot become insolvent like private individuals, for it can always obtain money by coercion, while private citizens cannot. Further, the periodic agitation that the government reduce the public debt generally forgets that, short of outright repudiation, the debt can be reduced only by increasing, at least for a time, the tax and or inflation in society. Social utility can therefore not be enhanced by debt reduction, except by the method of repudiation, the one way that the public debt can be lowered without a concomitant increase in fiscal coercion. Repudiation would also have the further merit, from the standpoint of the free market, of casting a pall on all future government credit, so that the government could no longer so easily divert savings to government use. It is therefore one of the most curious and inconsistent features of the history of politico-economic thought that it is precisely the right-wingers, the presumed champions of the free market, who attack repudiation most strongly, and who insist on as swift a payment of the public debt as possible. Appendix B. Collective Goods and External Benefits Two Arguments for Government Activity One of the most important philosophical problems of recent centuries is whether ethics is a rational discipline, or instead a purely arbitrary, unscientific set of personal values. 
Whichever side one may take in this debate, it would certainly be generally agreed that economics, or praxeology, cannot by itself suffice to establish an ethical or politico-ethical doctrine. Economics per se is therefore a wertfrei science, which does not engage in ethical judgments. Yet, while economists will generally agree to this flat statement, it is certainly curious how much energy they have spent trying to justify, in some tortuous, presumably scientific and wertfrei manner, various activities and expenditures of government. The consequence is the widespread smuggling of unanalyzed, undefended ethical judgments into a supposedly wertfrei system of economics. One venerable example used constantly in texts on public finance, an area particularly prone to camouflaged ethical judgments, is the canons of justice for taxation propounded by Adam Smith. The analysis of the economic nature and consequences of government ownership in this book is wertfrei and does not involve ethical judgments. It is a mistake, for example, to believe that anyone, knowing the economic laws demonstrating the great inefficiencies of government ownership, would necessarily have to choose private over government ownership, although, of course, he may well do so. Those who place a high moral value, for example, on social conflict, or on poverty, or on inefficiency, or those who greatly desire to wield bureaucratic power over others, or to see people subjected to bureaucratic power, may well opt even more enthusiastically for government ownership. Ultimate ethical principles and choices are outside the scope of this book. This, of course, does not mean that the present author deprecates their importance. On the contrary, he believes that ethics is a rational discipline. Two favorite, seemingly scientific, justifications for government activity and enterprise are a. what we might call the argument of external benefits, and b. the argument of collective goods or collective wants. Stripped of seemingly scientific or quasi-mathematical trappings, the first argument reduces to the contention that A, B, and C do not seem to be able to do certain things without benefiting D, who may try to evade his just share of the payment. This and other external benefit arguments will be discussed shortly. The collective goods argument is, on its face, even more scientific. The economist simply asserts that some goods or services, by their very nature, must be supplied collectively, and therefore government must supply them out of tax revenue. This seemingly simple existential statement, however, cloaks a good many unanalyzed politico-ethical assumptions. In the first place, even if there were collective goods, it by no means follows either, one, that one agency must supply them, or two, that everyone in the collectivity must be forced to pay for them. 
In short, if X is a collective good needed by most people in a certain community, and which can be supplied only to all, it by no means follows that every beneficiary must be forced to pay for the good, which, incidentally, he may not even want. In short, we are back squarely in the moral problem of external benefits, which we shall discuss. The collective goods argument turns out upon analysis to reduce to the external benefit argument. Furthermore, even if only one agency must supply the good, it has not been proved that the government, rather than some voluntary agency or even some private corporation, cannot supply that good. Secondly, the very concept of collective goods is a highly dubious one. How, first of all, can a collective want, think, or act? Only an individual exists and can do these things. There is no existential referent of the collective that supposedly wants and then receives goods. Many attempts have been made, nevertheless, to salvage the concept of the collective good to provide a seemingly ironclad scientific justification for government operations. Molinari, for example, trying to establish defense as a collective good, asserted, A police force serves every inhabitant of the district in which it acts, but the mere establishment of a bakery does not appease their hunger. But, on the contrary, there is no absolute necessity for a police force to defend every inhabitant of an area, or, still more, to give each one the same degree of protection. Furthermore, an absolute pacifist, a believer in total nonviolence living in the area, would not consider himself protected by, or receiving defense service from, the police. On the contrary, he would consider any police in his area a detriment to him. Hence, defense cannot be considered a collective good or collective want. Similarly, for such projects as dams, which cannot be simply assumed to benefit everyone in the area. Antonio de Viti de Marco defined collective wants as consisting of two categories, wants arising when an individual is not in isolation and wants connected with a conflict of interest. The first category, however, is so broad as to encompass most market products. There would be no point, for example, in putting on plays unless a certain number went to see them or in publishing newspapers without a certain wide market. Must all these industries therefore be nationalized and monopolized by the government? The second category is presumably meant to apply to defense. This, however, is incorrect. Defense itself does not reflect a conflict of interest, but a threat of invasion, against which defense is needed. Furthermore, it is hardly sensible to call collective that want which is precisely the least likely to be unanimous, since robbers will hardly desire it. 
Other economists write as if defense is necessarily collective because it is an immaterial service, whereas bread, autos, etc., are materially divisible and saleable to individuals. But immaterial services to individuals abound in the market. Must concert giving be monopolized by the state because its services are immaterial? In recent years, Professor Paul Samuelson has offered his own definition of collective consumption goods in a so-called pure theory of government expenditures. Collective consumption goods, according to Samuelson, are those which all enjoy in common, in the sense that each individual's consumption of such a good leads to no subtraction from any other individual's consumption of that good. For some reason, these are supposed to be the proper goods, or at least these, for government, rather than the free market to provide. Samuelson's category has been attacked with due severity. Professor Stephen Enke, for example, pointed out that most governmental services simply do not fit Samuelson's classification, including highways, libraries, judicial services, police, fire, hospitals, and military protection. In fact, we may go further and state that no goods would ever fit into Samuelson's category of collective consumption goods. Julius Margolis, for example, while critical of Samuelson, concedes the inclusion of national defense and lighthouses in this category. But national defense is surely not an absolute good with only one unit of supply. It consists of specific resources committed in certain definite and concrete ways, and these resources are necessarily scarce. A ring of defense bases around New York, for example, cuts down the amount possibly available around San Francisco. Furthermore, a lighthouse shines over a certain fixed area only. Not only does a ship within the area prevent others from entering the area at the same time, but also the construction of a lighthouse in one place limits its construction elsewhere. In fact, if a good is really technologically collective in Samuelson's sense, it is not a good at all, but a natural condition of human welfare, like air, superabundant to all, and therefore unowned by anyone. Indeed, it is not the lighthouse, but the ocean itself, when the lanes are not crowded, which is the collective consumption good, and which therefore remains unowned. Obviously, neither government nor anyone else is normally needed to produce or allocate the ocean. In his reply to critics, Samuelson, after hastening to deny any possible implication that he wished to confine the sphere of government to collective goods alone, asserts that his category is really a polar concept. Goods in the real world are supposed to be only blends of the polar extremes of public and private goods. But these concepts, even in Samuelson's own terms, are decidedly not polar, but exhaustive. 
Either A's consumption of a good diminishes B's possible consumption, or it does not. These two alternatives are mutually exclusive and exhaust the possibilities. In effect, Samuelson has abandoned his category either as a theoretical or as a practical device. Charles Thibou, conceding that there is no pure way to establish an optimum level for government expenditures, tries to salvage such a theory specifically for local government. Realizing that the taxing and even voting process precludes voluntary demonstration of consumer choice in the governmental field, he argues that decentralization and freedom of internal migration renders local government expenditures more or less optimal, as we can say that free market expenditures by firms are optimal, since the residents can move in and out as they please. Certainly it is true that the consumer will be better off if he can move readily out of a high-tax and into a low-tax community, but this helps the consumer only to a degree. It does not solve the problem of government expenditures, which remains otherwise the same. There are indeed other factors than government entering into a man's choice of residence, and enough people may be attached to a certain geographical area for one reason or another to permit a great deal of government depredation before they move. Furthermore, a major problem is that the world's total land area is fixed, and that governments have universally preempted all the land, and thus universally burden consumers. At one point, Tibu seems to admit that his theory would be valid only if each person could somehow be his own municipal government. In the course of an acute critique of the idea of competition in government, the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph wrote as follows, Were the taxpayer free to act as a customer, buying only those services he deemed useful to himself and which were priced within his reach, then this competition between governments would be a wonderful thing. But because the taxpayer is not a customer, but only the governed, he is not free to choose. He is only compelled to pay. With government, there is no producer-customer relationship. There is only the relation that always exists between those who rule and those who are ruled. The ruled are never free to refuse the services of the products of the ruler. Instead of trying to see which government could best serve the governed, each government began to vie with every other government on the basis of its tax collections— the victim of this competition is always the taxpayer. The taxpayer is now set upon by the federal, state, school board, county, and city governments. Each of these is competing for the last dollar he has. We come now to the problem of external benefits, the major justification for government activities expounded by economists. The problem of external costs, usually treated as symmetrical with external benefits, is not really related. It is a consequence of failure to enforce fully the rights of property. 
If A's actions injure B's property and the government refuses to stop the act and enforce damages, property rights and hence the free market are not being fully defended and maintained. Hence, external costs, for example, smoke damage, are failures to maintain a fully free market rather than defects of that market. Where individuals simply benefit themselves by their actions, many writers concede that the free market may be safely left unhampered. But men's actions may often, even inadvertently, benefit others. While one might think this a cause for rejoicing, critics charge that from this fact flow evils in abundance. A free exchange where A and B mutually benefit may be all very well, say these economists, but what if A does something voluntarily which benefits B as well as himself, but for which B pays nothing in exchange? There are two general lines of attack on the free market, using external benefits as the point of criticism. Taken together, these arguments against the market and for governmental intervention, or enterprise, cancel each other out, but each must, in all fairness, be examined separately. The first type of criticism is to attack A for not doing enough for B. The benefactor is, in effect, denounced for taking his own selfish interests exclusively into account, and thereby neglecting the potential indirect recipient waiting silently in the wings. For some unexplained reason, the benefits worried over are only the indirect ones, where B benefits inadvertently from A's action direct gifts or charity, where A simply donates money to B, are not attacked under the category of external benefit. The second line of attack is to denounce B for accepting a benefit without paying A in return. The recipient is denounced as an ingrate and a virtual thief for accepting the free gift. The free market, then, is accused of injustice and distortion by both groups of attackers. The first believes that the selfishness of man is such that A will not act enough in ways to benefit B. The second, that B will receive too much unearned increment without paying for it. Either way, the call is for remedial state action— on the one hand, to use violence in order to force or induce A to act more in ways which will aid B, on the other, to force B to pay A for his gift. Generally, these ethical views are clothed in the scientific opinion that in these cases, free market action is no longer optimal, but should be brought back into optimality by corrective state action. Such a view completely misconceives the way in which economic science asserts that free market action is ever optimal. It is optimal not from the standpoint of the personal ethical views of an economist, but from the standpoint of the free voluntary actions of all participants, and in satisfying the freely expressed needs of the consumers. Government interference, therefore, will necessarily and always move away from such an optimum.
It is amusing that while each line of attack is quite widespread, each can be rather successfully rebutted by using the essence of the other attack. Take, for example, the first, the attack on the benefactor. To denounce the benefactor and implicitly call for state punishment for insufficient good deeds is to advance a moral claim by the recipient upon the benefactor. We do not intend to argue ultimate values in this book, but it should be clearly understood that to adopt this position is to say that B is entitled peremptorily to call on A to do something to benefit him, and for which B does not pay anything in return. We do not have to go all the way with the second line of attack on the free rider, but we can say, perhaps, that it is presumptuous of the free rider to assert his right to a post of majesty and command, for what the first line of attack asserts is the moral right of B to exact gifts from A, by force, if necessary. Compulsory thrift, or attacks on potential savers for not saving and investing enough, are examples of this line of attack. Another is an attack on the user of a natural resource that is being depleted. Anyone who uses such a resource at all, whatever the extent, deprives some future descendant of the use. Conservationists, therefore, call for lower present use of such resources in favor of greater future use. Not only is this compulsory benefaction an example of the first line of attack, but if this argument is adopted, logically no resource subject to depletion could ever be used at all. For when the future generation comes of age, it too faces a future generation. This entire line of argument is therefore a peculiarly absurd one. The second line of attack is of the opposite form, a denunciation of the recipient of the gift. The recipient is denounced as a free rider, as a man who wickedly enjoys the unearned increment of the productive actions of others. This, too, is a curious line of attack, it is an argument which has cogency only when directed against the first line of attack, that is, against the free rider who wants compulsory free rides. But here we have a situation where A's actions, taken purely because they benefit himself, also have the happy effect of benefiting someone else. Are we to be indignant because happiness is being diffused throughout society? Are we to be critical because more than one person benefits from someone's actions? After all, the free rider did not ask for his ride. He received it unasked, as a boon, because A benefits from his own action. To adopt the second line of attack is to call in the gendarmes to apply punishment because too many people in the society are happy. In short, am I to be taxed for enjoying the view of my neighbor's well-kept garden? As one commentator on this issue has put it, if my neighbors hire private watchmen, they benefit me indirectly and incidentally. If my neighbors build fine houses or cultivate gardens, they indirectly minister to my leisure. 
Are they entitled to tax me for these benefits because I cannot surrender them? One striking instance of this second line of attack is the nub of the Henry Georgist position, an attack on the unearned increment derived from a rise in the capital values of ground land. We have seen that as the economy progresses, real land rents will rise with real wage rates, and the result will be increases in the real capital values of land. Growing capital structure, division of labor, and population tend to make site land relatively more scarce, and hence cause the increase. The argument of the Georgists is that the landowner is not morally responsible for this rise, which comes about from events external to his landholding. Yet, he reaps the benefit. The landowner is, therefore, a free rider, and his unearned increment rightfully belongs to society. Setting aside the problem of the reality of society and whether it can own anything, we have here a moral attack on a free rider situation. The difficulty with this argument is that it proves far too much. For which one of us would earn anything like our present real income were it not for external benefits that we derive from the actions of others? Specifically, the great modern accumulation of capital goods is an inheritance from all the net savings of our ancestors. Without them, we would, regardless of the quality of our own moral character, be living in a primitive jungle. The inheritance of money capital from our ancestors is, of course, simply inheritance of shares in this capital structure. We are all, therefore, free riders on the past. We are also free riders on the present, because we benefit from the continuing investment of our fellow men and from their specialized skills on the market. Certainly the vast bulk of our wages, if they could be so imputed, would be due to this heritage on which we are free riders. The landowner has no more of an unearned increment than any one of us. Are all of us to suffer confiscation, therefore, and to be taxed for our happiness? And who, then, is to receive the loot? Our dead ancestors, who were our benefactors in investing the capital? There is justice as well as bluntness in Benjamin Tucker's criticism. What gives value to land? asks Reverend Hugh O. Pentecost, a Georgist, and he answers, the presence of population, the community. Then rent, or the value of land, morally belongs to the community. What gives value to Mr. Pentecost's preaching? The presence of population, the community. Then Mr. Pentecost's salary, or the value of his preaching, morally belongs to the community. An important case of external benefits is external economies, which could be reaped by investment in certain industries, but which would not accrue as profit to the entrepreneurs. There is no need to dwell on the lengthy discussion in the literature on the actual range of such external economies, although they are apparently negligible. 
The suggestion has been persistently advanced that the government subsidize these investments so that society can reap the external economies. Such is the Pigou argument for subsidizing external economies, as well as the old and still dominant infant industries argument for a protective tariff. The call for state subsidization of external economy investments amounts to a third line of attack on the free market. That is, that B, the potential beneficiaries, be forced to subsidize the benefactors A, so that the latter will produce the former's benefits. This third line is the favorite argument of economists for such proposals as government-aided dams or reclamations, recipients taxed to pay for their benefits, or compulsory schooling, the taxpayers will eventually benefit from others' education, etc. The recipients are again bearing the onus of the policy, but here they are not criticized for free riding. They are now being saved from a situation in which they would not have obtained certain benefits. Since they would not have paid for them, it is difficult to understand exactly what they are being saved from. The third line of attack therefore agrees with the first that the free market does not, because of human selfishness, produce enough external economy actions but it joins the second line of attack in placing the cost of remedying the situation on the strangely unwilling recipients. If this subsidy takes place, it is obvious that the recipients are no longer free riders. Indeed, they are simply being coerced into buying benefits for which, acting by free choice, they would not have paid. The absurdity of the third approach may be revealed by pondering the question, who benefits from the suggested policy? The benefactor, A, receives a subsidy, it is true, but it is often doubtful if he benefits, since he would otherwise have acted and invested profitably in some other direction. The state has simply compensated him for losses which he would have received, and has adjusted the proceeds so that he receives the equivalent of an opportunity foregone. Therefore, A, if a business firm, does not benefit. As for the recipients, they are being forced by the state to pay for benefits that they otherwise would not have purchased. How can we say that they benefit? A standard reply is that the recipients could not have obtained the benefit even if they had wanted to buy it voluntarily. The first problem here is by what mysterious process the critics know that the recipients would have liked to purchase the benefit. Our only way of knowing the content of preference scales is to see them revealed in concrete choices. Since the choice concretely was not to buy the benefit, there is no justification for outsiders to assert that B's preference scale was really different from what was revealed in his actions. Secondly, there is no reason why the prospective recipients could not have bought the benefit. In all cases, a benefit produced can be sold on the market and earn its value product to consumers. 
the fact that producing the benefit would not be profitable to the investor signifies that the consumers do not value it as much as they value the uses of non-specific factors in alternative lines of production. For costs to be higher than prospective selling price means that the non-specific factors earn more in other channels of production. Furthermore, in possible cases where some consumers are not satisfied with the extent of the market production of some benefit, they are at perfect liberty to subsidize the investors themselves. Such a voluntary subsidy would be equivalent to paying a higher market price for the benefit, and would reveal their willingness to pay that price. The fact that in any case such a subsidy has not emerged eliminates any justification for a coerced subsidy by the government. Rather than providing a benefit to the taxed beneficiaries, in fact, the coerced subsidy inflicts a loss upon them, for they could have spent their funds themselves on goods and services of greater utility. As Mises states, the means which a government needs in order to run a plant at a loss or to subsidize an unprofitable project must be withdrawn either from the taxpayer's spending and investing power or from the loan market. What the government spends more, the public spends less. Public works are paid for by funds taken away from the citizens. If the government had not interfered, the citizens would have employed them for the realization of profit-promising projects, the realization of which is neglected merely on account of the government's intervention. Yet this non-realized project would have been profitable. That is, it would have employed the scarce means of production in accordance with the most urgent needs of the consumers. From the point of view of the consumers, the employment of these means of production for the realization of an unprofitable project is wasteful. It deprives them of satisfactions which they prefer to those which the government-sponsored project can furnish them. Howard S. Ellis and William Fellner, in their discussion of external economies, ignore the primordial fact that the subsidization of these economies must be at the expense of funds usable for greater satisfactions elsewhere. Ellis and Fellner do not realize that their refutation of the Pigou thesis that increasing cost industries are overexpanded destroys any possible basis for a subsidy to the decreasing cost industries.